Ender sat in a corner of the battle room, his arm hooked through a handhold, watching Bean practice with his squad. Yesterday they had worked on attacks without guns, disarming enemies with their feet. Ender had helped them with some techniques from gravity personal combat. Many things had to be changed, but inertia in flight was a tool that could be used against the enemy as easily in Nullo as in Earth gravity. Today, though, Bean had a new toy. It was a deadline. One of the thin, almost invisible twines used during construction in space to hold two objects together. Deadlines were sometimes kilometers long. This one was just a bit longer than a wall of the battle room, and yet it looped easily, almost invisibly, around Bean's waist. He pulled it off like an article of clothing and handed one end to one of his soldiers. Hook it to a handhold and wind it around a few times. Bean carried the other end across the battle room. As a tripwire, it wasn't too useful, Bean decided. It was invisible enough, but one strand of twine wouldn't have much chance of stopping an enemy that could easily go above or below it. Then he got the idea of using it to change his direction of movement in midair. He fastened it around his waist, the other end still fastened to a handhold, slipped a few meters away, and launched himself straight out. The twine caught him, changed his direction abruptly, and swung him in an arc that crashed him brutally against the wall. He screamed and screamed. It took Ender a moment to realize that he wasn't screaming in pain. Did you see how fast I went? Did you see how I changed direction? Soon, all of Dragon Army stopped work to watch Bean practice with the twine. The changes in direction were stunning, especially when you didn't know where to look for the twine. When he used the twine to wrap himself around the star, he attained speeds no one had ever seen before. It was 21.40 when Ender dismissed the evening practice. Weary, but delighted at having seen something new, his army walked through the corridors back to the barracks. Ender walked among them, not talking but listening to their talk. They were tired, yes. A battle every day for more than four weeks, often in situations that tested their abilities to the utmost. But they were proud, happy, close. They had never lost, and they had learned to trust each other. They trusted their fellow soldiers to fight hard and well, trusted their leaders to use them rather than waste their efforts. Above all, they trusted Ender to prepare them for anything and everything that might happen. As they walked the corridor, Ender noticed several older boys seemingly engaged in conversations in branching corridors and ladderways. Some were in their corridor, walking slowly in the other direction. It became too much of a coincidence, however, that so many of them were wearing salamander uniforms, and that those who weren't were often older boys belonging to armies whose commanders most hated Ender Wigan. A few of them looked at him and looked away too quickly. Others were too tense, too nervous, as they pretended to be relaxed. What will I do if they attack my army here in the corridor? My boys are all young, all small, and completely untrained in gravity combat. When would they learn? Ho, Ender, someone called. Ender stopped and looked back. It was Petra. Ender, can I talk to you? Ender saw in a moment that if he stopped and talked... His army would quickly pass him by, and he would be alone with Petra in the hallway. Walk with me, Ender said. It's just for a moment. Ender turned around and walked on with his army. He heard Petra running to catch up. All right, I'll walk with you. Ender tensed when she came near. 
Was she one of them, one of the ones who hated him enough to hurt him? A friend of yours wanted me to warn you. There are some boys who want to kill you. Surprise, said Ender. Some of his soldiers seemed to perk up at this. Plots against their commander were interesting news, it seemed. Ender, they can do it. He said they've been planning it ever since you went commander. Ever since I beat Salamander, you mean? I hated you after you beat Phoenix Army, too, Ender. I didn't say I blamed anybody. It's true. He told me to take you aside today and warn you on the way back from the battle room to be careful tomorrow because Petra... If you had actually taken me aside just now, there are about a dozen boys following along who would have taken me in the corridor. Can you tell me you didn't notice them? Suddenly her face flushed. No, I didn't. How, how can you think I did? Don't you know who your friends are? She pushed her way through Dragon Army, got ahead of him, and scrambled up a ladder way to a higher deck. Is it true? asked Crazy Tom. Is what true? Ender scanned the room and shouted for two roughhousing boys to get to bed. That some of the older boys want to kill you. All talk, said Ender. But he knew that it wasn't. Petra had known something, and what he saw on the way here tonight wasn't imagination. It may be all talk, but I hope you'll understand when I say you've got five tune leaders who are going to escort you to your room tonight. Completely unnecessary. Humorous. You owe us a favor. I owe you nothing. He'd be a fool to turn them down. Do as you want. He turned and left. The toon leaders trotted along with him. One ran ahead and opened his door. They checked the room, made Ender promise to lock it, and left him just before lights out. There was a message on his desk. Don't be alone, ever, Dink. Ender grinned. So Dink was still his friend. Don't worry, they won't do anything to me. I have my army. But in the darkness, he did not have his army. He dreamed that night of Stilson. Only he saw now how small Stilson was, only six years old, how ridiculous his tough guy posturing was. And yet in the dream, Stilson and his friends tied Ender so he couldn't fight back, and then everything that Ender had done to Stilson in life, they did to Ender in the dream. And afterward, Ender saw himself babbling like an idiot, trying hard to give orders to his army, but all his words came out as nonsense. He awoke in darkness, and he was afraid. Then he calmed himself by remembering that the teachers obviously valued him, or they wouldn't be putting so much pressure on him. They wouldn't let anything happen to him, nothing bad anyway. Probably when the older kids attacked him in the battle room years ago, there were teachers just outside the room waiting to see what would happen. If things had got out of hand... They would have stepped in and stopped it. I probably could have sat there and done nothing, and they would have seen to it that I came through all right. They'll push me as hard as they can in the game, but outside the game they'll keep me safe. With that assurance he slept again, until the door opened softly, and the morning's war was left on the floor for him to find. They won, of course, but it was a grueling affair, with the battle room so filled with a labyrinth of stars that hunting down the enemy during mop-up took forty-five minutes. It was Paul Slattery's badger army, and they refused to give up. There was a new wrinkle in the game, too. When they disabled or damaged an enemy, he thawed in about five minutes, the way it worked in practice. Only when the enemy was completely frozen did he stay out of action the whole time. But the gradual thawing did not work for Dragon Army. 
Crazy Tom was the one who realized what was happening when they started getting hit from behind by people they thought were safely out of the way. And at the end of the battle, Slattery shook Ender's hand and said, I'm glad you won. If I ever beat you, Ender, I want to do it fair. Use what they give you, Ender said. If you've ever got an advantage over the enemy, use it. Oh, I did, said Slattery. He grinned. I'm only fair-minded before and after battles. The battle took so long that breakfast was over. Ender looked at his hot, sweating, tired soldiers waiting in the corridor and said, Today you know everything. No practice. Get some rest. Have some fun. Pass a test. It was a measure of their weariness that they didn't even cheer or laugh or smile. Just walked into the barracks and stripped off their clothes. They would have practiced if he had asked them to, but they were reaching the end of their strength, and going without breakfast was one unfairness too many. Ender meant to shower right away, but he was also tired. He lay down on his bed in his flash suit, just for a moment, and woke up at the beginning of lunchtime. So much for his idea of studying more about the buggers this morning. Just time to clean up, go eat, and head for class. He peeled off his flash suit, which stank from his sweat. His body felt cold, his joints oddly weak. Shouldn't have slept in the middle of the day. I'm beginning to slack off. I'm beginning to wear down. Can't let it get to me. So he jogged to the gym and forced himself to climb the rope three times before going to the bathroom to shower. It didn't occur to him that his absence in the commander's mess would be noticed, that showering during the noon hour when his own army would be wolfing down their first meal of the day, he would be completely, helplessly alone. Even when he heard them come into the bathroom, he paid no attention. He was letting the water pour over his head, over his body. The muffled sound of footsteps was hardly noticeable. Maybe lunch was over, he thought. He started to soap himself again. Maybe somebody finished practice late. And maybe not. He turned around. There were seven of them, leaning back against the metal sinks or standing closer to the showers, watching him. Bonzo stood in front of them. Many were smiling, the condescending leer of the hunter for his cornered victim. Bonzo was not smiling, however. Ho, Ender said. Nobody answered. So Ender turned off the shower, even though there was still soap on him, and reached for his towel. It wasn't there. One of the boys was holding it. It was Bernard. All it would take for the picture to be complete was for Stilson and Peter to be there, too. They needed Peter's smile. They needed Stilson's obvious stupidity. Ender recognized the towel as their opening point. Nothing would make him look weaker than to chase naked after the towel— that was what they wanted, to humiliate him, to break him down. He wasn't going to play. He refused to feel weak because he was wet and cold and unclothed. He stood strongly, facing them, his arms at his sides. He fastened his gaze on Bonzo. "'Your move,' Ander said. "'This is no game,' said Bernard. "'We're tired of you, Ender. "'You graduate today. "'On ice.' Ender did not look at Bernard. It was Bonzo who hungered for his death, even though he was silent. The others were along for the ride, daring themselves to see how far they might go. Bonzo knew how far he would go. Bonzo, Ender said softly, your father would be proud of you. Bonzo stiffened. He would love to see you now, 
Come to fight a naked boy in a shower smaller than you, and you brought six friends. He would say, Oh, what honor! Nobody came to fight you, said Bernard. We just came to talk you into playing fair with the games, maybe lose a couple now and then. The others laughed. But Bonzo didn't laugh, and neither did Ender. Be proud, Bonito, pretty boy. You can go home and tell your father, yes, I beat up Ender Wigan, who was barely ten years old, and I was thirteen. And I had only six of my friends to help me, and somehow we managed to defeat him, even though he was naked and wet and alone. Ender Wigan is so dangerous and terrifying, it was all we could do not to bring two hundred. Shut your mouth, Wigan, said one of the boys. We didn't come to hear the little bastard talk, said another. You shut up, said Bonzo. Shut up and stand out of the way. He began to take off his uniform. Naked and wet and alone, Ender, so we're even. I can't help that I'm bigger than you. You're such a genius, you figure out how to handle me. He turned to the others. Watch the door. Don't let anyone else in. The bathroom wasn't large, and plumbing fixtures protruded everywhere. It had been launched in one piece as a low-orbit satellite, packed full of the water reclamation equipment. It was designed to have no wasted space. It was obvious what their tactics would have to be. Throw the other boy against fixtures until one of them does enough damage that he stops. When Ender saw Bonzo's stance, his heart sank. Bonzo had also taken classes, and probably more recently than Ender. His reach was better, he was stronger, and he was full of hate. He would not be gentle. He will go for my head, thought Ender. He will try, above all, to damage my brain. And if this fight is long, he's bound to win. His strength can control me. If I'm to walk away from here, I have to win quickly and permanently. He could still feel again the sickening way that Stilson's bones had given way. But this time it will be my body that breaks, unless I can break him first. Ender stepped back, flipped the shower head so it turned outward, and turned on pure hot water. Almost at once the steam began to rise. He turned on the next and the next. I'm not afraid of hot water, said Bonzo. His voice was soft. But it wasn't the hot water that Ender wanted. It was the heat. His body still had soap on it, and his sweat moistened it, made his skin more slippery than Bonzo would expect. Suddenly there was a voice from the door. Stop it! For a moment Ender thought it was a teacher come to stop the fight, but it was only Dink Meeker. Bonzo's friends caught him at the door, held him. Stop it, Bonzo! Dink cried. Don't hurt him. Why not? asked Bonzo. And for the first time he smiled. Ah, thought Ender, he loves to have someone recognize that he is the one in control, that he has power. Because he's the best, that's why. Who else can fight the buggers? That's what matters, you fool, the buggers. Bonzo stopped smiling. It was the thing he hated most about Ender, that Ender really mattered to other people, and in the end, Bonzo did not. You've killed me with those words, Dink. Bonzo doesn't want to hear that I might save the world. Where are the teachers, thought Ender. Don't they realize that the first contact between us in this fight might be the end of it? This isn't like the fight in the battle room, where no one had the leverage to do any terrible damage. There's gravity in here, and the floor and walls are hard and jutted with metal. Stop this now or not at all. If you touch him, you're a bugger lover, cried Dink. You're a traitor. If you touch him, you deserve to die. They jammed Dink's face backward into the door, and he was silent. 
The mist from the showers dimmed the room, and the sweat was streaming down Ender's body. Now, before the soap is carried off me, now, while I'm still too slippery to hold. Ender stepped back, letting the fear he felt show in his face. Bonzo, don't hurt me, he said. Please. It was what Bonzo was waiting for, the confession that he was in power. For other boys, it might have been enough that Ender had submitted. For Bonzo, it was only a sign that his victory was sure. He swung his leg as if to kick, but changed it to a leap at the last moment. Ender noticed the shifting weight and stooped lower so that Bonzo would be more off balance when he tried to grab Ender and throw him. Bonzo's tight, hard ribs came against Ender's face, and his hands slapped against his back, trying to grip him. But Ender twisted, and Bonzo's hands slipped. In an instant, Ender was completely turned, yet still inside Bonzo's grasp. The classic move at this moment would be to bring up his heel into Bonzo's crotch. But for that move to be effective required too much accuracy, and Bonzo expected it. He was already rising onto his toes, thrusting his hips backward to keep Ender from reaching his groin. Without seeing him, Ender knew it would bring his face closer, almost in Ender's hair, so instead of kicking, he lunged upward off the floor with the most powerful lunge of the soldier bounding from the wall and jammed his head into Bonzo's face. Ender whirled in time to see Bonzo stagger backward, his nose bleeding, gasping from surprise and pain. Ender knew that at this moment he might be able to walk out of the room and end the battle, the way he had escaped from the battle room after drawing blood. But the battle would only be fought again, again and again until the will to fight was finished. The only way to end things completely was to hurt Bonzo enough that his fear was stronger than his hate. So Ender leaned back against the wall behind him, then jumped up and pushed off with his arms. His feet landed in Bonzo's belly and chest. Ender spun in the air and landed on his toes and hands. He flipped over, scooted under Bonzo, and this time when he kicked upward into Bonzo's crutch, he connected hard and sure. Bonzo did not cry out in pain. He did not react at all, except that his body rose a little in the air. It was as if Ender had kicked a piece of furniture. Bonzo collapsed, fell to the side, and sprawled directly under the spray of steaming water from a shower. He made no movement whatever to escape the murderous heat. My God, someone shouted. Bonzo's friends leaped to turn off the water. Ender slowly rose to his feet. Someone thrust his towel at him. It was Dink. Come on out of here, Dink said. He led Ender away. Behind them they heard the heavy clatter of adults running down the ladderway. Now the teachers would come, the medical staff, to dress the wounds of Ender's enemy. Where were they before the fight, when there might have been no wounds at all? There was no doubt now in Ender's mind. There was no help for him. Whatever he faced, now and forever, no one would save him from it. Peter might be scum, but Peter had been right, always right. The power to cause pain is the only power that matters, the power to kill and destroy because if you can't kill, then you are always subject to those who can, and nothing and no one will ever save you. Dink led him to his room, made him lie on the bed. Are you hurt anywhere? he asked. Ender shook his head. You took him apart. I thought you were dead meat, the way he grabbed you. But you took him apart. If he'd stood up longer, you would have killed him. He meant to kill me. I know it. I know him. Nobody hates like Bonzo. But not anymore. 
If they don't ice him for this and send him home, he'll never look you in the eye again, you or anybody. He had 20 centimeters on you, and you made him look like a crippled cow standing there chewing her cud. All Ender could see, though, was the way Bonzo looked as Ender kicked upward into his groin. The empty, dead look in his eyes. He was already finished then, already unconscious. His eyes were open, but he wasn't thinking or moving anymore. Just that dead, stupid look on his face, that terrible look. The way Stilson looked when I finished with him. They'll ice him, though, Dink said. Everybody knows he started it. I saw them get up and leave the commander's mess. Took me a couple of seconds to realize you weren't there either, and then a minute more to find out where you'd gone. I told you not to be alone. Sorry. They're bound to ice him, troublemaker, him in a stinking honor. Then, to Dink's surprise, Ender began to cry, lying on his back, still soaking wet with sweat and water. He gasped his sobs, tears seeping out of his closed eyelids and disappearing in the water on his face. Are you all right? I didn't want to hurt him, Ender cried. Why didn't he just leave me alone? He heard his door open softly, then close. He knew at once that it was his battle instructions. He opened his eyes, expecting to find the darkness of early morning before 0600. Instead, the lights were on. He was naked, and when he moved, the bed was soaking wet. His eyes were puffy and painful from crying. He looked at the clock on his desk. 1820, it said. It's the same day. I already had a battle today. I had two battles today. The bastards know what I've been through, and they're doing this to me. William B. Griffin Army, Talo Momo, Tiger Army, 1900. He sat on the edge of the bed. The note trembled in his hand. I can't do this, he said silently. And then not silently. I can't do this. He got up, bleary, and looked for his flash suit. Then he remembered he had put it in the cleaner while he showered. It was still there. Holding the paper, he walked out of his room. Dinner was nearly over, and there were a few people in the corridor, but no one spoke to him, just watched him, perhaps in awe of what had happened at noon in the bathroom, perhaps because of the forbidding, terrible look on his face. Most of his boys were in the barracks. Ho, oh, Ender, there going to be a practice tonight? Ender handed the paper to Hot Soup. Those sons of bitches, he said. Two at once. Two armies? shouted Crazy Tom. They'll just trip over each other, said Bean. I've got to clean up, Ender said. Get them ready. Get everybody together. I'll meet you there at the gate. He walked out of the barracks. A tumult of conversation rose behind him. He heard Crazy Tom scream, Two fart-eating armies will whip their butts! The bathroom was empty, all cleaned up. None of the blood that poured from Bonzo's nose into the shower water. All gone. Nothing bad ever happened here. Ender stepped under the water and rinsed himself, took the sweat of combat, and let it run down the drain. All gone, except they recycled it and would be drinking Bonzo's blood water in the morning. All the life gone out of it, but his blood just the same. His blood and my sweat washed down in their stupidity or cruelty or whatever it was that made them let it happen. He dried himself, dressed in his flash suit, and walked to the battle room. His army was waiting in the corridor, the door still not opened. 
They watched him in silence as he walked to the front to stand by the blank gray force field. Of course, they all knew about his fight in the bathroom today. That and their own weariness from the battle that morning kept them quiet, while the knowledge that they would be facing two armies filled them with dread. Everything they can do to beat me, thought Ender. Everything they can think of. Change all the rules. They don't care, just so they beat me. Well, I'm sick of the game. No game is worth Bonzo's blood pinking the water on the bathroom floor. Ice me. Send me home. I don't want to play anymore. The door disappeared. Only three meters out, there were four stars together, completely blocking the view from the door. Two armies weren't enough. They had to make Ender deploy his forces blind. Bean, said Ender, take your boys and tell me what's on the other side of this star. Bean pulled the coil of twine from his waist, tied one end around him, handed the other end to a boy in his squad, and stepped gently through the door. His squad quickly followed. They had practiced this several times, and it took only a moment before they were braced on the star, holding the end of the twine. Bean pushed off at great speed, in a line almost parallel to the door. When he reached the corner of the room, he pushed off again and rocketed straight out toward the enemy. The spots of light on the wall showed that the enemy was shooting at him. As the rope was stopped by each edge of the star in turn, his arc became tighter, his direction changed, and he became an impossible target to hit. His squad caught him neatly as he came around the star from the other side. He moved all his arms and legs so those waiting inside the door would know that the enemy hadn't flashed him anywhere. Ender dropped through the gate. It's really dim, said Bean, but light enough you can't follow people easily by the lights on their suits. Worst possible for seeing. It's all open space from this star to the enemy side of the room. They've got eight stars making a square around their door. I didn't see anybody except the ones peeking around the boxes. They're just sitting there waiting for us. As if to corroborate Bean's statement, the enemy began to call out to them. Hey, we be hungry. Come and feed us. Your ass is dragon. Your ass is dragon. Ender's mind felt dead. This was stupid. He didn't have a chance, outnumbered two to one and forced to attack a protected enemy. In a real war, any commander with brains at all would retreat and save his army. What the hell, said Bean. It's only a game. It stopped being a game when they threw away the rules. So you threw them away, too. Ender grinned. Okay. Why not? Let's see how they react to a formation. Bean was appalled. A formation? We've never done a formation in the whole time we've been an army. Well, you've still got a month to go before our training period is normally supposed to end. About time we started doing formations. Always have to know formations. He formed an A with his fingers, showed it to the blank door, and beckoned. A tune quickly emerged, and Ender began arranging them behind the star. Three meters wasn't enough room to work in. The boys were frightened and confused, and it took nearly five minutes just to get them to understand what they were doing. Tiger and Griffin soldiers were reduced to chanting catcalls while their commanders argued about whether to try to use their overwhelming force to attack Dragon Army while they were still behind the star. Momo was all for attacking. We outnumber him two to one, while B said, Sit tight and we can't lose. Move out and he can figure out a way to beat us. So they sat tight, until finally in the dusky light they saw a large mass slip out from behind Ender's star. It held its shape even when it abruptly stopped moving sideways and launched itself toward the dead center of the eight stars where eighty-two soldiers waited. Do be do, said a griffin. They're doing a formation. 
They must have been putting that together for all five minutes, said Momo. If we'd attacked while they were doing it, we could have destroyed them. Eat it, Momo, whispered B. You saw the way that little kid flew. He went all the way around the star and back behind without ever touching a wall. Maybe they've all got hooks. Did you think of that? They've got something new there. The formation was a strange one. A square formation of tightly packed bodies in front, making a wall. Behind it, a cylinder, six boys in circumference and two boys deep, their limbs outstretched and frozen so they couldn't possibly be holding on to each other. Yet they held together as tightly as if they had been tied, which in fact they were. From inside the formation, Dragon Army was firing with deadly accuracy, forcing griffins and tigers to stay tightly packed on their stars. The back of that sucker is open, said B. As soon as they get between the stars, we can get around behind. Don't talk about it. Do it, said Momo. Then he took his own advice and ordered his boys to launch against the wall and rebound out behind the dragon formation. In the chaos of their takeoff, while Griffin Army held tight to their stars, the dragon formation abruptly changed. Both the cylinder and the front wall split in two as boys inside it pushed off. Almost at once, the formations also reversed direction, heading back toward the dragon gate. Most of the griffins fired at the formations and the boys moving backward with them, and the tigers took the survivors of Dragon Army from behind. But there was something wrong. William B. thought for a moment and realized what it was. Those formations couldn't have reversed direction in mid-flight unless someone pushed off in the opposite direction, and if they took off with enough force to make that twenty-man formation move backward, they must be going fast. There they were, six small dragon soldiers down near William B.'s own door. From the number of lights showing on their flash suits, B. could see that three of them were disabled and two of them damaged. Only one was whole. Nothing to be frightened of. B. casually aimed at them, pressed the button, and... nothing happened. The lights went on. The game was over. Even though he was looking right at them... It took B a moment to realize what had just happened. Four of the dragon soldiers had their helmets pressed on the corners of the door, and one of them had just passed through. They had just carried out the victory ritual. They were getting destroyed, they had hardly inflicted any casualties, and they had the gall to perform the victory and end the game right under their noses. Only then did it occur to William B that not only had Dragon Army ended the game... It was possible that under the rules they had won it. After all, no matter what happened, you were not certified as the winner unless you had enough unfrozen soldiers to touch the corners of the gate and pass someone through into the enemy's corridor. Therefore, by one way of thinking, you could argue that the ending ritual was victory. The battle room certainly recognized it as the end of the game. The teacher gate opened and Major Anderson came into the room. Ender he called, looking around. One of the frozen dragon soldiers tried to answer him through jaws that were clamped shut by the flash suit. Anderson hooked over to him and thawed him. Ender was smiling. I beat you again, sir, he said. Nonsense, Ender, Anderson said softly. Your battle was with Griffin and Tiger. How stupid do you think I am, said Ender. Loudly, Anderson said, after that little maneuver, the rules are being revised to require that all of the enemy's soldiers must be frozen or disabled before the gate can be reversed. They could only work once anyway, Ender said. 
Anderson handed him the hook. Ender unfroze everyone at once. To hell with protocol. To hell with everything. Hey, he shouted as Anderson moved away. What is it next time? My army in a cage without guns with the rest of the battle school against them? How about a little equality? There was a loud murmur of agreement from the other boys, and not all of it came from Dragon Army. Anderson did not so much as turn around to acknowledge Ender's challenge. Finally, it was William B. who answered, Ender, if you're on one side of the battle, it won't be equal no matter what the conditions are. Right, called the boys. Many of them laughed. Talomomo began clapping his hands. Ender Wigan, he shouted. The other boys also clapped and shouted Ender's name. Ender passed through the enemy gate. His soldiers followed him. The sound of them shouting his name followed him through the corridors. Practice tonight? asked Crazy Tom. Ender shook his head. Tomorrow morning, then? No. Well, when? Never again, as far as I'm concerned. He could hear the murmurs behind him. Hey, that's not fair, said one of the boys. It's not our fault the teachers are screwing up the game. You can't just stop teaching us stuff because... Ender slammed his open hand against the wall and shouted at the boy, I don't care about the game anymore. His voice echoed through the corridor. Boys from other armies came to their doors. He spoke quietly into the silence. Do you understand that? And he whispered, The game is over. He walked back to his room alone. He wanted to lie down, but he couldn't because the bed was wet. It reminded him of all that had happened today, and in fury he tore the mattress and blankets from the bed frame and shoved them out into the corridor. Then he wadded up a uniform to serve as a pillow and lay on the fabric of wires strung across the frame. It was uncomfortable, but Ender didn't care enough to get up. He had only been there a few minutes when someone knocked on the door. Go away, he said softly. Whoever was knocking didn't hear him or didn't care. Finally, Ender said to come in. It was Bean. Go away, Bean. Bean nodded but didn't leave. Instead, he looked at his shoes. Ender almost yelled at him, cursed at him, screamed at him to leave. Instead, he noticed how very tired Bean looked, his whole body bent with weariness, his eyes dark from lack of sleep. And yet his skin was still soft and translucent, the skin of a child, the soft, curved cheek, the slender limbs of a little boy. He wasn't eight years old yet. It didn't matter he was brilliant and dedicated and good. He was a child. He was young. No, he isn't, thought Ender. Small, yes. But Bean has been through a battle with a whole army depending on him and on the soldiers that he led, and he performed splendidly, and they won. There's no youth in that, no childhood. Taking Ender's silence and softening expression as permission to stay, Bean took another step into the room. Only then did Ender see the small slip of paper in his hand. You're transferred? asked Ender. He was incredulous, but his voice came out sounding uninterested, dead. To Rabbit Army. Ender nodded. Of course, it was obvious. If I can't be defeated with my army, they'll take my army away. Karn Carby's a good man, said Ender. I hope he recognizes what you're worth. Karn Carby was graduated today. He got his notice while we were fighting our battle. Well, who's commanding Rabbit, then? Bean held his hands out helplessly. 
Me. Ender looked at the ceiling and nodded. Of course. After all, you're only four years younger than the regular age. It isn't funny. I don't know what's going on here. All the changes in the game and now this. I wasn't the only one transferred, you know. They graduated half the commanders and transferred a lot of our guys to command their armies. Which guys? It looks like every toon leader and every assistant. Of course. If they decide to wreck my army, they'll cut it to the ground. Whatever they're doing, they're thorough. You still win, Ender. We all know that. Crazy Tom, he said, You mean I'm supposed to figure out how to beat Dragon Army? Everybody knows you're the best. They can't break you down no matter what they... They already have. No, Ender. They can't... I don't care about their game anymore, Bean. I'm not going to play it anymore. No more practices, no more battles. They can put their little slips of paper on the floor all they want, but I won't go. I decided that before I went through the door today. That's why I had you go for the gate. I didn't think it would work, but I didn't care. I just wanted to go out in style. You should have seen William B.'s face. He just stood there trying to figure out how he had lost when you only had seven boys who could wiggle their toes, and he only had three who couldn't. Why should I want to see William B.'s face? Why should I want to beat anybody? Ender pressed his palms against his eyes. I hurt Bonzo really bad today, Bean. I really hurt him bad. He had it coming. I knocked him out standing up. It was like he was dead, standing there, and I kept hurting him. Bean said nothing. I just wanted to make sure he never hurt me again. He won't, said Bean. They sent him home. Already? The teachers didn't say much. They never do. The official notice says he was graduated, but where they put the assignment, you know, tactical school support, pre-command, navigation, that kind of thing, it just said, Cartagena, Spain. That's his home. I'm glad they graduated him. Hell, Ender, we're just glad he's gone. If we'd known what he was doing to you, we would have killed him on the spot. Was it true he had a whole bunch of guys gang up on you? No, it was just him and me. He fought with honor. If it weren't for his honor, he and the others would have beaten me together. They might have killed me then. His sense of honor saved my life. I didn't fight with honor, Ender added. I fought to win. Bean laughed. And you did. Kicked him right out of orbit. A knock on the door. Before Ender could answer, the door opened. Ender had been expecting more of his soldiers. Instead, it was Major Anderson. And behind him came Colonel Graff. Ender Wigan, said Graf. Ender got to his feet. Yes, sir. Your display of temper in the battle room today was insubordinate and is not to be repeated. Yes, sir, said Ender. Bean was still feeling insubordinate, and he didn't think Ender deserved the rebuke. I think it was about time somebody told a teacher how we felt about what you've been doing. The adults ignored him. Anderson handed Ender a sheet of paper a full-sized sheet, not one of the little slips of paper that served for internal orders within the battle school. It was a full-fledged set of orders. Bean knew what it meant. Ender was being transferred out of the school. Graduated? asked Bean. Ender nodded. What took them so long? You're only two or three years early. You've already learned how to walk and talk and dress yourself. What will they have left to teach you? Ender shook his head. All I know is the game's over. He folded up the paper. None too soon. Can I tell my army? There isn't time, said Graf. 
Your shuttle leaves in twenty minutes. Besides, it's better not to talk to them after you get your orders. It makes it easier. For them or for you? Ender asked. He didn't wait for an answer. He turned quickly to Bean, took his hand for a moment, and then headed for the door. Wait, said Bean. Where are you going? Tactical, navigational, support? Command school, Ender answered. Pre-command? Command, said Ender. And then he was out the door. Anderson followed him closely. Bean grabbed Colonel Graff by the sleeve. Nobody goes to command school unless they're sixteen. Graff shook off Bean's hand and left, closing the door behind him. Bean stood alone in the room, trying to grasp what this might mean. Nobody went to command school without three years of pre-command in either tactical or support. But then, nobody left battle school without at least six years, and Ender had had only four. The system is breaking up. No doubt about it. Either somebody at the top is going crazy, or something's gone wrong with the war. The real war. The bugger war. Why else would they break down the training system like this, wreck the game the way they did? Why else would they put a little kid like me in command of an army? Bean wondered about it as he walked back down the corridor to his own bed. The lights went out just as he reached his bunk. He undressed in darkness, fumbling to put his clothing in a locker he couldn't see. He felt terrible. At first he thought he felt bad because he was afraid of leading an army, but it wasn't true. He knew he'd make a good commander. He felt himself wanting to cry. He hadn't cried since the first few days of homesickness after he got here. He tried to put a name on the feeling that put a lump in his throat and made him sob silently, however much he tried to hold it down. He bit down on his hand, to stop the feeling, to replace it with pain. It didn't help. He would never see Ender again. Once he named the feeling, he could control it. He lay back and forced himself to go through the relaxing routine until he didn't feel like crying anymore. Then he drifted off to sleep. His hand was near his mouth. It lay on his pillow, hesitantly, as if Bean couldn't decide whether to bite his nails or suck on his fingertips. His forehead was creased and furrowed. His breathing was quick and light. He was a soldier, and if anyone had asked him what he wanted to be when he grew up, he wouldn't have known what they meant. When he was crossing into the shuttle, Ender noticed for the first time that the insignia on Major Anderson's uniform had changed. Yes, he's a colonel now, said Graf. In fact, Major Anderson has been placed in command of the battle school as of this afternoon. I have been reassigned to other duties. Ender did not ask him what they were. Graf strapped himself into a seat across the aisle from him. There was only one other passenger, a quiet man in civilian clothes, who was introduced as General Pace. Pace was carrying a briefcase, but Graf carried no more luggage than Ender did. Somehow that was comforting to Ender, that Graf also came away empty. Ender spoke only once on the voyage home. Why are we going home? he asked. 
I thought command school was in the asteroids somewhere. It is, said Graf. But the battle school has no facilities for docking long-range ships, so you get a short landside leave. Ender wanted to ask if that meant he could see his family. But suddenly, at the thought that it might be possible, he was afraid, and so he didn't ask. Just closed his eyes and tried to sleep. Behind him, General Pace was studying him, for what purpose Ender could not guess. It was a hot summer afternoon in Florida when they landed. Ender had been so long without sunlight that the light nearly blinded him. He squinted and sneezed and wanted to get back indoors. Everything was far away and flat. The ground, lacking the upward curve of battle school floors, seemed instead to fall away, so that on level ground Ender felt as though he were on a pinnacle. The pull of real gravity felt different, and he scuffed his feet when he walked. He hated it. He wanted to go back home, back to the battle school, the only place in the universe where he belonged. Arrested? Well, it's a natural thought. General Pace is the head of the military police. There was a death in the battle school. They didn't tell me whether Colonel Graf was being promoted or court-martialed, just transferred with orders to report to the Polemark. Is that a good sign or bad? Who knows? On the one hand, Ender Wigan not only survived, he passed a threshold. He graduated in dazzlingly good shape. You have to give old Graf credit for that. On the other hand, there's the fourth passenger on the shuttle, the one traveling in a bag. Only the second death in the history of the school. At least it wasn't a suicide this time. How is murder better, Major Imbu? It wasn't murder, Colonel. We have it on video from two angles. No one can blame Inda. But they might blame Graf. After all this is over, the civilians can rake over our files and decide what was right and what was not. Give us medals where they think we were right, take away our pensions and put us in jail where they decide we were wrong. At least they had the good sense not to tell Ender that the boy died. It's the second time, too. They didn't tell him about Stilson, either. The kid is scary. Ender Wigan isn't a killer. He just wins. Thoroughly. If anybody's going to be scared, let it be the buggers. Makes you almost feel sorry for them, knowing Ender's going to be coming after them. The only one I feel sorry for is Ender. But not sorry enough to suggest they ought to let up on him. I just got access to the material that Graf's been getting all this time about fleet movements, that sort of thing. I used to sleep easy at night. Time's getting shot? I shouldn't have mentioned it. I can't tell you secured information. I know. Let's leave it at this. They didn't get him to command school a day too soon, and maybe a couple of years too late. Children? Brother and sister. They'd layered themselves five times through the nets, writing for companies that paid for their memberships, that sort of thing. Devil of a time tracking them down. What are they hiding? Could be anything. The most obvious thing to hide, though, is their ages. The boy is 15, the girl is 12. Which one is Demosthenes? The girl, the 12-year-old. Pardon me, wait a minute. I don't really think it's funny, but I can't help but laugh. 
All this time we've been worried, all the time we've been trying to persuade the Russians not to take Demosthenes too seriously, we held up Locke as proof that Americans weren't all crazy warmongers. Brother and sister, pubescent. And the last name is Wigan. <laughs> Coincidence? The Wigan is a third. They are one and two. Oh, excellent. The Russians will never believe... That Demosthenes and Locke aren't as much under our control as the Wigan. Oh. Is there a conspiracy? Is someone controlling them? We have been able to detect no contact between these two children and any adult who might be directing them. Mm -hmm. So that is not to say that someone might not have invented some method you can't detect. It's hard to believe that two children... I interviewed Colonel Graf when he arrived from the battle school. It is his best judgment that nothing these children have done is out of their reach. Their abilities are virtually identical with the Wigan. Only their temperaments are different. What surprised him, however, was the orientation of the two personas. Demosthenes is definitely the girl, but Graf says the girl was rejected for battle school because she was too pacific, too conciliatory, and above all, too empathic. Hmm. Definitely not Demosthenes. And the boy has the soul of a jackal. Uh, wasn't it Locke that was recently praised as the only truly open mind in America? It's hard to know what's really happening. But Graf recommended, and I agree, that we should leave them alone, not expose them. Make no reports at this time except that we have determined that Locke and Demosthenes have no foreign connections and have no connections with any domestic group either, except those publicly declared on the nets. In other words, give him a clean bill of health. I know Demosthenes seems dangerous, in part because he, or she, has such a wide following. But I think it's significant that the one of the two of them who is most ambitious has chosen the moderate, wise persona. And they're still just talking. They have influence, but no power. In my experience, influence is power. If we ever find them getting out of line... We can easily expose them. Oh, only in the next few years. The longer we wait, the older they get, and the less shocking it is to discover who they are. You know what the Russian troop movements have been. There's always the chance that Demosthenes is right, in which case... Mm -hmm. We better have Demosthenes around. All right, we'll show them clean for now, but watch them. And I, of course, have to find ways of keeping the Russians calm. In spite of all her misgivings, Valentine was having fun being Demosthenes. Her column was now being carried on practically every news net in the country, and it was fun to watch the money pile up in her attorney's accounts. Every now and then, she and Peter would, in Demosthenes' name, donate a carefully calculated sum to a particular candidate or cause. Enough money that the donation would be noticed but not so much that the candidate would feel she was trying to buy a vote. She was getting so many letters now that her newsnet had hired a secretary to answer certain classes of routine correspondence for her. The fun letters from national and international leaders, sometimes hostile, sometimes friendly, always diplomatically trying to pry into Demosthenes's mind, those she and Peter read together— laughing in delight sometimes that people like this were writing to children and didn't know it. Sometimes, though, she was ashamed. Father was reading Demosthenes regularly. He never read Locke, or if he did, he said nothing about it. 
At dinner, though, he would often regale them with some telling point Demosthenes had made in that day's column. Peter loved it when Father did that. See, it shows that the common man is paying attention. But it made Valentine feel humiliated for Father. If he ever found out that all this time I was writing the columns he told us about, and that I didn't even believe half the things I wrote, he would be angry. And ashamed. At school, she once nearly got them in trouble when her history teacher assigned the class to write a paper contrasting the views of Demosthenes and Locke, as expressed in two of their early columns. Valentine was careless, and did a brilliant job of analysis. As a result, she had to work hard to talk the principal out of having her essay published on the very newsnet that carried Demosthenes's column. Peter was savage about it. You write too much like Demosthenes. You can't get published. I should kill Demosthenes now. You're getting out of control. If he raged about that blunder, Peter frightened her still more when he went silent. It happened when Demosthenes was invited to take part in the President's Council on Education for the Future, a blue ribbon panel that was designed to do nothing but do it splendidly. Valentine thought Peter would take it as a triumph, but he did not. Turn it down," he said. "Why should I?" she asked. "It's no work at all." And they even said that because of Demosthenes's well-known desire for privacy, they would net all the meetings. It makes Demosthenes into a respectable person, and and you love it that you got it before I did. Peter, it isn't you and me. It's Demosthenes and Locke. We made them up. They aren't real. Besides. This appointment doesn't mean they like Demosthenes better than Locke. It just means that Demosthenes has a much stronger base of support. You knew he would. Appointing him pleases a large number of Russian haters and chauvinists. It wasn't supposed to work this way. Locke was supposed to be the respected one. He is. Real respect takes longer than official respect. Peter, don't be angry at me because I've done well with the things you told me to do. But he was angry, for days, and ever since he had left her to think through all her own columns, instead of telling her what to write. He probably assumed that this would make the quality of Demosthenes's columns deteriorate. But if it did, no one noticed. Perhaps it made him even angrier that she never came to him weeping for help. She had been Demosthenes too long now to need anyone to tell her what Demosthenes would think about things. And as her correspondence with other politically active citizens grew, she began to learn things—information that simply wasn't available to the general public. Certain military people who corresponded with her dropped hints about things without meaning to, and she and Peter put them together to build up a fascinating and. Frightening picture of Warsaw Pact activity. They were indeed preparing for war—a vicious and bloody, earthbound war. Demosthenes wasn't wrong to suspect that the Second Warsaw Pact was not abiding by the terms of the League. And the character of Demosthenes gradually took on a life of his own. At times, she found herself thinking like Demosthenes at the end of a writing session. Agreeing with ideas that were supposed to be calculated poses.
and sometimes she read Peter's Locke essays and found herself annoyed at his obvious blindness to what was really going on. Perhaps it's impossible to wear an identity without becoming what you pretend to be. She thought of that, worried about it for a few days, and then wrote a column using that as a premise to show that politicians who toadied to the Russians in order to keep the peace would inevitably end up subservient to them in everything. It was a lovely bite at the party in power, and she got a lot of good mail about it. She also stopped being frightened of the idea of becoming, to a degree, Demosthenes. He's smarter than Peter and I ever gave him credit for, she thought. Graf was waiting for her after school. He stood leaning on his car. He was in civilian clothes, and he had gained weight, so she didn't recognize him at first, but he beckoned to her, and before he could introduce himself, she remembered his name. I won't write another letter, she said. I never should have written that one. You don't like medals, then, I guess. Not much. Come for a ride with me, Valentine. I don't ride with strangers. He handed her a paper. It was a release form, and her parents had signed it. I guess you're not a stranger. Where are we going? To see a young soldier who was in Greensboro, on leave. She got in the car. Ender's only ten years old, she said. I thought you told me last time he'd be eligible for leave when he was sixteen. He skipped a few grades. So he's doing well? Ask him when you see him. Why me? Why not the whole family? Graf sighed. Ender sees the world his own way. We had to persuade him to see you. As for Peter and your parents, he was not interested. Life at the battle school was intense. What do you mean? He's gone crazy? Oh, on the contrary. He's the sanest person I know. He's sane enough to know that his parents are not particularly eager to reopen a book of affection that was closed quite tightly four years ago. As for Peter, we didn't even suggest a meeting, and so he didn't have a chance to tell us to go to hell. They went out Lake Brant Road and turned off just past the lake, following a road that wound down and up until they came to a white clabbered mansion that sprawled along the top of a hill. It looked over Lake Brant on one side and a five-acre private lake on the other. This is the house that Medley's Misty Rub built, said Graf. The IF picked it up in a tax sale about 20 years ago. Ender insisted that his conversation with you should not be bugged. I promised him it wouldn't be, and to help inspire confidence, the two of you are going out on a raft he built himself. I should warn you, though. I intend to ask you questions about your conversation when it is finished. You don't have to answer, but I hope you will. I didn't bring a swimming suit. We can provide one. One that isn't bugged? At some point, there must be trust. For instance, 
I know who Demosthenes really is. She felt a thrill of fear run through her, but said nothing. I've known since I landed from the battle school. There are perhaps six of us in the world who know his identity. Not counting the Russians, God only knows what they know. But Demosthenes has nothing to fear from us. Demosthenes can trust our discretion. Just as I trust Demosthenes not to tell Locke what's going on here today. Mutual trust. We tell each other things. Valentine couldn't decide whether it was Demosthenes they approved of or Valentine Wigan. If the former, she would not trust them. If the latter, then perhaps she could. The fact that they did not want her to discuss this with Peter suggested that perhaps they knew the difference between them. She did not stop to wonder whether she herself knew the difference anymore. You said he built the raft. How long has he been here? Two months. We meant his leave to last only a few days, but you see, he doesn't seem interested in going on with his education. Oh, so I'm therapy again. This time we can't censor your letter. We're just taking our chances. We need your brother badly. Humanity is on the cusp. This time Val had grown up enough to know just how much danger the world was in, and she had been Demosthenes long enough that she didn't hesitate to do her duty. Where is he? Down at the boat slip. Where's the swimming suit? Ender didn't wave when she walked down the hill toward him, didn't smile when she stepped onto the floating boat slip, but she knew that he was glad to see her, knew it because of the way his eyes never left her face. You're bigger than I remembered, she said stupidly. You too, he said. I also remembered that you were beautiful. <laughs> Memory does play tricks on us. No, your face is the same, but I don't remember what beautiful means anymore. Come on, let's go out into the lake. She looked at the small raft with misgivings. Don't stand up on it, that's all, he said. He got on by crawling, spider-like, on toes and fingers. It's the first thing I built with my own hands since you and I used to build with blocks. Peter-proof buildings. She laughed. They used to take pleasure in building things that would stand up, even when a lot of the obvious supports had been removed. Peter, in turn, liked to remove a block here or there, so the structure would be fragile enough that the next person to touch it would knock it down. Peter was an ass, but he did provide some focus to their childhood. Peter's changed, she said. Let's not talk about him, said Ender. All right. She crawled onto the boat, not as deftly as Ender. He used a paddle to maneuver them slowly toward the center of the private lake. She noticed aloud that he was sun-browned, and strong. 
The strong part comes from battle school. The sun browning comes from this lake. I spend a lot of time on the water. When I'm swimming, it's like being weightless. I miss being weightless. Also, when I'm here on the lake, the land slopes up in every direction. Like living in a bowl. I've lived in a bowl for four years. So we're strangers now, aren't we, Valentine? No, she said. She reached out and touched his leg. Then suddenly, she squeezed his knee, right where he had always been most ticklish. But almost at the same moment, he caught her wrist in his hand. His grip was very strong, even though his hands were smaller than hers, and his own arms were slender and tight. For a moment, he looked dangerous, and then he relaxed. Oh, yes, he said. <laughs> you used to tickle me. Not anymore, she said, taking back her hand. Want to swim? In answer, she dropped herself over the side of the raft. The water was clear and clean, and there was no chlorine in it. She swam for a while, then returned to the raft and lay on it in the hazy sunlight. A wasp circled her, then landed on the raft beside her head. She knew it was there and ordinarily would have been afraid of it, but not today. Let it walk on this raft. Let it bake in the sun, as I'm doing. Then the raft rocked and she turned to see Ender calmly crushing the life out of the wasp with one finger. These are a nasty breed, Ender said. They sting you without waiting to be insulted first. He smiled. I've been learning about preemptive strategies. I'm very good. No one ever beat me. I'm the best soldier they ever had. Who would expect less, she said. You're a Wigan. Whatever that means, he said. It means that you are going to make a difference in the world. And she told him what she and Peter were doing. How old is Peter? Fourteen? Already planning to take over the world? He thinks he's Alexander the Great. And why shouldn't he be? Why shouldn't you be, too? We can't both be Alexander. Well, two faces of the same coin. And I am the metal in between. Even as she said it, she wondered if it was true. She had shared so much with Peter these last few years that even when she thought she despised him, she understood him. While Ender had been only a memory till now, a very small, fragile boy who needed her protection. Not this cold-eyed, dark-skinned manling who kills wasps with his fingers. Maybe he and Peter and I are all the same and have been all along. Maybe we only thought we were different from each other out of jealousy. The trouble with coins is when one face is up, the other face is down. And right now you think you're down. 
They want me to encourage you to go on with your studies. They aren't studies. They're games. All games from beginning to end, only they change the rules whenever they feel like it. He held up a limp hand. See the strings? But you can use them, too. Only if they want to be used. Only if they think they're using you. No, it, it's too hard. I don't want to play anymore. Just when I start to be happy, just when I think I can handle things, they stick in another knife. I keep having nightmares now that I'm here. I dream I'm in the battle room. Only instead of being weightless, they're playing games with gravity. They keep changing its direction, so I never end up on the wall I launched for. I never end up where I meant to go. And I keep pleading with them just to let me get to the door. And they won't let me out. They keep sucking me back in. She heard the anger in his voice and assumed it was directed at her. I suppose that's what I'm here for, to suck you back in. I didn't want to see you. They told me. I was afraid that I'd still love you. I hoped that you would. My fear, your wish, both granted. Ender, it really is true. We may be young, but we're not powerless. We play by their rules long enough, and it becomes our game. She giggled. <laughs> I'm on a presidential commission. <laughs> Peter is so angry. They don't let me use the nets. There isn't a computer in the place, except the household machines that run the security system and the lighting. Ancient things installed back a century ago when they made computers that didn't hook up with anything. They took away my army. They took away my desk. And you know something? I don't really mind. You must be good company for yourself. Not me. My memories. Maybe that's who you are. What you remember. No. My memories of strangers. My memories of the buggers. Valentine shivered, as if a cold breeze had suddenly passed. I refuse to watch the bugger vids anymore. They're always the same. I used to study them for hours, the way their ships move through space. And something funny that only occurred to me lying out here on the lake. I realized that all the battles in which buggers and humans fought hand to hand, all those are from the first invasion. All the scenes from the second invasion, when our soldiers are in IF uniforms, in those scenes, the buggers are always already dead, lying there, slumped over the controls, not a sign of struggle or anything. And Mazer Rackham's battle, well, they never show us any footage from that battle. Maybe it's a secret weapon. No, no, I don't care about how we killed them. It's the buggers themselves. I don't know anything about them, and yet someday I'm supposed to fight them. I've been through a lot of fights in my life, sometimes games, sometimes not games. Every time I've won because I could understand the way my enemy thought, from what they did. I could tell what they thought I was doing, how they wanted the battle to take shape. And I played off of that.
I'm very good at that, understanding how other people think. The curse of the Wigan children. She joked, but it frightened her, that Ender might understand her as completely as he did his enemies. Peter always understood her, or at least thought he did, but he was such a moral sinkhole that she never had to feel embarrassed when he guessed even her worst thoughts. But Ender, she did not want him to understand her. It would make her naked before him. She would be ashamed. You don't think you can beat the buggers unless you know them. It goes deeper than that. Being here alone with nothing to do, I've been thinking about myself, too, trying to understand why I hate myself so badly. No, Ender. Don't tell me no, Ender. It took me a long time to realize that I did, but believe me, I did. Do. And it came down to this. In the moment when I truly understand my enemy, understand him well enough to defeat him, then in that very moment, I also love him. I think it's impossible to really understand somebody, what they want, what they believe, and not love them the way they love themselves. And then in that very moment, when I love them, you beat them. For a moment, she was not afraid of his understanding. No, you don't understand. I destroy them. I make it impossible for them to ever hurt me again. I grind them and grind them until they don't exist. Of course you don't. And now the fear came again, worse than before. Peter has mellowed. But you, they've made you into a killer. Two sides of the same coin, but which side is which? I've really hurt some people, Val. I'm not making this up. I know, Ender. How will you hurt me? See what I'm becoming, Val, he said softly. Even you are afraid of me. And he touched her cheek so gently that she wanted to cry, like the touch of his soft baby hand when he was still an infant. She remembered that, the touch of his soft and innocent hand on her cheek. I'm not, she said, and in that moment it was true. You should be. No, I shouldn't. <laughs> You're going to shrivel up if you stay in the water. Also, the sharks might get you. He smiled. The sharks learned to leave me alone a long time ago. But he pulled himself onto the raft, bringing a wash of water across it as it tipped. It was cold on Valentine's back. Ender, Peter's going to do it. He's smart enough to take the time it takes, but he's going to win his way into power, if not right now, then later. I'm not sure yet whether that'll be a good thing or a bad thing. Peter can be cruel, 
but he knows the getting and keeping of power. And there are signs that once the bugger war is over, and maybe even before it ends, the world will collapse into chaos again. The Russian Empire was on its way to hegemony before the first invasion. If they try for it afterward, so even Peter might be a better alternative. You've been discovering some of the destroyer in yourself, Ender. Well, so have I. Peter didn't have a monopoly on that, whatever the testers thought. And Peter has some of the builder in him. He isn't kind, but he doesn't break every good thing he sees anymore. Once you realize that power will always end up with the sort of people who crave it, I think that there are worse people who could have it than Peter. With that strong a recommendation, I could vote for him myself. Sometimes it seems absolutely silly. A 14-year-old boy and his kid sister plotting to take over the world. She tried to laugh. It wasn't funny. We aren't just ordinary children, are we? None of us. Don't you sometimes wish we were? She tried to imagine herself being like the other girls at school, tried to imagine life if she didn't feel responsible for the future of the world. It would be so dull. I don't think so. And he stretched out on the raft, as if he could lie on the water forever. It was true. Whatever they did to Ender in the battle school, they had spent his ambition. He really did not want to leave the sun-warmed waters of this bowl. No, she realized. No, he believes that he doesn't want to leave here, but there is still too much of Peter in him. Or too much of me. None of us could be happy for long doing nothing. Or perhaps it's just that none of us could be happy living with no other company than ourself. So she began to prod again. What is the one name that everyone in the world knows? Mazer Rackham. And what if you win the next war, the way Mazer did? Mazer Rackham was a fluke, a reserve. Nobody believed in him. He just happened to be in the right place at the right time. But suppose you do it. Suppose you beat the buggers, and your name is known the way Mazer Rackham's name is known. Let somebody else be famous. Peter wants to be famous. Let him save the world. I'm not talking about fame, Ender. I'm not talking about power, either. I'm talking about accidents. Just like the accident that Mazer Rackham happened to be the one who was there when somebody had to stop the buggers. If I'm here, said Ender, then I won't be there. Somebody else will. Let them have the accident. His tone of weary unconcern infuriated her. I'm talking about my life, you self-centered little bastard. If her words bothered him, he didn't show it. Just lay there, eyes closed. When you were little and Peter tortured you, it's a good thing I didn't lie back and wait for Mom and Dad to save you. They never understood how dangerous Peter was. I knew you had the monitor, but I didn't wait for them either. 
Do you know what Peter used to do to me because I stopped him from hurting you? Shut up, Ender whispered. Because she saw that his chest was trembling. Because she knew that she had indeed hurt him. Because she knew that just like Peter, she had found his weakest place and stabbed him there. She fell silent. I can't beat them, Ender said softly. I'll be out there like Mazer Rackham one day, and everybody will be depending on me. And I won't be able to do it. If you can't enter, then nobody could. If you can't beat them, then they deserve to win because they're stronger and better than us. It won't be your fault. Tell it to the dead. If not you, then who? Anybody. Nobody, Ender. I'll tell you something. If you try and lose, then it isn't your fault. But if you don't try and we lose, then it's all your fault. You killed us all. <laughs> I'm a killer no matter what. What else should you be? Human beings didn't evolve brains in order to lie around on lakes. Killing's the first thing we learned. And a good thing we did, or we'd be dead, and the tigers would own the earth. I could never beat Peter. No matter what I said or did, I never could. So it came back to Peter. He was years older than you and stronger. So are the buggers. She could see his reasoning, or rather, his unreasoning. He could win all he wanted, but he knew in his heart that there was always someone who could destroy him. He always knew that he had not really won because there was Peter, undefeated champion. You want to beat Peter? she asked. No, he answered. Beat the buggers. Then come home and see who notices Peter Wigan anymore. Look him in the eye when all the world loves and reveres you. That'll be defeat in his eyes, Ender. That's how you win. You don't understand, he said. Yes, I do. No, you don't. I don't want to beat Peter. Then what do you want? I want him to love me. She had no answer. As far as she knew, Peter didn't love anybody. Ender said nothing more. Just lay there. And lay there. Finally, Valentine, the sweat dripping off her, the mosquitoes beginning to hover as the dusk came on, took one final dip in the water and then began to push the raft in to shore. Ender showed no sign that he knew what she was doing, but his irregular breathing told her that he was not asleep. When they got to the shore, she climbed onto the dock and said, I love you, Ender, more than ever, no matter what you decide. He didn't answer. She doubted that he believed her. She walked back up the hill, savagely angry at them for making her come to Ender like this. 
for she had, after all, done just what they wanted. She had talked Ender into going back into his training, and he wouldn't soon forgive her for that. Ender came in the door, still wet from his last dip in the lake. It was dark outside, and dark in the room where Graf waited for him. Are we going now? asked Ender. If you want to, Graf said. When? When you're ready. Ender showered and dressed. He was finally used to the way civilian clothes fit together, but he still didn't feel right without a uniform or a fly suit. I'll never wear a fly suit again, he thought. That was the battle school game, and I'm through with that. He heard the crickets chirping madly in the woods. In the near distance, he heard the crackling sound of a car driving slowly on gravel. What else should he take with him? He had read several of the books in the library, but they belonged to the house, and he couldn't take them. The only thing he owned was the raft he had made with his own hands. That would stay here, too. The lights were on now in the room where Graf waited. He, too, had changed clothing. He was back in uniform. They sat in the back seat of the car together, driving along country roads to come at the airport from the back. Back when the population was growing, said Graf, they kept this area in woods and farms, watershed land. The rainfall here starts a lot of rivers flowing, a lot of underground water moving around. The earth is deep, and right to the heart it's alive, Ender. We people only live on the top like the bugs that live on the scum of the still water near the shore. Ender said nothing. We uh, train our commanders the way we do because that's what it takes. They have to think in certain ways. They can't be distracted by a lot of things, so we isolate them. You. Keep you separate, and it works. But it's so easy when you never meet people, when you never know the earth itself, when you live with metal walls keeping out the cold of space. It's easy to forget why earth is worth saving, why the world of people might be worth the price you pay. So that's why you brought me here, thought Ender. With all your hurry, that's why you took three months, to make me love earth. Well, it worked. All your tricks worked. Valentine, too, she was another one of your tricks to make me remember that I'm not going to school for myself. Well, I remember. I may have used Valentine, said Graf, and you may hate me for it, Ender, but keep this in mind. It only works because what's between you, that's real, that's what matters. Billions of those connections between human beings, that's what you're fighting to keep alive. Ender turned his face to the window and watched the helicopters and dirigibles rise and fall. They took a helicopter to the IF spaceport at Stumpy Point. It was officially named for a dead hegemon, but everybody called it Stumpy Point, after the pitiful little town that had been paved over when they made the approaches to the vast islands of steel and concrete that dotted Pamlico Sound. There were still water birds taking their fastidious little steps in the salt water, where mossy trees dipped down as if to drink. It began to rain lightly, and the concrete was black and slick. It was hard to tell where it left off, and the sound began. Graf led him through a maze of clearances. Authority was a little plastic ball that Graf carried. He dropped it into chutes, and doors opened, and people stood up and saluted, and the chutes spat out the ball, and Graf went on. Ender noticed that, at first, everyone watched Graf. 
but as they penetrated deeper into the spaceport, people began watching Ender. At first, it was the man of real authority, they noticed, but later, where everyone had authority, it was his cargo they cared to see. Only when Graf strapped himself into the shuttle seat beside him did Ender realize Graf was going to launch with him. How far? asked Ender. How far are you going with me? Graf smiled thinly. All the way, Ender. Are they making you administrator of command school? No. So they had removed Graf from his post at battle school solely to accompany Ender to his next assignment. How important am I, he wondered. And like a whisper of Peter's voice inside his mind, he heard the question, How can I use this? He shuddered and tried to think of something else. Peter could have fantasies about ruling the world, but Ender didn't have them. Still thinking back on his life in battle school, it occurred to him that although he had never sought power, he had always had it. But he decided that it was a power born of excellence, not manipulation. He had no reason to be ashamed of it. He had never, except perhaps with Bean, used his power to hurt someone. And with Bean, things had worked well after all. Bean had become a friend, finally, to take the place of the lost ally, who in turn took the place of Valentine. Valentine, who was helping Peter in his plotting. Valentine, who still loved Ander, no matter what happened. And following that train of thought led him back to Earth, back to the quiet hours in the center of the clear water, ringed by a bowl of tree-covered hills. That is the Earth, he thought. Not a globe thousands of kilometers around, but a forest with a shining lake, a house hidden at the crest of the hill, high in the trees, a grassy slope leading upward from the water, fish leaping and birds strafing to take the bugs that lived at the border between water and sky. Earth was the constant noise of crickets and winds and birds, and the voice of one girl who spoke to him out of his far-off childhood the same voice that had once protected him from terror, the same voice that he would do anything to keep alive, even return to school, even leave earth behind again for another four or forty or four thousand years, even if she loved Peter more. His eyes were closed, and he had not made any sound but breathing. Still, Graf reached out and touched his hand across the aisle. Ender stiffened in surprise and Graf soon withdrew. But for a moment Ender was struck with the startling thought that perhaps Graf felt some affection for him. But no, it was just another calculated gesture. Graf was creating a commander out of a little boy. No doubt Unit 17 in the course of studies included an affectionate gesture from the teacher. The shuttle reached the IPL satellite in only a few hours, Interplanetary Launch was a city of 3,000 inhabitants breathing oxygen from the plants that also fed them, drinking water that had already passed through their bodies 10,000 times, living only to service the tugs that did all the ox work in the solar system and the shuttles that took their cargoes and passengers back to the Earth or the Moon. It was a world where, briefly, Ender felt at home since its floors sloped upward as they did in the battle school. Their tug was fairly new. The IF was constantly casting off its old vehicles and purchasing the latest models. It had just brought a vast load of drawn steel processed by a factory ship that was taking apart minor planets in the asteroid belt. The steel would be dropped to the moon, 
and now the tug was linked to fourteen barges. Graf dropped his ball into the reader again, however, and the barges were uncoupled from the tug. It would be making a fast run this time, to a destination of Graf's specification, not to be stated until the tug had cut loose from IPL. "'It's no great secret,' said the tug's captain. "'Whenever the destination is unknown, it's for ISL.' By analogy with IPL, Ender decided the letters meant interstellar launch. This time it isn't, said Graf. Where, then? I have command. I don't have security clearance even to know where that is, sir. Your ship knows, said Graf. Just let the computer have a look at this and follow the course it plots. He handed the captain the plastic ball. And I'm supposed to close my eyes during the whole voyage so I don't figure out where we are? Oh, no, of course not. I have command is on the minor planet Eros, which should be about three months away from here at the highest possible speed, which is the speed you'll use, of course. Eros? But I thought that the buggers burned that to a radioactive... Ah, uh, hmm. When did I receive security clearance to know this? You didn't. So when we arrive at Eros, you will undoubtedly be assigned to permanent duty there. The captain understood immediately and didn't like it. I'm a pilot, you son of a bitch, and you got no right to lock me up on a rock. I will overlook your derisive language to a superior officer. I do apologize, but my orders were to take the fastest available military tug. At the moment I arrived, that was you. It isn't as though anyone were out to get you. Cheer up. The war may be over in another fifteen years, and then the location of Eye of Command won't have to be a secret anymore. By the way, you should be aware, in case you're one of those who relies on visuals for docking, that Eros has been blacked out. Its albedo is only slightly brighter than a black hole. You won't see it. Thanks, said the captain. It was nearly a month into the voyage before he managed to speak civilly to Colonel Graff. The shipboard computer had a limited library. It was geared primarily to entertainment rather than education. So during the voyage, after breakfast and morning exercises, Ender and Graf would usually talk about command school, about Earth, about astronomy and physics, and whatever Ender wanted to know. And above all, he wanted to know about the buggers. We don't know much, said Graf. We've never had a live one in custody. Even when we caught one unarmed and alive, he died the moment it became obvious he was captured. Even the he is uncertain. The most likely thing, in fact, is that most bugger soldiers are females, but with uh, atrophied or vestigial sexual organs. We can't tell. It's their psychology that would be most useful to you, and we haven't exactly had a chance to interview them. Tell me what you know, and maybe I'll learn something that I need. So Graf told him. The buggers were organisms that could conceivably have evolved on Earth if things had gone a different way a billion years ago. At the molecular level, there were no surprises. Even the genetic material was the same. It was no accident that they looked insect-like to human beings, though their internal organs were now much more complex and specialized than any insects, and they had evolved an internal skeleton and shed most of the exoskeleton their physical structure still echoed their ancestors, who could easily have been very much like Earth's ants. But don't be fooled by that, said Graf. 
It's just as meaningful to say that our ancestors could easily have been very much like squirrels. If that's all we have to go on, that's something, said Ender. Squirrels never built starships, said Graf. There are usually a few changes on the way from gathering nuts and seeds to harvesting asteroids and putting permanent research stations on the moons of Saturn. The buggers could probably see about the same spectrum of light as human beings, and there was artificial lighting in their ships and ground installations. However, their antennae seemed almost vestigial. There was no evidence from their bodies that smelling, tasting, or hearing were particularly important to them. Of course, we can't be sure, but we can't see any way that they could have used sound for communication. The oddest thing of all was that they also don't have any communication devices on their ships, no radios, nothing that could ever transmit or receive any kind of signal. They communicate ship to ship. I've seen the videos. They talk to each other. True. But body to body, mind to mind. It's the most important thing we learn from them. Their communication, however they do it, is instantaneous. Light speed is no barrier. When Mazer Rackham defeated their invasion fleet, they all closed up shop at once. There was no time for a signal. Everything just stopped. Ender remembered the videos of uninjured buggers lying dead at their posts. We knew then that it was possible to communicate faster than light. That was seventy years ago. And once we knew what could be done, we did it. Not me, mind you. I wasn't born then. How is it possible? I can't explain philotic physics to you. Half of it nobody understands anyway. What matters is we built the Ansible. The official name is Philotic Parallax Instantaneous Communicator. But somebody dredged the name Ansible out of an old book somewhere and it caught on. Not that most people even know the machine exists. That means that ships could talk to each other even when they're across the solar system, said Ender. It means, said Graf, that ships could talk to each other even when they're across the galaxy. And the buggers can do it without machines. So they knew about their defeat the moment it happened, said Ender. I always figured. Everybody always said that they probably only found out that they lost the battle twenty-five years ago. It keeps people from panicking, said Graf. I'm telling you things you can't know, by the way, if you're ever going to leave IF Command before the war's over. Ender was angry. If you know me at all, you know I can keep a secret. It's a regulation. People under twenty-five are assumed to be a security risk. It's very unjust to a good many responsible children, but it helps narrow the number of people who might let something slip. What's all the secrecy for, anyway? Because we've taken some terrible risks, Ender, and we don't want to have every net on Earth second-guessing those decisions. You see, as soon as we had a working Ansible, we tucked it into our best starships and launched them to attack the buggers' home systems. Do we know where they are? Yes. So we're not waiting for the third invasion. We are the third invasion. We're attacking them. Nobody says that. Everybody thinks we have a huge fleet of warships waiting in the Comet Shield. Not one. We're quite defenseless there. What if they've sent a fleet to attack us? Then we're dead. But our ships haven't seen such a fleet, not a sign of one. Maybe they gave up and they're planning to leave us alone. Maybe. You've seen the videos. 
Would you bet the human race on the chance of them giving up and leaving us alone? Ender tried to grasp the amounts of time that had gone by. And the ships have been traveling for seventy years, some of them, and some for thirty years, and some for twenty. We make better ships now. We're learning how to play with space a little better. But every starship that is not still under construction is on its way to a bugger world or outpost. Every starship with cruisers and fighters tucked into its belly is out there approaching the buggers, decelerating, because they're almost there. The first ships we sent to the most distant objectives, the more recent ships to the closer ones. Our timing was pretty good. They'll all be arriving in combat range within a few months of each other. Unfortunately, our most primitive, outdated equipment will be attacking their home world. Still, they're armed well enough, so we have some weapons the buggers never saw before. When will they arrive? Within the next five years, Ender. Everything is ready at I have command. The Master Ansible is there, in contact with all our invasion fleet. The ships are all working, ready to fight. All we lack, Ender, is the battle commander, someone who knows what the hell to do with those ships when they get there. And what if no one knows what to do with them? We'll just do our best, with the best commander we can get. Me, thought Ender. They want me to be ready in five years. Colonel Graff, there isn't the chance I'll be ready to command a fleet in time. Graff shrugged. So... Do your best. If you aren't ready, we'll make do with what we've got. That eased Ender's mind, but only for a moment. Of course, Ender, what we've got right now is nobody. Ender knew that this was another of Graf's games. Make me believe that it all depends on me, so I can't slack off, so I push myself as hard as possible. Game or not, though, it might also be true, and so he would work as hard as possible. It was what Val had wanted of him. Five years. Only five years until the fleet arrives, and I don't know anything yet. I'll only be fifteen in five years, Ender said. Going on sixteen, said Graf. It all depends on what you know. Colonel Graf, he said, I just want to go back and swim in the lake. After we win the war, said Graf, or lose it, We'll have a few decades before they get back here to finish us off. The house will be there, and I promise you can swim to your heart's content. But I'll still be too young for security clearance. Well, we'll keep you under armed guard at all times. The military knows how to handle these things. They both laughed. And Ender had to remind himself that Graf was only acting like a friend, that everything he did was a lie or a cheat calculated to turn Ender into an efficient fighting machine. I'll become exactly the tool you want me to be, said Ender silently, but at least I won't be fooled into it. I'll do it because I choose to, not because you tricked me, you sly bastard. The tug reached Eros before they could see it. The captain showed them the visual scan, then superimposed the heat scan on the same screen. They were practically on top of it, only 4,000 kilometers out, but Eros, only 24 kilometers long, was invisible if it didn't shine with reflected sunlight. The captain docked the ship on one of the three landing platforms that circled Eros. It could not land directly because Eros had enhanced gravity, and the tug, designed for towing cargoes, could never escape the gravity well. He bade them an irritable goodbye. 
but Ender and Graf remained cheerful. The captain was bitter at having to leave his tug. Ender and Graf felt like prisoners finally paroled from jail. When they boarded the shuttle that would take them to the surface of Eros, they repeated perverse misquotations of lines from the videos that the captain had endlessly watched and laughed like madmen. The captain grew surly and withdrew by pretending to go to sleep. Then, almost as an afterthought, Ender asked Graf one last question. Why are we fighting the buggers? I've heard all kinds of reasons, said Graf. Because they have an overcrowded system and they've got to colonize. Because they can't stand the thought of other intelligent life in the universe. Because they don't think we are intelligent life. Because they have some weird religion. Because they watched our old video broadcasts and decided we were hopelessly violent. All kinds of reasons. What do you believe? It doesn't matter what I believe. I want to know anyway. They must talk to each other directly, Ender, mind to mind. What one thinks, another can also think. What one remembers, another can also remember. Why would they ever develop language? Why would they ever learn to read and write? How would they know what reading and writing were if they saw them, or signals, or numbers, or anything that we use to communicate? This isn't just a matter of translating from one language to another. They don't have a language at all. We used every means we could think of to communicate with them, but they don't even have the machinery to know we're signaling. And maybe they've been trying to think to us, and they can't understand why we don't respond. So the whole war is because we can't talk to each other? If the other fellow can't tell you his story... You can never be sure he isn't trying to kill you. What if we just left them alone? Ender, we didn't go to them first. They came to us. If they were going to leave us alone, they could have done it a hundred years ago, before the first invasion. Maybe they didn't know we were intelligent life. Maybe Ender, believe me. There's a century of discussion on this very subject. Nobody knows the answer. When it comes down to it, though, the real decision is inevitable. If one of us has to be destroyed, let's make damn sure we're the ones alive at the end. Our genes won't let us decide any other way. Nature can't evolve a species that hasn't a will to survive. Individuals might be bred to sacrifice themselves, but the race as a whole can never decide to cease to exist. So, if we can, we'll kill every last one of the buggers. And if they can, they'll kill every last one of us. As for me, said Ender, I'm in favor of surviving. I know, said Graf. That's why you're here. Took your time, didn't you, Graf? The voyage isn't short, but the three-month vacation seems excessive. I prefer not to deliver damaged merchandise. Ah, some men simply have no sense of hurry. Oh, well, it's only the fate of the world. Never mind me. You must understand our anxiety... We're here with the Ansible, receiving constant reports of the progress of our starships. We have to face the coming war every day, if you can call them days. He's such a very little boy. There's a greatness in him, a magnitude of spirit. A killer instinct, too, I hope. Yes. Now we've planned out an impromptu course of study for him, all subject to your approval, of course. I'll look at it. I don't pretend to know the subject matter, Admiral Shemraj Nagar. 
I'm only here because I know Ender. So don't be afraid that I'll try to second-guess the order of your presentation. Only the pace. How much can we tell him? Don't waste his time on the physics of interstellar travel. What about the Ansible? I already told him about that, and the fleets. I said they would arrive at their destination within five years. It seems there's very little left for us to tell him. You can tell him about the weapon systems. He has to know enough to make intelligent decisions. Ah, we can be useful after all. How very kind. We've devoted one of the five simulators to his exclusive use. What about the others? The other simulators? The other children. You were brought here to take care of Ender Wigan. Just curious. Remember, they were all my students at one time or another. And now they are all mine. They are entering into the mysteries of the fleet, Colonel Graf, to which you, as a soldier, have never been introduced. You make it sound like a priesthood. And a god, and a religion. Even those of us who command by Ansible know the majesty of flight among the stars. I can see you find my mysticism distasteful. I assure you that your distaste only reveals your ignorance. Soon enough, Ender Wigan will also know what I know. He will dance the graceful ghost dance through the stars, and whatever greatness there is within him will be unlocked, revealed, set forth before the universe for all to see. You have the soul of a stone, Colonel Graf, but I sing to a stone as easily as to another singer. You may go to your quarters and establish yourself. I have nothing to establish except the clothing I am wearing. You own nothing? They keep my salary in an account somewhere on earth. I've never needed it, except to buy civilian clothes on my vacation. A non-materialist, and yet you are unpleasantly fat. A gluttonous ascetic? Such a contradiction. When I'm tense, I eat. Whereas when you're tense, you spout solid waste. I like you, Colonel Graf. I think we shall get along. I don't much care, Admiral Shamrajnagar. I came here for Ender. And neither of us came here for you. Ender hated Eros from the moment he shuttled down from the tug. He had been uncomfortable enough on Earth where floors were flat. Eros was hopeless. It was a roughly spindle-shaped rock only six and a half kilometers thick at its narrowest point. Since the surface of the planetoid was entirely devoted to absorbing sunlight and converting it to energy, everyone lived in the smooth-walled rooms linked by tunnels that laced the interior of the asteroid. The closed-in space was no problem for Ender. What bothered him was that all the tunnel floors noticeably sloped downward. From the start, Ender was plagued by vertigo as he walked through the tunnels, especially the ones that girdled Eros's narrow circumference. It did not help that gravity was only half of Earth normal. The illusion of being on the verge of falling was almost complete. There was also something disturbing about the proportions of the rooms. The ceilings were too low for the width, the tunnels too narrow. It was not a comfortable place. Worst of all, though, was the number of people. Ender had no important memories of the scale of the cities of Earth. His idea of a comfortable number of people was the battle school, where he had known by sight every person who dwelt there. Here, though, ten thousand people lived within the rock. There was no crowding, despite the amount of space devoted to life support and other machinery. What bothered Ender was that he was constantly surrounded by strangers. They never let him come to know anyone. 
He saw the other command school students often, but since he never attended any class regularly, they remained only faces. He would attend a lecture here or there, but usually he was tutored by one teacher after another, or occasionally helped to learn a process by another student, whom he met once and never saw again. He ate alone or with Colonel Graff. His recreation was in a gym, but he rarely saw the same people in it twice. He recognized that they were isolating him again, this time not by setting the other students to hating him, but rather by giving them no opportunity to become friends. He could hardly have been close to most of them anyway. Except for Ender, the other students were all well into adolescence. So Ender withdrew into his studies and learned quickly and well. Astrogation and military history he absorbed like water. Abstract mathematics was more difficult, but whenever he was given a problem that involved patterns in space and time, he found that his intuition was more reliable than his calculation. He often saw at once a solution that he could only prove after minutes or hours of manipulating numbers. And for pleasure, there was the simulator, the most perfect video game he had ever played. Teachers and students trained him step by step in its use. At first, not knowing the awesome power of the game, he had played only at the tactical level, controlling a single fighter in continuous maneuvers to find and destroy an enemy. The computer-controlled enemy was devious and powerful, and whenever Ender tried a tactic, he found the computer using it against him within minutes. The game was a holographic display, and his fighter was represented only by a tiny light. The enemy was another light of a different color. And they danced and spun and maneuvered through a cube of space that must have been ten meters to his side. The controls were powerful. He could rotate the display in any direction, so he could watch from any angle, and he could move the center so that the duel took place nearer or farther from him. Gradually, as he became more adept at controlling the fighter's speed, direction of movement, orientation, and weapons, the game was made more complex. He might have two enemy ships at once. There might be obstacles, the debris of space. He began to have to worry about fuel and limited weapons. The computer began to assign him particular things to destroy or accomplish, so that he had to avoid distractions and achieve an objective in order to win. When he had mastered the one-fighter game, they allowed him to step back into the four-fighter squadron. He spoke commands to simulated pilots of four fighters. And instead of merely carrying out the computer's instructions, he was allowed to determine tactics himself, deciding which of several objectives was the most valuable, and directing his squadron accordingly. At any time, he could take personal command of one of the fighters for a short time, and at first he did this often. When he did, however, the other three fighters in his squadron were soon destroyed, and as the games became harder and harder, he had to spend more and more of his time commanding the squadron. When he did. He won more and more often. By the time he had been at command school for a year, he was adept at running the simulator at any of fifteen levels, from controlling an individual fighter to commanding a fleet. He had long since realized that, as the battle room was to battle school, so the simulator was to command school. The classes were valuable, but the real education was the game. People dropped in from time to time to watch him play. They never spoke. Hardly anyone ever did, unless they had something specific to teach him. The watchers would stay silently, watching him run through a difficult simulation, and then leave just as he finished. What are you doing? He wanted to ask, judging me. 
determining whether you want to trust the fleet to me? Just remember that I didn't ask for it. He found that a great deal of what he had learned at battle school transferred to the simulator. He would routinely reorient the simulator every few minutes, rotating it so that he didn't get trapped into an up-down orientation, constantly reviewing his position from the enemy point of view. It was exhilarating at last to have such control over the battle, to be able to see every point of it. It was also frustrating to have so little control, too, for the computer-controlled fighters were only as good as the computer allowed. They took no initiative. They had no intelligence. He began to wish for his toon leaders so that he could count on some of the squadrons doing well without having his constant supervision. At the end of his first year, he was winning every battle on the simulator and played the game as if the machine were a natural part of his body. One day, eating a meal with Graf, he asked, Is that all the simulator does? Is what all? The way it plays now. It's easy, and it hasn't got any harder for a while. Oh, Graf seemed unconcerned. But then Graf always seemed unconcerned. The next day, everything changed. Graf went away, and in his place they gave Ender a companion. He was in the room when Ender awoke the next morning. He was an old man, sitting cross-legged on the floor. Ender looked at him expectantly, waiting for the man to speak. He said nothing. Ender got up and showered and dressed, content to let the man keep his silence if he wanted. He had long since learned that when something unusual was going on, something that was part of someone else's plan and not his own, he would find out more information by waiting than by asking. Adults almost always lost their patience before Ender did. The man still hadn't spoken when Ender was ready and went to the door to leave the room. The door didn't open. Ender turned to face the man sitting on the floor. He looked to be about sixty, by far the oldest man Ender had seen on Eros. He had a day's growth of white whiskers that grizzled his face only slightly less than his close-cut hair. His face sagged a little, and his eyes were surrounded by creases and lines. He looked at Ender with an expression that bespoke only apathy. Ender turned back to the door and tried again to open it. All right, he said, giving up. Why is the door locked? The old man continued to look at him blankly. So this is a game, thought Ender. Well, if they want me to go to class, they'll unlock the door, and if they don't, they won't. I don't care. Ender didn't like games where the rules could be anything and the objective was known to them alone, so he wouldn't play. He also refused to get angry. He went through a relaxing exercise as he leaned on the door, and soon he was calm again. The old man continued to watch him impassively. It seemed to go on for hours, Ender refusing to speak, the old man seeming to be a mindless mute. Sometimes Ender wondered if he were mentally ill, escaped from some medical ward somewhere in Eros, living out some insane fantasy here in Ender's room. But the longer it went on, with no one coming to the door, no one looking for him, the more certain he became that this was something deliberate, meant to disconcert him. Ender did not want to give the old man the victory. To pass the time, he began to do exercises. Some were impossible without the gym equipment, but others, especially from his personal defense class, he could do without any aids. The exercises moved him around the room. He was practicing lunges and kicks. One move took him near the old man, 
as he had come near him before, but this time the old claw shot out and seized Ender's left leg in the middle of a kick. It pulled Ender off his feet and landed him heavily on the floor. Ender leapt to his feet immediately, furious. He found the old man sitting calmly, cross-legged, not breathing heavily, as if he had never moved. Ender stood poised to fight, but the other's immobility made it impossible for Ender to attack. What, kick the old man's head off? And then explain it to Graf. Oh, the old man kicked me and I had to get even. He went back to his exercises. The old man kept watching. Finally, tired and angry at this wasted day, a prisoner in his room, Ender went back to his bed to get his desk. As he leaned over to pick up the desk, he felt a hand jab roughly between his thighs and another hand grab his hair. In a moment he had been turned upside down. His face and shoulders were being pressed into the floor by the old man's knee, while his back was excruciatingly bent and his legs were pinioned by the old man's arm. Ender was helpless to use his arms. He couldn't bend his back to gain slack so he could use his legs. In less than two seconds, the old man had completely defeated Ender Wigan. All right, Ender gasped. You win. The man's knee thrust painfully downward. Since when, asked the man, his voice soft and rasping, do you have to tell the enemy when he has won? Ender remained silent. I surprised you once, Ender Wigan. Why didn't you destroy me immediately afterward? Just because I looked peaceful? You turned your back on me. Stupid. You have learned nothing. You have never had a teacher. Ender was angry now, and made no attempt to control or conceal it. I've had too many teachers. How was I supposed to know you turn out to be a... An enemy, Ender Wigan, whispered the old man. I am your enemy, the first one you've ever had who was smarter than you. There is no teacher but the enemy. No one but the enemy will teach you what the enemy is going to do. No one but the enemy will ever teach you how to destroy and conquer. Only the enemy shows you where you are weak. Only the enemy tells you where he is strong. And the rules of the game are what you can do to him or what you can stop him from doing to you. I am your enemy from now on. From now on. I am your teacher. Then the old man let Ender's legs fall. Because he still held Ender's head to the floor, the boy couldn't use his arms to compensate, and his legs hit the surface with a loud crack and a sickening pain. Then the old man stood and let Ender rise. Slowly, Ender pulled his legs under him with a faint groan of pain. He knelt on all fours for a moment, recovering. Then his right arm flashed out, reaching for his enemy. The old man quickly danced back, and Ender's hand closed on air as his teacher's foot shot forward to catch Ender on the chin. Ender's chin wasn't there. He was lying flat on his back, spinning on the floor, and during the moment that his teacher was off balance from his kick, Ender's feet smashed into the old man's other leg. He fell in a heap, but close enough to strike out and hit Ender in the face. Ender couldn't find an arm or a leg that held still long enough to be grabbed, and in the meantime, blows were landing on his back and arms. Ender was smaller. He couldn't reach past the old man's flailing limbs. Finally, he managed to pull away and scramble back near the door. The old man was sitting cross-legged again. But now the apathy was gone. He was 
smiling. Better this time, boy, but slow. You will have to be better with a fleet than you are with your body, or no one will be safe with you in command. Lesson learned? Ender nodded slowly. He ached in a hundred places. Good, said the old man. Then we'll never have to have such a battle again. All the rest with the simulator. I will program your battles now, not the computer. I will devise the strategy of your enemy, and you will learn to be quick and discover what tricks the enemy has for you. Remember, boy, from now on the enemy is more clever than you. From now on the enemy is stronger than you. From now on you are always about to lose. The old man's face grew serious again. You will be about to lose, Ender, but you will win. You will learn to defeat the enemy. He will teach you how. The teacher got up. In this school, it has always been the practice for a young student to be chosen by an older student. The two become companions, and the older boy teaches the younger one everything he knows. Always they fight, always they compete, always they are together. I have chosen you. Anders spoke as the old man walked to the door. You're too old to be a student. One is never too old to be a student of the enemy. I have learned from the buggers. You will learn from me. As the old man palmed the door open, Ender leaped into the air and kicked him in the small of the back with both feet. He hit hard enough that he rebounded onto his feet as the old man cried out and collapsed on the floor. The old man got up slowly, holding on to the door handle, his face contorted with pain. He seemed disabled, but Ender didn't trust him. Yet, in spite of his suspicion, he was caught off guard by the old man's speed. In a moment, he found himself on the floor near the opposite wall, his nose and lip bleeding where his face had hit the bed. He was able to turn enough to see the old man standing in the doorway, wincing and holding his back. The old man grinned. Ender grinned back. Teacher, he said, do you have a name? Mazer Rackham, said the old man. Then he was gone. From then on, Ender was either with Mazer Rackham or alone. The old man rarely spoke, but he was there. At meals, at tutorials, at the simulator, in his room at night. Sometimes Mazer would leave, but always when Mazer wasn't there, the door was locked and no one came in until Mazer returned. Ender went through a week in which he called him Jailer Rackham. Mazer answered to the name as readily as to his own and showed no sign that it bothered him at all. Ender soon gave it up. There were compensations. Mazer took Ender through the videos of the old battles from the first invasion and the disastrous defeats of the IF in the second invasion. These were not pieced together from the censored public videos, but whole and continuous. Since many videos were working in the major battles, they studied bugger tactics and strategies from many angles. For the first time in his life, a teacher was pointing out things that Ender had not already seen for himself. For the first time, Ender had found a living mind he could admire. "'Why aren't you dead?' Ender asked him. "'You fought your battle seventy years ago.' I don't think you're even sixty years old. Oh, the miracle of relativity, said Mazer. 
They kept me here for twenty years after the battle, even though I begged them to let me command one of the starships they launched against the bugger home planet and the bugger colonies. Then they uh, came to understand some things about the way soldiers behave in the stress of battle. What things? You've never been taught enough psychology to understand, enough to say that they realized that even though I would never be able to command the fleet, I'd be dead before the fleet even arrived. I was still the only person able to understand the things I understood about the buggers. I was, they realized, the only person who had ever defeated the buggers by intelligence rather than luck. They needed me here to teach the person who would command the fleet. So they sent you out in a starship, got you up to a relativistic speed, and then I turned around and came home. A very dull voyage, Ender. Fifty years in space. Officially, only eight years passed for me, but it felt like five hundred. All so I could teach the next commander everything I knew. Am I to be the commander, then? Let's say that you are our best bet at present. There are others being prepared, too? No. That makes me the only choice, then, doesn't it? Mazur shrugged. Except you, you're still alive, aren't you? Why not you? Mazur shook his head. Why not? You won before. I cannot be the commander for good and sufficient reasons. Show me how you beat the buggers, Mazur. Mazur's face went inscrutable. You've shown me every other battle seven times at least. I think I've seen ways to beat what the buggers did before, but you've never shown me how you actually did beat them. The video is a very tightly kept secret, Ender. I know. I've pieced it together partly. You with your tiny reserve force and their armada, those great big heavy-bellied starships launching their swarms of fighters. You dart in at one ship, fire at it, an explosion. That's where they always stop the clips. After that, it's just soldiers going into bugger ships and already finding them dead inside. Mazer grinned. So much for tightly kept secrets. Come on, let's watch the video. They were alone in the video room, and Ender palmed the door locked. All right, let's watch. The video showed exactly what Ender had pieced together. Mazer's suicidal plunge into the heart of the enemy formation, the single explosion, and then nothing. Mazer's ship went on, dodged the shockwave, and wove his way among the other bugger ships. They did not fire on him. They did not change course. Two of them crashed into each other and exploded, a needless collision that either pilot could have avoided. Neither made the slightest movement. Mazer sped up the action, skipped ahead. We waited for three hours, he said. Nobody could believe it. Then the IF ships began approaching the bugger starships. Marines began their cutting and boarding operations. The videos showed the buggers already dead at their posts. So you see, said Mazer. You already knew all there was to see. Why did it happen? Nobody knows. I have my personal opinions, but there are plenty of scientists who tell me I'm less than qualified to have opinions. You're the one who won the battle. I thought that qualified me to comment, too, but you know how it is. Xenobiologists and xenopsychologists can't accept the idea that a star pilot scooped them by sheer guesswork. I think they all hate me because, after they saw these videos, they had to live out the rest of their natural lives here on Eros. Security, you know. 
They weren't happy. Tell me. The buggers don't talk. They think to each other, and it's instantaneous, like the philotic effect, like the ansible. But most people always thought that meant a controlled communication, like language. I think you a thought, and then you answer me. I never believed that. It's too immediate, the way they respond together to things. You've seen the videos. They aren't conversing and deciding among possible courses of action. Every ship acts like part of a single organism. It responds the way your body responds during combat, different parts automatically, thoughtlessly doing everything they're supposed to do. They aren't having a mental conversation between people with different thought processes. All their thoughts are present, together, at once. A single person, and each bugger is like a hand or a foot. Yes. I wasn't the first person to suggest it, but I was the first person to believe it. And something else. Something so childish and stupid that the xenobiologists laughed me to silence when I said it after the battle. The buggers are bugs. They're like ants and bees. A queen. The workers. That was maybe a hundred million years ago, but that's how they started, that kind of pattern. It's a sure thing none of the buggers we saw had any way of making more little buggers, so when they evolved this ability to think together, wouldn't they still keep the queen? Wouldn't the queen still be the center of the group? Why would that ever change? So it's the queen who controls the whole group. I had evidence, too, not evidence that any of them could see. It wasn't there in the first invasion because that was exploratory, but the second invasion was a colony to set up a new hive or whatever. And so they brought a queen. The videos of the second invasion, when they were destroying our fleets out in the comet shell, he began to call them up and display the buggers' patterns. Show me the queen's ship. It was subtle. Ender couldn't see it for a long time. The bugger ships kept moving, all of them. There was no obvious flagship, no apparent nerve center. But gradually, as Mazer played the videos over and over again, Ender began to see the way that all the movements focused on radiated from a center point. The center point shifted, but it was obvious, after he looked long enough, that the eyes of the fleet, the eye of the fleet, the perspective from which all decisions were being made was one particular ship. He pointed it out. You see it. I see it. That makes two people out of all those who have seen this video. But it's true, isn't it? They make that ship move just like any other ship. They know it's their weak point. But you're right. That's the queen. But then you think that when you went for it, they would have immediately focused all their power on you. They could have blown you out of the sky. I know. That part I don't understand. Not that they didn't try to stop me, they were firing at me, but it's as if they really couldn't believe until it was too late that I would actually kill the queen. Maybe in their world, queens are never killed, only captured, only checkmated. I did something they didn't think an enemy would ever do. And when she died, the others all died? No, they just went stupid. The first ships we boarded, the buggers were still alive. 
organically. But they didn't move, didn't respond to anything, even when our scientists vivisected some of them to see if we could learn a few more things about buggers. After a while, they all died. No will. There's nothing in those little bodies when the queen is gone. Why don't they believe you? Because we didn't find a queen. She got blown to pieces. Fortunes of war. Biology takes a second place to survival. But some of them are coming around to my way of thinking. You can't live in this place without the evidence staring you in the face. What evidence is there in Eros? Ender, look around you. Human beings didn't carve this place. We like taller ceilings, for one thing. This was the bugger's advance post in the first invasion. They carved this place out before we even knew they were here. We're living in a bugger hive. But we already paid our rent. It cost the Marines a thousand lives to clear them out of these honeycombs, room by room. The buggers fought for every meter of it. Now Ender understood why the rooms had always felt wrong to him. I knew this place wasn't a human place. This was the treasure trove. If they had known we would win that first war, they probably would never have built this place. We learned gravity manipulation because they enhanced the gravity here. We learned efficient use of stellar energy because they blacked out this planet. In fact, that's how we discovered them. In a period of three days, Eros gradually disappeared from telescopes. We sent a tug to find out why. It found out. The tug transmitted its videos, including the buggers boarding and slaughtering the crew. It kept right on transmitting through the entire bugger examination of the boat. Not until they finally dismantled the entire tug did the transmission stop. It was their blindness. They never had to transmit anything by machine. And so with the crew dead, it didn't occur to them that anybody could be watching. Why did they kill the crew? Why not? To them, losing a few crew members would be like clipping your nails, nothing to get upset about. They probably thought they were routinely shutting down our communications by turning off the workers running the tug, not murdering living, sentient beings with an independent genetic future. Murder's no big deal to them. Only queen-killing, really, is murder, because only queen-killing closes off a genetic path. So they didn't know what they were doing. Don't start apologizing for them, Ender. Just because they didn't know they were killing human beings doesn't mean they weren't killing human beings. We do have a right to defend ourselves as best we can. And the only way we found that works is killing the buggers before they kill us. Think of it this way. In all the bugger wars so far, they've killed thousands and thousands of living, thinking beings. And in all those wars, we've killed only one. If you hadn't killed the Queen, Mazer, would we have lost the war? I'd say the odds would have been three to two against us. I still think I could have trashed their fleet pretty badly before they burnt us out. They have great response time and a lot of firepower, but we have a few advantages, too. Every single one of our ships contains an intelligent human being who's thinking on his own. Every one of us is capable of coming up with a brilliant solution to a problem— they can only come up with one brilliant solution at a time. The buggers think fast, but they aren't smart all over. But on our side, even when some incredibly timid and stupid commanders lost the major battles of the second invasion, 
Some of their subordinates were able to do real damage to the bugger fleet. What about when our invasion reaches them? Will we just get the queen again? The buggers didn't learn interstellar travel by being dumb. That was a strategy that could work only once. I suspect that we'll never get near a queen unless we actually make it to their home planet. After all, the queen doesn't have to be with them to direct a battle. The queen only has to be present to have little baby buggers. A second invasion was a colony. The queen was coming to populate the earth. But this time, no, that won't work. We'll have to beat them fleet by fleet. And because they have the resources of dozens of star systems to draw on, my guess is they'll outnumber us by a lot in every battle. Ender remembered his battle against two armies at once, and I thought they were cheating. When the real war begins, it'll be like that every time, and there won't be any gate I can go for. We've only got two things going for us, Ender. We don't have to aim particularly well. Our weapons have great spread. Then we aren't using the nuclear missiles from the first and second invasions. Dr. Device is much more powerful. Nuclear weapons, after all, were weak enough to be used on Earth at one time. The little doctor could never be used on a planet. Still, I wish I'd had one during the second invasion. How does it work? I don't know. Not well enough to build one. At the focal point of two beams, it sets up a field in which molecules can't hold together anymore. Electrons can't be shared. How much physics do you know at that level? Well, we spent most of our time on astrophysics, but I know enough to get the idea. The field spreads out in a sphere, but it gets weaker the farther it spreads. Except that where it actually runs into a lot of molecules, it gets stronger and starts over. The bigger the ship, the stronger the new field. So each time the field hits a ship, it sends out a new sphere. And if their ships are too close together, it can set up a chain that wipes them all out. Then the field dies down, the molecules come back together, and where you had a ship, you now have a lump of dirt with a lot of iron molecules in it. No radioactivity, no mess, just dirt. We may be able to trap them close together on the first battle, but they learn fast. They'll keep their distance from each other. So Dr. Device isn't a missile. I can't shoot around corners. That's right. Missiles wouldn't do any good now. We learned a lot from them in the first invasion, but they also learned from us how to set up the ecstatic shield, for instance. The little doctor penetrates the shield as if it weren't there. You can't see through the shield to aim and focus the beams, but since the generator of the ecstatic shield is always in the exact center, it isn't hard to figure it out. Why haven't I ever been trained with this? You always have. We just let the computer tend to it for you. Your job is to get into a superior strategic position and choose the target. The shipboard computers are much better at aiming the doctor than you are. Why is it called Dr. Device? When it was developed, it was called a Molecular Detachment Device, M.D. Device. Ender still didn't understand. M.D. The initials stand for Medical Doctor, too. M.D. Device, therefore, Dr. Device. It was a joke. 
Andrew didn't see what was funny about it. They had changed the simulator. He could still control the perspective and the degree of detail, but there were no ship's controls anymore. Instead, it was a new panel of levers and a small headset with earphones and a small microphone. The technician who was waiting there quickly explained how to wear the headset. But how do I control the ships? asked Andrew. Mazur explained. He wasn't going to control ships anymore. You've reached the next phase of your training. You have experience in every level of strategy, but now it's time for you to concentrate on commanding an entire fleet. As you worked with toon leaders in battle school, so now you will work with squadron leaders. You have been assigned three dozen such leaders to train. You must teach them intelligent tactics. You must learn their strengths and limitations. You must make them into a whole. When will they come here? They're already in place in their own simulators. You will speak to them through the headset. The new levers on your control panel enable you to see from the perspective of any of your squadron leaders. This more closely duplicates the conditions you might encounter in a real battle, where you will know only what your ships can see. How can I work with squadron leaders I never see? And why would you need to see them? To know who they are, how they think. You'll learn who they are and how they think from the way they work with the simulator. But even so, I think you won't be concerned. They're listening to you right now. Put on the headset so you can hear them. Ender put on the headset. Salam, said a whisper in his ears. A lie, said Ender. And me, the dwarf, Bean. And Petra and Dink, Crazy Tom, Shen, Hot Soup, Fly Molo, Karn Carby, all the best students Ender had fought with or fought against, every one that Ender had trusted in battle school. I didn't know you were here, he said. I didn't know you were coming. They've been flogging us through the simulator for three months now, said Dink. You'll find that I'm by far the best tactician, said Petra. Dink tries, but he has the mind of a child. So they began working together, each squadron leader commanding individual pilots and Ender commanding the squadron leaders. They learned many ways of working together as the simulator forced them to try different situations. Sometimes the simulator gave them a larger fleet to work with. Ender set them up then in three or four tunes that consisted of three or four squadrons each. Sometimes the simulator gave them a single starship with its twelve fighters, and he chose three squadron leaders with four fighters each. It was pleasure. It was play. The computer-controlled enemy was none too bright, and they always won despite their mistakes, their miscommunications. But in the three weeks they practiced together, Ender came to know them very well. Dink, who deftly carried out instructions but was slow to improvise, Bean, who couldn't control large groups of ships effectively, but could use a few like a scalpel, reacting beautifully to anything the computer threw at him. A lie, who was almost as good a strategist as Ender, and could be entrusted to do well with half a fleet and only vague instructions. The better Ender knew them, the faster he could deploy them, the better he could use them. The simulator would display the situation on the screen. In that moment, Ender learned for the first time what his own fleet would consist of and how the enemy fleet was deployed. It took him only a few minutes now to call the squadron leaders that he needed, assign them to certain ships or groups of ships, and give them their assignments. Then, as the battle progressed, he would skip from one leader's point of view to another's, making suggestions and occasionally giving orders as the need arose. 
Since the others could see only their own battle perspective, he would sometimes give them orders that made no sense to them. But they, too, learned to trust Ender. If he told them to withdraw, they withdrew, knowing that either they were in an exposed position or their withdrawal might entice the enemy into a weakened posture. They also knew that Ender trusted them to do as they judged best when he gave them no orders. If their style of fighting were not right for the situation they were placed in, Ender would not have chosen them for that assignment. The trust was complete, the working of the fleet quick and responsive. And at the end of three weeks, Mazur showed him a replay of their most recent battle, only this time from the enemy's point of view. This is what he saw as you attacked. What does it remind you of? The quickness of response, for instance. We look like a bugger fleet. You match the mender. You're as fast as they are. And here, look at this. Ender watched as all his squadrons moved at once, each responding to its own situation, all guided by Ender's overall command, but daring, improvising, fainting, attacking with an independence no bugger fleet had ever shown. The bugger hive mind is very good, but it can only concentrate on a few things at once. All your squadrons can concentrate a keen intelligence on what they're doing, and what they've been assigned to do is also guided by a clever mind. So you see that you do have some advantages. Superior, though not irresistible, weaponry, comparable speed, and greater available intelligence. These are your advantages. Your disadvantage is that you will always, always be outnumbered. And after each battle, your enemy will learn more about you, how to fight you, and those changes will be put into effect instantly. Ender waited for his conclusion. So, Ender, we will now begin your education. We have programmed the computer to simulate the kinds of situations we might expect in encounters with the enemy. We are using the movement patterns we saw in the second invasion. But instead of mindlessly following these same patterns, I will be controlling the enemy simulation. At first, you will see easy situations that you are expected to win handily. Learn from them, because I will always be there, one step ahead of you, programming more difficult and advanced patterns into the computer so that your next battle is more difficult, so that you are pushed to the limit of your abilities. And beyond? The time is short. You must learn as quickly as you can. When I gave myself to starship travel, just so I would still be alive when you appeared, my wife and children all died and my grandchildren were my own age when I came back. I had nothing to say to them. I was cut off from all the people that I loved, everything I knew, living in this alien catacomb, and forced to do nothing of importance but teach student after student, each one so hopeful, each one ultimately a weakling, a failure. I teach, I teach, but no one learns. You, too, have great promise, like so many students before you, but the seeds of failure may be in you, too. It's my job to find them, to destroy you if I can. And believe me, Ender, if you can be destroyed, I can do it. So I'm not the first. No, of course you're not. But you're the last. If you don't learn, there will be no time to find anyone else. So I have hope for you if only because you are the only one left to hope for. What about the others, my squadron leaders? Well, which of them is fit to take your place? A lie? 
be honest. Ender had no answer then. I am not a happy man, Ender. Humanity does not ask us to be happy. It merely asks us to be brilliant on its behalf. Survival first, then happiness, as we can manage it. So, Ender, I hope you do not bore me during your training with complaints that you are not having fun. Take what pleasure you can in the interstices of your work, but your work is first. Learning is first. Winning is everything, because without it there is nothing. When you can give me back my dead wife, Ender, then you can complain to me about what this education cost you. I wasn't trying to get out of anything. Oh, but you will, Ender, because I am going to grind you down to dust, if I can. I am going to hit you with everything I can imagine, and I will have no mercy, because when you face the buggers, they will think of things I can't imagine, and compassion for human beings is impossible for them. You can't grind me down, Mazer. Oh, can't I? Because I'm stronger than you. Mazer smiled. We'll see about that, Ender. Mazer wakened him before morning. The clock said, oh, three forty. And Ender felt groggy as he padded along the corridor behind Mazer. Early to bed and early to rise, Mazer intoned, makes a man stupid and blind in the eyes. He had been dreaming that buggers were vivisecting him, only instead of cutting open his body, they were cutting up his memories and displaying them like holographs and trying to make sense of them. It was a very odd dream, and Ender couldn't easily shake loose of it, even as he walked through the tunnels to the simulator room. The buggers tormented him in his sleep, and Mazer wouldn't leave him alone when he was awake. Between the two of them he had no rest. Ender forced himself awake. Apparently Mazer meant it when he said he meant to break Ender down, and forcing him to play when tired and sleepy was just the sort of cheap and easy trick Ender should have expected. Well, today it wouldn't work. He got to the simulator and found his squadron leaders already on the wire, waiting for him. There was no enemy yet, so he divided them into two armies and began a mock battle, commanding both sides so he could control the test that each of his leaders was going through. They began slowly, but soon were vigorous and alert. Then the simulator field went blank. The ships disappeared, and everything changed at once. At the near edge of the simulator field, they could see the shapes drawn in holographic light of three starships from the human fleet. Each would have twelve fighters. The enemy, obviously aware of the human presence, had formed the globe with a single ship at the center. Ender was not fooled. It would not be a queen ship. The buggers outnumbered Ender's fighter force by two to one, but they were also grouped much closer together than they should have been. Dr. Device would be able to do much more damage than the enemy expected. Ender selected one starship, made it blink in the simulator field, and spoke into the microphone. Ali, this is yours. Assign Petra and Vlad to the fighters as you wish. He assigned the other two starships with their fighter forces, except for one fighter from each starship that he reserved for Bean. Slip the wall and get below them, Bean, unless they start chasing you. Then run back to the reserves for safety. Otherwise, get in a place where I can call on you for quick results. Ali, form your force into a compact assault at one point on their globe. Don't fire until I tell you. This is maneuver only. This one's easy, Ender, Ali said. 
It's easy, so why not be careful? I'd like to do this without the loss of a single ship. Ender grouped his reserves in two forces that shadowed a lie at a distance. Bean was already off the simulator, though Ender occasionally flipped to Bean's point of view to keep track of where he was. It was a lie, however, who played the delicate game with the enemy. He was in a bullet-shaped formation and probed the enemy globe. Wherever he came near, the bugger ships pulled back as if to draw him in toward the ship in the center. A lie skimmed to the side. The bugger ships kept up with him, withdrawing wherever he was close, returning to the sphere pattern when he had passed. Faint, withdraw, skim the globe to another point, withdraw again, faint again. And then Ender said, Go on in, Eli. His bullet started in, while he said to Ender, You know they'll just let me through and surround me and eat me alive. Just ignore that ship in the middle, whatever you say, boss. Sure enough, the globe began to contract. Ender brought the reserves forward. The enemy ships concentrated on the side of the globe nearer the reserves. Attack them there, where they're most concentrated, Ender said. This defies 4,000 years of military history, said Eli, moving his fighters forward. We're supposed to attack where we outnumber them. In this simulation, they obviously don't know what our weapons can do. It'll only work once, but let's make it spectacular. Fire at will. Eli did. The simulation responded beautifully. First one or two then a dozen, then most of the enemy ships exploded in dazzling light as the field leapt from ship to ship in the tight formation. Stay out of the way, Ender said. The ships on the far side of the globe formation were not affected by the chain reaction, but it was a simple matter to hunt them down and destroy them. Bean took care of the stragglers that tried to escape toward his end of space. The battle was over. It had been easier than most of their recent exercises. Mazur shrugged when Ender told him so. This is a simulation of a real invasion. There had to be one battle in which they didn't know what we could do. Now your work begins. Try not to be too arrogant about the victory. I'll give you the real challenges soon enough. Ender practiced ten hours a day with his squadron leaders, but not all at once. He gave them a few hours in the afternoon to rest— Simulated battles under Mazur's supervision came every two or three days, and as Mazur had promised, they were never so easy again. The enemy quickly abandoned its attempt to surround Ender, and never again grouped its forces closely enough to allow a chain reaction. There was something new every time, something harder. Sometimes Ender had only a single starship and eight fighters. Once the enemy dodged through an asteroid belt— Sometimes the enemy left stationary traps, large installations that blew up if Ender brought one of his squadrons too close, often crippling or destroying some of Ender's ships. You cannot absorb losses, Mazur shouted at him after one battle. When you get into the real battle, you won't have the luxury of an infinite supply of computer-generated fighters. You will have what you brought with you and nothing more. Now get used to fighting without unnecessary waste. It wasn't unnecessary waste, Ender said. I can't win battles if I'm so terrified of losing a ship that I never take any risks. Mazur smiled. Excellent, Ender. You're beginning to learn. But in a real battle, you would have superior officers and, worst of all, civilians shouting those things at you. Now, if the enemy had been at all bright, they would have caught you here and taken Tom's squadron. 
Together they went over the battle. In the next practice, Ender would show his leaders what Mazer had shown him, and they'd learn to cope with it the next time they saw it. They thought they had been ready before, that they had worked smoothly together as a team. Now, though, having fought through real challenges together, they all began to trust each other more than ever, and battles became exhilarating. They told Ender that the ones who weren't actually playing would come into the simulator rooms and watch. Ender imagined what it would be like to have his friends there with him, cheering or laughing or gasping with apprehension. Sometimes he thought it would be a great distraction, but other times he wished for it with all his heart. Even when he had spent his days lying out in the sunlight on a raft in a lake, he had not been so lonely. Mazer Rackham was his companion, was his teacher, but was not his friend. He made no complaint, though. Mazer had told him there would be no pity, and his private unhappiness meant nothing to anyone. Most of the time it meant nothing even to Ender. He kept his mind on the game, trying to learn from the battles and not just the particular lessons of that battle, but what the buggers might have done if they had been more clever, and how Ender would react if they did it in the future. He lived with past battles and future battles both, waking and sleeping, and he drove his squadron leaders with an intensity that occasionally provoked rebelliousness. "'You're too kind to us,' said a lie one day. "'Why don't you get annoyed with us for not being brilliant every moment of every practice?' If you keep coddling us like this, we'll think you like us. Some of the others laughed into their microphones. Ender recognized the irony, of course, and answered with a long silence. When he finally spoke, he ignored Elias' complaint. Again, he said, and this time without self-pity. They did it again, and did it right. But as their trust in Ender as a commander grew, their friendship, remembered from the battle school days, gradually disappeared. It was to each other that they became close. It was with each other that they exchanged confidences. Ender was their teacher and commander, as distant from them as Mazer was from him, and as demanding. They fought all the better for it, and Ender was not distracted from his work. At least not while he was awake. As he drifted off to sleep each night, it was with thoughts of the simulator playing through his mind. But in the night he thought of other things. Often he remembered the corpse of the giant decaying steadily. He did not remember it, though, in the pixels of the picture on his desk. Instead, it was real, the faint odor of death still lingering near it. Things were changed in his dreams. The little village that had grown up between the giant's ribs was composed of buggers now, and they saluted him gravely, like gladiators greeting Caesar before they died for his entertainment. He did not hate the buggers in his dream, and even though he knew that they had hidden their queen from him, he did not try to search for her. He always left the giant's body quickly, and when he got to the playground, the children were always there, wolven and mocking. They wore faces that he knew, sometimes Peter and sometimes Bonzo, sometimes Stilson and Bernard. Just as often, though, the savage creatures were Ali and Shen, Dink and Petra, Sometimes one of them would be Valentine, and in his dream he also shoved her under the water and waited for her to drown. She writhed in his hands, fought to come up, but at last was still. He dragged her out of the lake and onto the raft where she lay with her face in the rictus of death. 
He screamed and wept over her, crying again and again that it was a game, a game he was only playing. Then Mazer Rackham shook him awake. You were calling out in your sleep, he said. Sorry, Ender said. Never mind. It's time for another battle. Steadily the pace increased. There were usually two battles a day now, and Ender held practices to a minimum. He would use the time while the others rested to pore over the replays of past games, trying to spot his own weaknesses, trying to guess what would happen next. Sometimes he was fully prepared for the enemy's innovations, sometimes he was not. I think you're cheating, Ender told Mazer one day. Oh? You can observe my practice sessions. You can see what I'm working on. You seem to be ready for everything I do. Most of what you see is computer simulations, Mazer said. The computer is programmed to respond to your innovations only after you use them once in battle. Then the computer is cheating. You need to get more sleep, Ender. But he could not sleep. He lay awake longer and longer each night, and his sleep was less restful. He woke too often in the night. Whether he was waking up to think more about the game or to escape from his dreams, he wasn't sure. It was as if someone rode him in his sleep, forcing him to wander through his worst memories, to live in them again as if they were real. Nights were so real that days began to seem dreamlike to him. He began to worry that he would not think clearly enough, that he would be too tired when he played. Always, when the game began, the intensity of it awoke him. But if his mental abilities began to slip, he wondered, would he notice it? And he seemed to be slipping. He never had a battle anymore in which he did not lose at least a few fighters. Several times the enemy was able to trick him into exposing more weakness than he meant to. Other times the enemy was able to wear him down by attrition until his victory was as much a matter of luck as strategy. Mazer would go over the game with a look of contempt on his face. Look at this, he would say. You didn't have to do this. And Ender would return to practice with his leaders, trying to keep up their morale, but sometimes letting slip his disappointment with their weaknesses, the fact that they made mistakes. Sometimes we make mistakes, Petra whispered to him once. It was a plea for help. And sometimes we don't, Ender answered her. If she got help, it would not be from him. He would teach, let her find her friends among the others. Then came a battle that nearly ended in disaster. Petra led her force too far. They were exposed, and she discovered it in a moment when Ender wasn't with her. In only a few moments she had lost all but two of her ships. Ender found her then, ordered her to move them in a certain direction. She didn't answer. There was no movement, and in a moment those two fighters too would be lost. Ender knew at once that he had pushed her too hard. Because of her brilliance, he had called on her to play far more often and under much more demanding circumstances than all but a few of the others. But he had no time now to worry about Petra or to feel guilty about what he had done to her. He called on Crazy Tom to command the two remaining fighters, then went on, trying to salvage the battle. Petra had occupied a key position, and now all of Ender's strategy came apart. If the enemy had not been too eager and clumsy in exploiting their advantage, Ender would have lost. But Shen was able to catch a group of the enemy in too tight a formation and took them out with a single chain reaction. Crazy Tom brought his two surviving fighters in through the gap and caused havoc with the enemy, 
and though his ships and Shen's as well were finally destroyed, Fly Molo was able to mop up and complete the victory. At the end of the battle, he could hear Petra crying out, trying to get a microphone. Tell him, I'm sorry, I was just so tired, I couldn't think, that was all. Tell Ender, I'm sorry. She was not there for the next few practices, and when she did come back, she was not as quick as she had been, not as daring. Much of what had made her a good commander was lost. Ender couldn't use her anymore, except in routine, closely supervised assignments. She was no fool. She knew what had happened. But she also knew that Ender had no other choice, and told him so. The fact remained that she had broken, and she was far from being the weakest of his squad leaders. It was a warning. He could not press his commanders more than they could bear. Now, instead of using his leaders whenever he needed their skills, he had to keep in mind how often they had fought. He had to spell them off, which meant that sometimes he went into battle with commanders he trusted a little less. As he eased the pressure on them, he increased the pressure on himself. Late one night he woke up in pain. There was blood on his pillow, the taste of blood in his mouth. His fingers were throbbing. He saw that in his sleep he had been gnawing on his own fist. The blood was still flowing smoothly. Mazer, he called. Rackham woke up and called at once for a doctor. As the doctor treated the wound, Mazer said, I don't care how much you eat, Ender. Self-cannibalism won't get you out of this school. I was asleep, Ender said. I don't want to get out of command school. Good. The others, the ones who didn't make it, what are you talking about? Before me. Your other students who didn't make it through the training, what happened to them? They didn't make it, that's all. We don't punish the ones who fail. They just don't go on. Like Bonzo? Bonzo. He went home. Not like Bonzo. What then? What happened to them? When they failed? Why does it matter, Ender? Ender didn't answer. None of them failed at this point in their course, Ender. You made a mistake with Petra. She'll recover. But Petra is Petra, and you are you. Part of what I am is her. Is what she made me. You won't fail, Ender. Not this early in the course. You've had some tight ones, but you've always won. You don't know what your limits are yet. But if you've reached them already, you're a good deal feebler than I thought. Do they die? Who? The ones who fail? No, they don't die. Good heavens, boy, you're playing games. I think that Bonzo died. I dreamed about it last night. I remembered the way he looked after I jammed his face with my head. I think I must have pushed his nose back into his brain. The blood was coming out of his eyes. I think he was dead right then. It was just a dream. Mazer... I don't want to keep dreaming these things. I'm afraid to sleep. I keep thinking of things that I don't want to remember. My whole life keeps playing out as if I were a recorder and someone else wanted to watch the most terrible parts of my life. We can't drug you if that's what you're hoping for. I'm sorry if you have bad dreams. Should we leave the light on at night? Don't make fun of me, Ender said. I'm afraid I'm going crazy. The doctor was finished with the bandage. Mazer told him he could go. He went. Are you really afraid of that? Mazer asked. Ender thought about it and wasn't sure. In my dreams, said Ender, 
I'm never sure whether I'm really me. Strange dreams are a safety valve, Ender. I'm putting you under a little pressure for the first time in your life. Your body is finding ways to compensate, that's all. You're a big boy now. It's time to stop being afraid of the night. He decided then that he would never tell Mazur about his dreams again. The days wore on, with battles every day, until at last Ender settled into the routine of the destruction of himself. He began to have pains in his stomach. They put him on a bland diet, but soon he didn't have an appetite for anything at all. Eat, Mazur said, and Ender would mechanically put food in his mouth. But if nobody told him to eat, he didn't eat. Two more of his squadron leaders collapsed the way that Petra had. The pressure on the rest became all the greater. The enemy outnumbered them by three or four to one in every battle now. The enemy also retreated more readily when things went badly, regrouping to keep the battle going longer and longer. Sometimes battles lasted for hours before they finally destroyed the last enemy ship. Ender began rotating his squadron leaders within the same battle, bringing in fresh and rested ones to take the place of those who were beginning to get sluggish. "'You know,' said Bean one time as he took over command of Hot Soup's four remaining fighters, "'this game isn't quite as fun as it used to be.' Then one day in practice, as Ender was drilling his squadron leaders, the room went black, and he woke up on the floor with his face bloody where he had hit the controls. They put him to bed then and for three days he was very ill. He remembered seeing faces in his dreams, but they weren't real faces, and he knew it even while he thought he saw them. He thought he saw Valentine sometimes, and sometimes Peter, sometimes his friends from the battle school, and sometimes the buggers vivisecting him. Once it seemed very real when he saw Colonel Graff bending over him, speaking softly to him like a kind father. But then he woke up and found only his enemy. Mazer Rackham. I'm awake, said Ender. So I see, Mazer answered. Took you long enough. You have a battle today. So Ender got up and fought the battle and won it. But there was no second battle that day, and they let him go to bed earlier. His hands were shaking as he undressed. During the night he thought he felt hands touching him gently, hands with affection in them and gentleness. He dreamed he heard voices. You haven't been kind to him. That wasn't the assignment. How long can he go on? He's breaking down. Long enough, it's nearly finished. So soon, a few days, and then he's through. How will he do when he's already like this? Fine. Even today, he fought better than ever. In his dream, the voices sounded like Colonel Graff and Mazer Rackham. But that was the way dreams were. The craziest things could happen, because he dreamed he heard one of the voices saying, I can't bear to see what this is doing to him. And the other voice answered, I know. I love him too. And then they changed into Valentine and a lie. And in his dream they were burying him. Only a hill grew up where they laid his body down, and he dried out, and became a home for buggers like the giant was. All dreams. If there was love or pity for him, it was only in his dreams. He woke up and fought another battle and won. Then he went to bed and slept again and dreamed again, and then he woke up and won again and slept again, and he hardly noticed when waking became sleeping, nor did he care. The next day was his last day in command school, though he didn't know it. Mazer Rackham was not in the room with him when he woke up, 
He showered and dressed and waited for Mazer to come unlock the door. He didn't come. Ander tried the door. It was open. Was it an accident that Mazer had let him free this morning? No one with him to tell him he must eat, he must go to practice, he must sleep. Freedom! The trouble was he didn't know what to do. He thought for a moment that he might find his squadron leaders, talk to them face to face, but he didn't know where they were. They could be twenty kilometers away for all he knew. So, after wandering through the tunnels for a little while, he went to the mess hall and ate breakfast near a few marines who were telling dirty jokes that Ender could not begin to understand. Then he went to the simulator room for practice. Even though he was free, he could not think of anything else to do. Mazer was waiting for him. Ender walked slowly into the room. His step was slightly shuffling, and he felt tired and dull. Mazer frowned. Are you awake, Ender? There were other people in the simulator room. Ender wondered why they were there, but didn't bother to ask. It wasn't worth asking. No one would tell him anyway. He walked to the simulator controls and sat down, ready to start. Ender Wigan, said Mazer. Please turn around. Today's game needs a little explanation. Ender turned around. He glanced at the men gathered at the back of the room, most of them he had never seen before. Some were even dressed in civilian clothes. He saw Anderson and wondered what he was doing there, uh, who was taking care of the battle school if he was gone. He saw Graf and remembered the lake in the woods outside Greensboro and wanted to go home. Take me home, he said silently to Graf. In my dream you said you loved me. Take me home. But Graf only nodded to him, a greeting, not a promise, and Anderson acted as though he didn't know him at all. Pay attention, please, Ender. Today is your final examination in command school. These observers are here to evaluate what you have learned. If you prefer not to have them in the room, we'll have them watch on another simulator. They can stay. Final examination. After today, perhaps he could rest. For this to be a fair test of your ability, not just to do what you have practiced many times, but also to meet challenges you have never seen before, today's battle introduces a new element. It is staged around the planet. This will affect the enemy's strategy and will force you to improvise. Please concentrate on the game today. Ender beckoned Mazer closer and asked him quietly, Am I the first student to make it this far? If you win today, Ender, you will be the first student to do so. More than that, I am not at liberty to say. Well, I am at liberty to hear it. You can be as petulant as you want tomorrow. Today, though, I'd appreciate it if you would keep your mind on the examination. Let's not waste all that you've already done. Now, how will you deal with the planet? I have to get someone behind it, or it's a blind spot. True. And the gravity is going to affect fuel levels, cheaper to go down than up? Yes. Does the little doctor work against the planet? Mazer's face went rigid. Ender, the buggers never deliberately attacked a civilian population in either invasion. You decide whether it would be wise to adopt a strategy that would invite reprisals. Is the planet the only new thing? 
Can you remember the last time I've given you a battle with only one new thing? Let me assure you, Ender, that I will not be kind to you today. I have a responsibility to the fleet not to let a second-rate student graduate. I will do my best against you, Ender, and I have no desire to coddle you. Just keep in mind everything you know about yourself and everything you know about the buggers, and you have a fair chance of amounting to something. Mazer left the room. Ender spoke into the microphone. Are you there? All of us, said Bean. Kind of late for practice this morning, aren't you? So they hadn't told the squadron leaders. Ender toyed with the idea of telling them how important this battle was to him, but decided it would not help them to have an extraneous concern on their minds. Sorry, he said, I overslept. They all laughed. They didn't believe him. He led them through maneuvers, warming up for the battle ahead. It took him longer than usual to clear his mind, to concentrate on command. But soon enough he was up to speed, responding quickly, thinking well. Or at least, he told himself, I think that I'm thinking well. The simulator field cleared. Ender waited for the game to appear. What will happen if I pass the test today? Is there another school, another year or two of grueling training, another year of isolation, another year of people pushing me this way and that way, another year without any control over my own life? He tried to remember how old he was. Eleven. How many years ago did he turn eleven? How many days? It must have happened here at the command school, but he couldn't remember the day. Maybe he didn't even notice it at the time. Nobody noticed it, except perhaps Valentine. And as he waited for the game to appear, he wished he could simply lose it. Lose the battle badly and completely so that they would remove him from training like Bonzo and let him go home. Bonzo had been assigned to Cartagena. He wanted to see travel orders that said Greensboro. Success meant it would go on. Failure meant he could go home. No, that isn't true, he told himself. They need me, and if I fail, there might not be any home to return to. But he did not believe it. In his conscious mind, he knew it was true, but in other places, deeper places, he doubted that they needed him. Mazer's urgency was just another trick, just another way to make me do what they want me to do, another way to keep me from resting, from doing nothing for a long, long time. Then the enemy formation appeared, and Ender's weariness turned to despair. The enemy outnumbered him a thousand to one. The simulator glowed green with them. They were grouped in a dozen different formations, shifting positions, changing shapes, moving in seemingly random patterns through the simulator field. He could not find a path through them. A space that seemed open would close suddenly, and another appear, and a formation that seemed penetrable would suddenly change and be forbidding. The planet was at the far edge of the field, and for all Ender knew, there were just as many enemy ships beyond it out of the simulator's range. As for his own fleet, it consisted of twenty starships, each with only four fighters. He knew the four fighter starships. They were old-fashioned, sluggish, and the range of their little doctors was half that of the newer ones. Eighty fighters against at least five thousand, perhaps ten thousand enemy ships. He heard his squadron leaders breathing heavily. 
He could also hear from the observers behind him a quiet curse. It was nice to know that one of the adults noticed that it wasn't a fair test. Not that it made any difference. Fairness wasn't part of the game. That was plain. There was no attempt to give him even a remote chance at success. All that I've been through, and they never meant to let me pass at all. He saw in his mind Bonzo and his vicious little knot of friends confronting him, threatening him. He had been able to shame Bonzo into fighting him alone. That would hardly work here. And he could not surprise the enemy with his ability as he had done with the older boys in the battle room. Mazur knew Anders' abilities inside and out. The observers behind him began to cough, to move, nervously. They were beginning to realize that Ender didn't know what to do. I don't care anymore, thought Ender. You can keep your game. If you won't even give me a chance, why should I play? Like his last game in battle school when they put two armies against him. And just as he remembered that game, apparently Bean remembered it too, for his voice came over the headset saying, Remember... The enemy's gate is down. Molo, Soup, Vlad, Dumper, and Crazy Tom all laughed. They remembered, too. And Ender also laughed. It was funny. The adults taking all this so seriously, and the children playing along, playing along, believing it, too, until suddenly the adults went too far, tried too hard, and the children could see through their game. Forget it, Mazer. I don't care if I pass your test. I don't care if I follow your rules. If you can cheat, so can I. I won't let you beat me unfairly. I'll beat you unfairly first. In that final battle in battle school, he had won by ignoring the enemy, ignoring his own losses. He had moved against the enemy's gate. And the enemy's gate was down. If I break this rule, they'll never let me be a commander. It would be too dangerous. I'll never have to play a game again. And that is victory. He whispered quickly into the microphone. His commanders took their parts of the fleet and grouped themselves into a thick projectile, a cylinder aimed at the nearest of the enemy formations. The enemy, far from trying to repel him, welcomed him in so he could be thoroughly entrapped before they destroyed him. Mazer is at least taking into account the fact that by now they would have learned to respect me, thought Ender, and that does buy me time. Ender dodged downward north, east, and down again, not seeming to follow any plan, but always ending up a little closer to the enemy planet. Finally, the enemy began to close in on him too tightly. Then, suddenly, Ender's formation burst. His fleet seemed to melt into chaos. The eighty fighters seemed to follow no plan at all, firing at enemy ships at random, working their way into hopeless individual paths among the bugger craft. After a few minutes of battle, however, Ender whispered to his squadron leaders once more, and suddenly a dozen of the remaining fighters formed again into a formation. But now they were on the far side of one of the enemy's most formidable groups. They had, with terrible losses, passed through, and now they had covered more than half the distance to the enemy's planet. The enemy sees now, thought Ender. Surely Mazer sees what I'm doing. Or perhaps Mazer cannot believe that I would do it. Well, so much the better for me. Ender's tiny fleet darted this way and that, sending two or three fighters out as if to attack, then bringing them back. 
the enemy closed in, drawing in ships and formations that had been widely scattered, bringing them in for the kill. The enemy was most concentrated beyond Ender, so he could not escape back into open space, closing him in. Excellent, thought Ender. Closer. Come closer. Then he whispered a command, and the ships dropped like rocks toward the planet's surface. They were starships and fighters, completely unequipped to handle the heat of passage through an atmosphere, but Ender never intended them to reach the atmosphere. Almost from the moment they began to drop, they were focusing their little doctors on one thing only, the planet itself. One, two, four, seven of his fighters were blown away. It was all a gamble now whether any of his ships would survive long enough to get in range. It would not take long once they could focus on the planet's surface. Just a moment with Dr. Device, that's all I want. It occurred to Ender that perhaps the computer wasn't even equipped to show what would happen to a planet if the little doctor attacked it. What will I do then? Shout, bang, you're dead? Ender took his hands off the controls and leaned in to watch what happened. The perspective was close to the enemy planet now, as the ship hurtled into its well of gravity. Surely it's in range now, thought Ender. It must be in range, and the computer can't handle it. Then, the surface of the planet, which filled half the simulator field now, began to bubble. There was a gout of explosion, hurling debris out toward Ender's fighters. Ender tried to imagine what was happening inside the planet, the field growing and growing, the molecules bursting apart but finding nowhere for the separate atoms to go. Within three seconds, the entire planet burst apart, becoming a sphere of bright dust hurtling outward. Ender's fighters were among the first to go, their perspective suddenly vanished, and now the simulator could only display the perspective of the starships waiting beyond the edges of the battle. It was as close as Ender wanted to be. The sphere of the exploding planet grew outward faster than the enemy ships could avoid it, and it carried with it the little doctor, not so little any more, the field taking apart every ship in its path, erupting each one into a dot of light before it went on. Only at the very periphery of the simulator did the MD field weaken. Two or three enemy ships were drifting away. Ender's own starships did not explode, but where the vast enemy fleet had been and the planet they protected, there was nothing meaningful. A lump of dirt was growing as gravity drew much of the debris downward again. It was glowing hot and spinning visibly. It was also much smaller than the world had been before. Much of its mass was now a cloud still flowing outward. Ender took off his headphones, filled with the cheers of his squadron leaders, and only then realized that there was just as much noise in the room with him. Men in uniform were hugging each other, laughing, shouting. Others were weeping. Some knelt or lay prostrate, and Ender knew they were caught up in prayer. Ender didn't understand. It seemed all wrong. They were supposed to be angry. Colonel Graff detached himself from the others and came to Ender. Tears streamed down his face, but he was smiling. He bent over, reached out his arms, and to Ender's surprise he embraced him, held him tightly, and whispered, Thank you. Thank you, Ender. 
Thank God for you, Ender. And others soon came, too, shaking his hand, congratulating him. He tried to make sense of this. Had he passed the test after all? It was his victory, not theirs, and a hollow one at that, a cheat. Why did they act as if he had won with honor? The crowd parted, and Mazer Rackham walked through. He came straight to Ender and held out his hand. You made the hard choice, boy. All or nothing. End them or end us. But heaven knows there was no other way you could have done it. Congratulations. You beat them, and it's all over. All over. Beat them. Ender didn't understand. I beat you. Mazer laughed, a loud laugh that filled the room. Ender, you never played me. You never played a game since I became your enemy. Ender didn't get the joke. He had played a great many games, at a terrible cost to himself. He began to get angry. Mazer reached out and touched his shoulder. Ender shrugged him off. Mazer then grew serious and said, Ender, for the past few months you have been the battle commander of our fleets. This was the third invasion. There were no games. The battles were real, and the only enemy you fought was the buggers. You won every battle, and today you finally fought them at their home world, where the queen was, all the queens from all their colonies. They all were there, and you destroyed them completely. They'll never attack us again. You did it. You. Real. Not a game. Ender's mind was too tired to cope with it all. They weren't just points of light in the air. They were real ships that he had fought with and real ships he had destroyed and a real world that he had blasted into oblivion. He walked through the crowd, dodging their congratulations, ignoring their hands, their words, their rejoicing. When he got to his own room, he stripped off his clothes, climbed into bed, and slept. Ender awoke when they shook him. It took a moment to recognize them, Graf and Rackham. He turned his back on them, let me sleep. Ender, we need to talk to you, said Graf. Ender rolled back to face them. They've been playing out the videos on Earth all day, all night since the battle yesterday. Yesterday? He had slept through until the next day. You're a hero, Ender. They've seen what you did, you and the others. I don't think there's a government on Earth that hasn't voted you their highest medal. I killed them all, didn't I? Ender asked. All who? asked Graf. The buggers? That was the idea. Mazer leaned in close. That's what the war was for. All their queens. So I killed all their children, all of everything. They decided that when they attacked us. It wasn't your fault. It's what had to happen. Ender grabbed Mazer's uniform and hung onto it, pulling him down so they were face to face. I didn't want to kill them all. I didn't want to kill anybody. I'm not a killer. You didn't want me, you bastards. You wanted Peter. But you made me do it. You tricked me into it. He was crying. He was out of control. Of course we tricked you into it. That's the whole point, said Graf. 
It had to be a trick or you couldn't have done it. It's the bind we were in. We had to have a commander with so much empathy that he would think like the buggers, understand them, and anticipate them. So much compassion that he could win the love of his underlings and work with them like a perfect machine, as perfect as the buggers. But somebody with that much compassion could never be the killer we needed, could never go into battle willing to win at all costs. If you knew, you couldn't do it. If you were the kind of person who would do it even if you knew, you could never have understood the buggers well enough. And it had to be a child, Ender, said Mazer. You were faster than me, better than me. I was too old and cautious. Any decent person who knows what warfare is can never go into battle with a whole heart. But you didn't know. We made sure you didn't know. You were reckless and brilliant and young. It's what you were born for. We had pilots with our ships, didn't we? Yes. I was ordering pilots to go in and die, and I didn't even know it. They knew it, Ender. And they went anyway. They knew what it was for. You never asked me. You never told me the truth about anything. You had to be a weapon, Ender, like a gun, like the little doctor, functioning perfectly but not knowing what you were aimed at. We aimed you. We're responsible. If there was something wrong, we did it. Tell me later, Ender said. His eyes closed. Mazer Rackham shook him. Don't go to sleep, Ender, he said. It's very important. You're finished with me, Ender said. Now leave me alone. That's why we're here, Mazer said. We're trying to tell you. They're not through with you, not at all. It's crazy down there. They're going to start a war. Americans claiming the Warsaw Pact is about to attack, and the Russians are saying the same thing about the hegemon. The bugger war isn't 24 hours dead, and the world down there is back to fighting again as bad as ever. And all of them are worried about you. All of them want you. The greatest military leader in history, they want you to lead their armies. The Americans, the hegemon, everybody but the Warsaw Pact, and they want you dead. Fine with me, said Ender. We have to take you away from here. There are Russian marines all over Eros, and the Polomark is Russian. It could turn to bloodshed at any time. Ender turned his back on them again. This time they let him. He did not sleep, though. He listened to them. I was afraid of this, Rackham. You pushed him too hard. Some of those lesser outposts could have waited until after. You could have given him some days to rest. Are you doing it too, Graf? Trying to decide how I could have done it better? You don't know what would have happened if I hadn't pushed. Nobody knows. I did it the way I did it, and it worked. Above all, it worked. Memorize that defense, Graf. You may have to use it, too. Sorry. I can see what it's done to him. Colonel Leakey says there's a good chance he'll be permanently damaged, but I don't believe it. He's too strong. Winning meant a lot to him, and he won. Don't tell me about Strong. The kid's eleven. Give him some rest, Rackham. Things haven't exploded yet. We can post a guard outside his door. Or post a guard outside another door and pretend that it's his. Whatever. They went away. Ender slept again. Time passed without touching Ender except with glancing blows. Once he awoke for a few minutes with something pressing his hand, 
pushing downward on it with a dull, insistent pain. He reached over and touched it. It was a needle passing into a vein. He tried to pull it out, but it was taped on and he was too weak. Another time he awoke in darkness to hear people near him murmuring and cursing. His ears were ringing with the loud noise that had awakened him. He did not remember the noise. Get the lights on, someone said. And another time he thought he heard someone crying softly near him. It might have been a single day. It might have been a week. From his dreams it could have been months. He seemed to pass through lifetimes in his dreams, through the giant's drink again, past the wolf children, reliving the terrible deaths, the constant murders. He heard a voice whispering in the forest, You had to kill the children to get to the end of the world. And he tried to answer, I never wanted to kill anybody. Nobody ever asked me if I wanted to kill anybody. But the forest laughed at him. And when he leapt from the cliff at the end of the world, sometimes it was not clouds that caught him, but a fighter that carried him to a vantage point near the surface of the bugger's world, so he could watch over and over the eruption of death when Dr. Device set off a reaction on the planet's face. Then, closer and closer, until he could watch individual buggers explode, turn to light, then collapse into a pile of dirt before his eyes. And the queen... Surrounded by infants, only the queen was mother, and the infants were Valentine and all the children he had known in battle school. One of them had Bonzo's face, and he lay there bleeding through the eyes and nose, saying, You have no honor. And always the dream ended with a mirror, or a pool of water, or the metal surface of a ship, something that would reflect his face back to him. At first it was always Peter's face, with blood and a snake's tail coming from the mouth. After a while, though, it began to be his own face, old and sad, with eyes that grieved for a billion, billion murders. But they were his own eyes, and he was content to wear them. That was the world Ender lived in for many lifetimes during the five days of the League War. When he awoke again, he was lying in darkness. In the distance, he could hear the thump, thump of explosions. He listened for a while. Then he heard a soft footstep. He turned over and flung out a hand to grasp whoever was sneaking up on him. Sure enough, he caught someone's clothing and pulled him down toward his knees, ready to kill him if need be. Ender, it's me, it's me, he knew the voice. It came out of his memory as if it were a million years ago. A lie. Salam, pinprick. What were you trying to do, kill me? Yes, I thought you were trying to kill me. I was trying not to wake you up. Well, at least you have some survival instinct left. The way Mazer talks about it, you were becoming a vegetable. I was trying to. What's the thumping? There's a war going on here. Our section is blacked out to keep us safe. Ender swung his legs out to sit up. He couldn't do it, though. His head hurt too bad. He winced in pain. Don't sit up, Ender. It's all right. It looks like we might win it. Not all the Warsaw Pact people went with the Polomark. A lot of them came over when the Strategos told them you were loyal to the IF. I was asleep. So he lied. You weren't plotting treason in your dreams, were you? Some of the Russians who came in told us that when the Polomark ordered them to find you and kill you, they almost killed him. Whatever they may feel about other people, Ender, they love you. The whole world watched our battles, videos, day and night. I've seen some. 
complete with your voice giving the orders. It's all there. Nothing censored. Good stuff. You've got a career in the vids. I don't think so, said Ender. I was joking. Hey, can you believe it? We won the war. We were so eager to grow up so we could fight in it, and it was us all the time. I mean, we're kids, Ender, and it was us. Ali laughed. <laughs> it was you, anyway. You were good, Bosch. I didn't know how you'd get us out of that last one, but you did. You were good. Ender noticed the way he spoke in the past. I was good. What am I now, Ali? Still good. At what? At anything. There's a million soldiers who'd follow you to the end of the universe. I don't want to go to the end of the universe. So where do you want to go? They'll follow you. I want to go home, thought Ender. But I don't know where it is. The thumping went silent. Listen to that, said Ali. They listened. The door opened. Someone stood there, someone small. It's over, he said. It was Bean. As if to prove it, the lights went on. Ho, Bean. Ho, Ender. Petra followed him in, with Dink holding her hand. They came to Ender's bed. Hey, the hero's awake, said Dink. Who won, said Ender. We did, Ender, said Bean. You were there. He's not that crazy, Bean. He meant who won just now. Petra took Ender's hand. There was a truce on earth. They've been negotiating for days. They finally agreed to accept the lock proposal. He doesn't know about the lock proposal. It's very complicated, but what it means here is that the IF will stay in existence, but without the Warsaw Pact in it. So the Warsaw Pact Marines are going home. I think Russia agreed to it because they're facing a revolt in the Islamic States. Everybody's got troubles. About 500 died here, but it was worse on Earth. The hegemon resigned, said Dink. It's crazy down there. Who cares? You okay? Petra asked him, touching his head. You scared us. They said you were crazy, and we said they were crazy. Oh, I'm crazy, said Ender. But I think I'm okay. When did you decide that? asked Eli. When I thought you were about to kill me, and I decided to kill you first. I guess I'm just a killer to the core. But I'd rather be alive than dead. They laughed and agreed with him. Then Ender began to cry and embraced Bean and Petra, who were closest. I missed you, he said. I wanted to see you so bad. You saw us pretty bad, Petra answered. She kissed his cheek. I saw you magnificent, said Ender. The ones I needed most, I used up soonest. Bad planning on my part. Everybody's okay now, said Dink. Nothing was wrong with any of us that five days of cowering in blacked-out rooms in the middle of a war couldn't cure. I don't have to be your commander anymore, do I? asked Ender. I don't want to command anybody again. You don't have to command anybody, said Dink, but you're always our commander. Then they were silent for a while. So what do we do now? asked Eli. The bugger war's over, and so's the war down there on Earth, and even the war here. What do we do now? We're kids, said Petra. They'll probably make us go to school. It's a law. You have to go to school until you're seventeen. They all laughed at that. Laughed until tears streamed down their faces. The lake was still. There was no breeze. 
The two men sat together in chairs on the floating dock. A small wooden raft was tied up at the dock. Graf hooked his foot in the rope and pulled the raft in, then let it drift out, then pulled it in again. You've lost weight. One kind of stress puts it on, another takes it off. I'm a creature of chemicals. It must have been hard. Graf shrugged. Not really. I knew I'd be acquitted. Some of us weren't so sure. People were crazy for a while there. Mistreatment of children, negligent homicide. Those videos of Bonzo's and Stilson's deaths were pretty gruesome. To watch one child do that to another. As much as anything, I think the videos saved me. The prosecution edited them, but we showed the whole thing. It was plain that Ender was not the provocateur. After that, it was just a second-guessing game. I said I did what I believed was necessary for the preservation of the human race, and it worked. We got the judges to agree that the prosecution had to prove beyond doubt that Ender would have won the war without the training we gave him. After that, it was simple. The exigencies of war. Anyway, Graf, it was a great relief to us. I know we quarreled, and I know the prosecution used tapes of our conversations against you, but by then I knew you were right, and I offered to testify for you. I know, Anderson. My lawyers told me. So what will you do now? I don't know. I'm still relaxing. I have a few years of leave accrued, enough to take me to retirement, and I have plenty of salary that I never used, sitting around in banks. I could live on the interest. Maybe I'll do nothing. It sounds nice, but I couldn't stand it. I've been offered the presidency of three different universities on the theory that I'm an educator. They don't believe me when I say that all I ever cared about at the battle school was the game. I think I'll go with the other offer. Commissioner, now that the wars are over, it's time to play games again. It'll be almost like vacation anyway. Only 28 teams in the league. Though after years of watching those children flying, football is like watching slugs bash into each other. They laughed. Graf sighed and pushed the raft with his foot. That raft. Surely you can't float on it. Graf shook his head. Ender built it. That's right. This is where you took him. It's even been deeded over to him. I saw to it that he was amply rewarded. He'll have all the money he ever needs. If they ever let him come back to use it, they never will. With Demosthenes agitating for him to come home... Demosthenes isn't on the nets anymore. Anderson raised an eyebrow. What does that mean? Demosthenes has retired. Permanently. You know something, you old fart-eater. You know who Demosthenes is. Was. Well, tell me. No. You're no fun anymore, Graf. I never was. At least you can tell me why. There were a lot of us who thought Demosthenes would be hegemon someday. There was never a chance of that. No. Even Demosthenes's mob of political cretins couldn't persuade the hegemon to bring Ender back to Earth. Ender is far too dangerous. He's only eleven, twelve now. All the more dangerous. 
because he could so easily be controlled. In all the world, the name of Ender is one to conjure with. The child god, the miracle worker, with life and death in his hands. Every petty tyrant-to-be would like to have the boy, to set him in front of an army and watch the world either flock to join or cower in fear. If Ender came to earth, he'd want to come here, to rest, to salvage what he can of his childhood. But they'd never let him rest. I see. Someone explained that to Demosthenes. Graf smiled. Demosthenes explained it to someone else. Someone who could have used Ender as no one else could have, to rule the world and make the world like it. Who? Locke. Locke is the one who argued for Ender to stay on Eros. All is not always as it seems. It's too deep for me, Graf. Give me the game. Nice, neat rules. Referees, beginnings and endings, winners and losers, and then everybody goes home to their families. Get me tickets to some games now and then, all right? You won't really stay here and retire, will you? No. You're going into the hegemony, aren't you? I'm the new minister of colonization. So they're doing it. As soon as we get the reports back on the bugger colony worlds. I mean, there they are, already fertile, with housing and industry in place, and all the buggers dead. Very convenient. We'll repeal the population limitation laws, which everybody hates, and all those thirds and fourths and fifths will get on starships and head out for worlds known and unknown. Will people really go? People always go. Always. They always believe they can make a better life than in the old world. What the hell? Maybe they can. At first, Ender believed that they would bring him back to Earth as soon as things quieted down. But things were quiet now, had been quiet for a year, and it was plain to him now that they would not bring him back at all, that he was much more useful as a name and a story than he would ever be as an inconvenient flesh-and-blood person. And there was the matter of the court-martial and the crimes of Colonel Graf. Admiral Shamrajnagar tried to keep Ender from watching it, but failed. Ender had been awarded the rank of Admiral, too, and this was one of the few times he asserted the privileges the rank implied. So he watched the videos of the fights with Stilson and Bonzo, watched as the photographs of the corpses were displayed, listened as the psychologists and lawyers argued whether murder had been committed or the killing was in self-defense. Ender had his own opinion, but no one asked him. Throughout the trial, it was really Ender himself under attack. The prosecution was too clever to charge him directly, but there were attempts to make him look sick, perverted, criminally insane. Never mind, said Mazur Rackham. The politicians are afraid of you, but they can't destroy your reputation yet. Uh, that won't be done until the historians get at you in thirty years. Ender didn't care about his reputation. He watched the videos impassively, but in fact he was amused. In battle I killed ten billion buggers, whose queens at least were as alive and wise as any man, who had not even launched a third attack against us, and no one thinks to call it a crime. All his crimes weighed heavy on him, the deaths of Stilson and Bonzo, no heavier and no lighter than the rest. 
And so with that burden, he waited through the empty months until the world that he had saved decided he could come home. One by one, his friends reluctantly left him, called home to their families to be received with heroes' welcomes in hometowns they barely remembered. Ender watched the videos of their homecomings and was touched when they spent much of their time praising Ender Wigan, who taught them everything, they said, who taught them and led them into victory. But if they called for him to be brought home, the words were censored from the videos, and no one heard the plea. For a time, the only work in Eros was cleaning up after the bloody League War and receiving the reports of the starships, once warships, that were now exploring the bugger colony worlds. But now Eros was busier than ever, more crowded than it had ever been during the war, as colonists were brought here to prepare for their voyages to the empty bugger worlds. Ender took part in the work as much as they would let him. It did not occur to them that this twelve-year-old boy might be as gifted at peace as he was at war. But he was patient with their tendency to ignore him, and learned to make his proposals and suggest his plans through the few adults who listened to him, and let them present them as their own. He was concerned not about getting credit, but about getting the job done. The one thing he could not bear was the worship of the colonists. He learned to avoid the tunnels where they lived, because they would always recognize him. The world had memorized his face. And then they would scream and shout and embrace him and congratulate him and show him the children they had named after him and tell him how he was so young it broke their hearts, and they didn't blame him for any of his murders because it wasn't his fault he was just a child. He hid from them as best he could. There was one colonist, though, he couldn't hide from. He wasn't inside Eros that day. He had gone up with the shuttle to the new ISL, where he had been learning to do surface work on the starships. It was unbecoming to an officer to do mechanical labor, Shamrajnagar told him, but Ender answered that since the trade he had mastered wasn't much called for now, it was about time he learned another skill. They spoke to him through his helmet radio and told him that someone was waiting to see him as soon as he could come in. Ender couldn't think of anyone he wanted to see, and so he didn't hurry. He finished installing the shield for the ship's ansible and then hooked his way across the face of the ship and pulled himself up into the airlock. She was waiting for him outside the changing room. For a moment he was annoyed that they would let a colonist come to bother him here, where he came to be alone. Then he looked again and realized that if the young woman were a little girl, he would know her. Valentine, he said. Hi, Ender. What are you doing here? Demosthenes retired. Now I'm going with the first colony. It's fifty years to get there. Only two years, if you're aboard the ship. And if you ever came back, everybody you knew on Earth would be dead. That was what I had in mind. I was hoping, though, that someone I knew on Eros might come with me. I don't want to go to a world we stole from the buggers. I just want to go home. Ender, you're never going back to Earth. I saw to that before I left. He looked at her in silence. I tell you that now so that if you want to hate me, you can hate me from the beginning. They went to Ender's tiny compartment in the ISL, and she explained. Peter wanted Ender back on Earth under the protection of the Hegemon's Council. The way things are right now, Ender, 
That would put you effectively under Peter's control, since half the council now does just what Peter wants. The ones that aren't Locke's lapdogs are under his thumb in other ways. Do they know who he really is? Yes. He isn't publicly known, but people in high places know him. It doesn't matter anymore. He has too much power for them to worry about his age. He's done incredible things, Ender. I noticed the treaty a year ago was named for Locke. That was his breakthrough. He proposed it through his friends from the public policy nets, and then Demosthenes got behind it, too. It was the moment he had been waiting for, to use Demosthenes' influence with the mob and Locke's influence with the intelligentsia to accomplish something noteworthy. It forestalled a really vicious war that could have lasted for decades. He decided to be a statesman. I think so. But in his cynical moments, of which there are many, he pointed out to me that if he had allowed the League to fall apart completely, he'd have to conquer the world piece by piece. As long as the hegemony existed, he could do it in one lump. Ender nodded. That's the Peter that I knew. Hmm. Funny, isn't it? That Peter would save millions of lives. While I killed billions? I wasn't going to say that. So he wanted to use me? He had plans for you, Ender. He would publicly reveal himself when you arrived, going to meet you in front of all the videos. Ender Wiggins' older brother, who also happened to be the great Locke, the architect of peace. Standing next to you, he would look quite mature. And the physical resemblance between you is stronger than ever. It would be quite simple for him, then, to take over. Why did you stop him? Ender, you wouldn't be happy spending the rest of your life as Peter's pawn. Why not? I've spent my life as someone's pawn. Me too. I showed Peter all the evidence that I had assembled, enough to prove in the eyes of the public that he was a psychotic killer. It included full-color pictures of tortured squirrels and some of the monitor videos of the way he treated you. It took some work to get it all together, but by the time he saw it, he was willing to give me what I wanted. What I wanted was your freedom and mine. It's not my idea of freedom to go live in the house of the people that I killed. Ender, what's done is done. Their worlds are empty now, and ours is full. And we can take with us what their worlds have never known. Cities full of people who live private, individual lives— who love and hate each other for their own reasons. In all the bugger worlds, there was never more than a single story to be told. When we're there, the world will be full of stories and will improvise their endings day by day. Ender Earth belongs to Peter. And if you don't go with me now, he'll have you there and use you up until you wish you'd never been born. Now is the only chance you'll get to get away. Ender said nothing. I know what you're thinking, Ender. You're thinking that I'm trying to control you just as much as Peter or Graf or any of the others. It crossed my mind. Welcome to the human race. Nobody controls his own life, Ender. The best you can do is choose to fill the roles given you by good people by people who love you. I didn't come here because I wanted to be a colonist. 
I came here because I've spent my whole life in the company of the brother that I hated. Now I want a chance to know the brother that I love, before it's too late, before we're not children anymore. It's already too late for that. You're wrong, Ender. You think you're grown up and tired and jaded with everything, but in your heart, you're just as much a kid as I am. We can keep it a secret from everybody else. While you're governing the colony and I'm writing political philosophy, they'll never guess that in the darkness of night we sneak into each other's rooms and play checkers and have pillow fights. Ender laughed. But he had noticed some things she dropped too casually for them to be accidental. Governing? I'm Demosthenes, Ender. I went out with a bang. A public announcement that I believed so much in the colonization movement that I was going in the first ship myself. At the same time, the Minister of Colonization, a former colonel named Graf, announced that the pilot of the colony ship would be the great Mazer Rackham, and the governor of the first colony it established would be Ender Wigan. They might have asked me. I wanted to ask you myself. But it's already announced. No, they'll be announcing it tomorrow, if you accept. Mazer accepted a few hours ago, back in Eros. You're telling everyone that you're Demosthenes, a 14-year-old girl? We're only telling them that Demosthenes is going with the colony. Let them spend the next 50 years poring over the passenger list, trying to figure out which one of them is the great demagogue of the age of Locke. Ender laughed and shook his head. You're, you're actually having fun, Val. I can't think why I shouldn't. All right, said Ender. I'll go. Maybe even as governor, as long as you and Mazer are there to help me. My abilities are a little underused at present. She squealed and hugged him, for all the world like a typical teenage girl who just got the present that she wanted from her little brother. Val, he said, I just want one thing clear. I'm not going for you. I'm not going in order to be governor or because I'm bored here. I'm going because I know the buggers better than any other living soul. And maybe if I go there, I can understand them better. I stole their future from them. I can only begin to repay by seeing what I can learn from their past. The voyage was long. By the end of it, Val had finished the first volume of her history of the Bugger Wars and transmitted it by Ansible, under Demosthenes' name, back to Earth and Ender had won something better than the adulation of the passengers. They knew him now, and he had won their love and their respect. He worked hard on the new world. He quickly understood the differences between military and civilian leadership, and governed by persuasion rather than fiat and by working as hard as anyone at the tasks involved in setting up a self-sustaining economy. But his most important work, as everyone agreed, was exploring what the buggers had left behind, trying to find among structures, machinery, and fields long untended, some things that human beings could use, could learn from, 
There were no books to read. The buggers never needed them. With all things present in their memories, all things spoken as they were thought, when the buggers died, their knowledge died with them. And yet, from the sturdiness of the roofs that covered their animal sheds and their food supplies, Andrew learned that winter would be hard with heavy snows. From fences with sharpened stakes that pointed outward, he learned that there were marauding animals that were a danger to the crops or the herds. From the mill, he learned that the long, foul-tasting fruits that grew in the overgrown orchards were dried and ground into meal. And from the slings that once were used to carry infants along with adults into the fields, he learned that even though the buggers were not much for individuality, they did care for their young. Life settled down, and years passed. The colony lived in wooden houses and used the tunnels of the bugger city for storage and manufactories. They were governed by a council now, and administrators were elected, so that Ender, though they still called him governor, was in fact only a judge. There were crimes and quarrels, alongside kindness and cooperation. There were people who loved each other and people who did not. It was a human world. They did not wait so eagerly for each new transmission from the Ansible. The names that were famous on Earth meant little to them now. The only name they knew was that of Peter Wigan, the hegemon of Earth. The only news that came was news of peace, of prosperity, of great ships leaving the littoral of Earth's solar system, passing the comet shield, and filling up the bugger worlds. Soon there would be other colonies on this world, Ender's world. Soon there would be neighbors. Already they were halfway here. But no one cared. They would help the newcomers when they came, teach them what they had learned, but what mattered in life now was who would marry whom, and who was sick, and when was planting time, and why should I pay him when the calf died three weeks after I got it? They've become people of the land, said Valentine. No one cares now that Demosthenes is sending the seventh volume of his history today. No one here will read it. Ender pressed a button and his desk showed him the next page. Very insightful, Valentine. How many more volumes until you're through? Just one. The story of Ender Wigan. What will you do? Wait to write it until I'm dead? No. Just write it, and when I've brought it up to present day, I'll stop. I have a better idea. Take it up to the day we won the final battle. Stop it there. Nothing that I've done since then is worth writing down. Maybe, said Valentine. And maybe not. The Ansible had brought them word that the new colony ship was only a year away. They asked Ender to find a place for them to settle in, near enough to Ender's colony that the two colonies could trade, but far enough apart that they could be governed separately. Ender used the helicopter and began to explore. 
He took one of the children along, an eleven-year-old boy named Abra. He had been only three when the colony was founded, and he remembered no other world than this. He and Ender flew as far away as Ender thought the new colony should be, then camped for the night and got a feel for the land on foot the next morning. It was on the third morning that Ender suddenly began to feel an uneasy sense that he had been in this place before. He looked around. It was new land. He had never seen it. He called out to Abra. Ho, Ender, Abra called. He was on top of a steep, low hill. Come up. Ender scrambled up, the turves coming away from his feet in the soft ground. Abra was pointing downward. Can you believe this? he asked. The hill was hollow. A deep depression in the middle, partially filled with water, was ringed by concave slopes that cantilevered dangerously over the water. In one direction the hill gave way to two long ridges that made a V-shaped valley. In the other direction the hill rose to a piece of white rock, grinning like a skull, with a tree growing out of its mouth. "'It's like a giant died here,' said Abra. "'And the earth grew up to cover his carcass.' Now Ender knew why it had looked familiar, the giant's corpse. He had played here too many times as a child not to know this place. But it was not possible. The computer in the battle school could not possibly have seen this place. He looked through his binoculars in a direction he knew well, fearing and hoping that he would see what belonged in that place. Swings and slides. Monkey bars. Now overgrown but the shapes still unmistakable. Somebody had to have built this, Abra said. Look, this skull place, it's not rock. Look at it, this is concrete. I know, said Ender. They built it for me. What? I know this place, Abra. The buggers built it for me. The buggers were all dead fifty years before we got here. You're right. It's impossible, but I know what I know. Abra, I shouldn't take you with me. It might be dangerous. If they knew me well enough to build this place, they might be planning to... to get even with you? For killing them. So don't go, Ender. Don't do what they want you to do. If they want to get revenge, Abra, I don't mind. But perhaps they don't. Perhaps this is the closest they could come to talking, to writing me a note. They didn't know how to read and write. Maybe they were learning when they died. Well, I'm sure as hell not sticking around here if you're taking off somewhere. I'm going with you. No, you're too young to take the risk of... Come on, you're Ender Wiggin. Don't tell me what eleven-year-old kids can do. Together they flew in the copter, over the playground, over the woods, over the well in the forest clearing. Then out to where there was indeed a cliff, with a cave in the cliff wall and the ledge right where the end of the world should be. And there in the distance, just where it should be in the fantasy game, was the castle tower. He left Abra with the copter. Don't come after me, and go home in an hour if I don't come back. Eat it, Ander, I'm coming with you. Eat it yourself, Abra, or I'll stuff you with mud. Abra could tell, despite Ander's joking tone, that he meant it, and so he stayed. The walls of the tower were notched and ledged for easy climbing. They meant him to get in. The room was as it had always been. 
Ender remembered well enough to look for a snake on the floor, but there was only a rug with a carved snake's head in one corner. Imitation, not duplication. For a people who made no art, they had done well. They must have dragged these images from Ender's own mind, finding him and learning his darkest dreams across the light years. But why? To bring him to this room, of course, to leave a message for him. But where was the message, and how would he understand it? The mirror was waiting for him on the wall. It was a dull sheet of metal in which the rough shape of a human face had been scratched. They tried to draw the image I should see in the picture, and, looking at the mirror, he could remember breaking it, pulling it from the wall, and snakes leaping out of the hidden place, attacking him, biting him wherever their poisonous fangs could find purchase. How well do they know me, wondered Ender. Well enough to know how often I have thought of death, to know that I am not afraid of it, well enough to know that even if I feared death, it would not stop me from taking that mirror from the wall. He walked to the mirror, lifted, pulled away. Nothing jumped from the space behind it. Instead, in a hollowed-out place, there was a white ball of silk with a few frayed strands sticking out here and there. An egg? No. The pupa of a queen bugger, already fertilized by the larval males, ready, out of her own body, to hatch a hundred thousand buggers, including a few queens and males. Ender could see in his mind the slug-like males clinging to the walls of a dark tunnel, and the large adults carrying the infant queen to the mating room. Each male in turn penetrated the larval queen, shuddered in ecstasy, and died, dropping to the tunnel floor and shriveling. Then the new queen was laid before the old, a magnificent creature clad in soft and shimmering wings which had long since lost the power of flight but still contained the power of majesty. The old queen kissed her to sleep with the gentle poison in her lips, then wrapped her in threads from her belly and commanded her to become herself, to become a new city, a new world, to give birth to many queens and many worlds. How do I know this, thought Ender? How can I see these things like memories in my own mind? As if in answer he saw the first of all his battles with the bugger fleets. He had seen it before on the simulator. Now he saw it as the hive queen saw it through many different eyes. The buggers formed their globe of ships, and then the terrible fighters came out of the darkness, and the little doctor destroyed them in a blaze of light. He felt, then, what the hive queen felt, watching through her workers' eyes as death came to them too quickly to avoid, but not too quickly to be anticipated. There was no memory of pain or fear, though. What the hive queen felt was sadness, a sense of resignation, she had not thought these words as she saw the humans coming to kill, but it was in words that Ender understood her. The humans did not forgive us, she thought. We will surely die. How can you live again? he asked. The queen in her silken cocoon had no words to give back, but when he closed his eyes and tried to remember, 
Instead of memory came new images. Putting the cocoon in a cool place, a dark place, but with water, so she wasn't dry, so that certain reactions could take place in the cocoon. Then time. Days and weeks for the pupa inside to change. And then, when the cocoon had changed to a dusty brown color, Anders saw himself splitting open the cocoon and helping the small and fragile queen emerge. He saw himself taking her by the forelimb and helping her walk from her birth water to a nesting place, soft with dried leaves on sand. Then I am alive, came the thought in his mind. Then I am awake. Then I make my ten thousand children. No, said Ender, I can't. Anguish. Your children are the monsters of our nightmares now. If I awoke you, we would only kill you again. There flashed through his mind a dozen images of human beings being killed by buggers, but with the image came a grief so powerful he could not bear it, and he wept their tears for them. If you could make them feel as you can make me feel, then perhaps they could forgive you. Only me, he realized. They found me through the ansible, followed it, and dwelt in my mind. In the agony of my tortured dreams, they came to know me even as I spent my days destroying them. They found my fear of them and found also that I had no knowledge I was killing them. In the few weeks they had, they built this place for me and the giant's corpse and the ledge at the end of the world so I would find this place by the evidence of my eyes. I am the only one they know, and so they can only talk to me and through me. We are like you, the thought pressed into his mind. We did not mean to murder, and when we understood, we never came again. We thought we were the only thinking beings in the universe until we met you, but never did we dream that thought could arise from the lonely animals who cannot dream each other's dreams. How were we to know we could live with you in peace? Believe us, believe us, believe us. He reached into the cavity and took out the cocoon. It was astonishingly light to hold all the hope and future of a great race within it. I'll carry you, said Ender. I'll go from world to world until I find a time and a place where you can come awake in safety. And I'll tell your story to my people, so that perhaps in time they can forgive you too, the way that you've forgiven me. He wrapped the queen's cocoon in his jacket and carried her from the tower. What was in there? asked Abra. The answer, said Ender. To what? My question. And that was all he said of the matter. They searched for five more days and chose a site for the colony far to the east and south of the tower. Weeks later, he came to Valentine and told her to read something he had written. She pulled the file he named from the ship's computer and read it. It was written as if the Hive Queen spoke, telling all that they had meant to do and all that they had done. Here are our failures, and here is our greatness. We did not mean to hurt you, and we forgive you for our death. From their earliest awareness to the great wars that swept across their home world, Ender told the story quickly, as if it were ancient memory.
When he came to the tale of the great mother, the queen of all, who first learned to keep and teach the new queen instead of killing her or driving her away, then he lingered, telling how many times she had finally to destroy the child of her body, the new self that was not herself, until she bore one who understood her quest for harmony. This was a new thing in the world. Two queens that loved and helped each other instead of battling, and together they were stronger than any other hive. They prospered. They had more daughters who joined them in peace. It was the beginning of wisdom. If only we could have talked to you, the hive queen said in Ender's words. But since it could not be, we ask only this, that you remember us not as enemies, but as tragic sisters, changed into a foul shape by fate or God or evolution. If we had kissed, it would have been the miracle to make us human in each other's eyes. Instead, we killed each other. But still we welcome you now as guest friends. Come into our home, daughters of earth. Dwell in our tunnels. Harvest our fields. What we cannot do, you are now our hands to do for us. Blossom, trees, ripen, fields. Be warm for them, suns. Be fertile for them, planets. They are our adopted daughters, and they have come home. The book that Ender wrote was not long, but in it was all the good and all the evil that the Hive Queen knew. And he signed it, not with his name, but with a title, Speaker for the Dead. On earth, the book was published quietly, and quietly it was passed from hand to hand until it was hard to believe that anyone on earth might not have read it. Most who read it found it interesting. Some who read it refused to set it aside. They began to live by it as best they could, and when their loved ones died, a believer would arise beside the grave to be the speaker for the dead and say what the dead one would have said, but with full candor, hiding no faults and pretending no virtues. Those who came to such services sometimes found them painful and disturbing, but there were many who decided that their life was worthwhile enough, despite their errors, that when they died, a speaker should tell the truth for them. On earth it remained a religion among many religions, but for those who traveled the great cave of space and lived their lives in the Hive Queen's tunnels and harvested the Hive Queen's fields, it was the only religion. There was no colony without its speaker for the dead. No one knew and no one really wanted to know who was the original speaker. Ender was not inclined to tell them. When Valentine was twenty-five years old, she finished the last volume of her History of the Bugger Wars. She included at the end the complete text of Ender's little book, but did not say that Ender wrote it. By Ansible, she got an answer from the ancient hegemon, Peter Wiggin, seventy-seven years old with a failing heart. I know who wrote it, he said. If he can speak for the buggers, surely he can speak for me. Back and forth across the Ansible, Ender and Peter spoke, with Peter pouring out the story of his days and years, his crimes and his kindnesses. And when he died, Ender wrote a second volume, again signed by the Speaker for the Dead. Together, his two books were called The Hive Queen and The Hegemon, and they were wholly writ. Come on, he said to Valentine one day. Let's fly away and live forever. 
We can't, she said. There are miracles even relativity can't pull off, Ender. We have to go. I'm almost happy here. So stay. I've lived too long with pain. I won't know who I am without it. So they boarded a starship and went from world to world. Wherever they stopped, he was always Andrew Wigan, itinerant speaker for the dead, and she was always Valentine, historian errant, writing down the stories of the living while Ender spoke the stories of the dead. And always Ender carried with him a dry, white cocoon, looking for the world where the Hive Queen could awaken and thrive in peace. He looked a long time. Now listen to Chapter 1 of Shadows in Flight by Orson Scott Card. Macmillan Audio presents Shadows in Flight by Orson Scott Card. Read for you by Scott Brick, Emily Janice Card, Kirby Hayborn, and Stefan Rodnicki. Chapter 1 In the Giant's Shadow. The starship Herodotus left Earth in 2210 with four passengers. It accelerated nearly to light speed as quickly as it could, and then stayed at that speed, letting relativity do its work. On Herodotus, just over five years had passed. It had been 421 years on Earth. On Herodotus, the three 13-month-old babies had turned into six-year-olds, and the giant had outlived his life expectancy by two years. On Earth, starships had been launched to found 93 colonies, beginning with the worlds once colonized by the Formics and spreading to other habitable planets as soon as they were found. On Herodotus, the six-year-old children were small for their age, but brilliant beyond their years, as the giant had been when he was little, for in all four of them... Anton's key had been turned, a genetic defect and a genetic enhancement at the same time. Their intelligence was beyond the level of savants in every subject matter, without any of the debilitations of autism. But their bodies never stopped growing. They were small now, but by age 22, they would be the size of the giant, and the giant would be long dead for he was dying, and when he died, the children would be alone. In the ansible room of Herodotus, Andrew Ender Delphiki sat perched on three books atop a seat designed for adults. This was how the children operated the main computer that processed communication through the ansible, 
the instant communicator that kept Herodotus linked to all the computer networks of the 94 worlds of Starways Congress. Ender was reviewing a research report on genetic therapy that showed some promise when Carlotta came into the Ansible room. Sergeant wants a Sibmut. You found me, said Ender. So can he. Carlotta looked over his shoulder at the hollow display. Why do you bother, she said. There's no cure. Nobody's even looking for it anymore. The cure is for us all to die, said Ender. Then Anton syndrome disappears from the human species. We'll die eventually, said Carlotta. The giant is dying now. You know that's all Sergeant wants to talk about. Well, we have to talk about it, don't we? Not really. It'll happen, and then we'll deal with it. Ender did not want to think about the giant's death. It was overdue, but as long as the giant lived, Ender could hope to save him, or at least bring him good news before he died. We can't talk in front of the giant, said Carlotta. He's not here in the Ansible room, said Ender. You know he can hear us here if he wants. The more time Carlotta spent with Sergeant, the more she sounded like him, paranoid. The giant is listening. If he's hearing us now, he knows we're having a meeting and what it's about, and so he'll listen wherever we are. Sergeant feels better about it when we take precautions. I feel better when I'm allowed to do my work. Nobody in the universe has Anton syndrome except us, Carlotta said. So the researchers have all stopped working on it, even though there's perpetual funding. Get over it. They've stopped, and I haven't, said Ender. How can you research it without lab equipment, without test subjects, without anything? I have this incredibly brilliant mind, said Ender cheerfully. I look at all the genetic research they're doing, and I'm connecting it with what we already know about Anton's key from back in the days when top scientists were working hard on the problem. I connect things that the humans could never see. We're humans, said Carlotta wearily. Our children won't be if I can help it, said Ender. Our children is a concept that will never have a real-world example, said Carlotta. I'm not mating with either of my male sibs, which includes you, period, ever. It makes me want to puke. The idea of sex is what makes you puke, said Ender. But I'm not talking about our children in the sense of any of us reproducing together— I'm talking about the children we'll have when we rejoin the human race. Not the normal children, like our long-dead sibs who stayed with mother and mated and had human children of their own. I'm talking about the children with turned keys, the children who are little and smart like us. If I can find a way to cure them, the cure is to discard all the children like us and keep the normal ones and poof, Anton syndrome is gone. Carlotta always came back to the same argument. That's not a cure. That's extinction of our new species. We're not a species if we can still interbreed with humans. We're a species as soon as we find a way to pass along our brilliant minds without the fatal giantism. The giant's supposedly as brilliant as we are. Let him work on Anton's key. Now come along so Sergeant doesn't get mad. We can't let Sergeant boss us around just because he gets so angry when we don't obey. Oh, brave talk, said Carlotta. You're always the first to give in. Not at this moment. 
If Sergeant walked in here himself, you'd apologize and drop everything and come. You're only delaying because you're not afraid to annoy me. Just as you're not afraid to annoy me. Come on. Where? I'll join you later. If I say it, the giant will listen in. The giant will track us anyway. If Sergeant is right and the giant spies on us all the time, then there's nowhere to hide anyway. Sergeant thinks there is. And Sergeant's always right. Sergeant might be right, and we can humor him, and it costs us nothing. I hate crawling through the air ducts, said Ender. You two love it, and that's fine. But I hate it. Sergeant is being so nice today that he picked a place we can get to without going through ducts. Where? If I tell you I have to kill you, said Carlotta. Every minute you take me away from my genetic research, you're bringing us that much closer to death. You already made your point, and it's an excellent point, and I'm ignoring you because you are coming to our meeting if I have to drag you there in small pieces. If you regard me as expendable, have the meeting without me. Will you abide by whatever sergeant and I decide? If by abide by you mean ignore completely, then yes. That's what your plans deserve. We haven't made plans yet. Today. You haven't made plans yet today. Our other plans all failed because you didn't follow them. I followed every plan I agreed with. We outvoted you, Ender. That's why I never agreed to majority rule. Who's in charge, then? Nobody. The giant. He can't leave the cargo bay. He's not in charge of anything. Then why are you and Sergeant so afraid he might be listening in? Because all he cares about is us, and he has nothing to do but spy on us. He does research, just like me, said Ender. That's what I'm afraid of. Results, zero. Time wasted, all of it. You won't feel that way when I come up with the invasovirus that carries the cure to our giantism into every cell of your body and allows you to reach a normal human height and stop growing. With my luck, you'll switch off Anton's key and make us all stupid. Normal humans aren't stupid. They're just normal. And they forgot us, said Carlotta bitterly. If they saw us again, they'd think we were nothing but children. We are children. Children our age are just learning to read and write and do their numbers, said Carlotta. We are more than a quarter of the way through our expected lifespan. We're the equivalent of twenty-five years old in their species. Ender hated it when she threw his own arguments back at him. He was the one who argued that they were a new species, the next stage in human evolution. Homo Antoninus, or perhaps Homo Leguminensis after the giant who had used the name Bean for most of his childhood. They won't see us again, so they won't treat us like children, said Ender. I'm not content with a lifespan of twenty years, nor with death by overgrowing the capacity of our own hearts. I don't intend to die gasping for breath while my brain dies because my heart can't get enough blood to it. I have work to do, and an absolute deadline for doing it. Carlotta apparently was tired of bandying words. She leaned in close and whispered, The giant is dying. We have things to decide. If you don't want to be included in the decisions ever, then by all means skip this meeting. 
Ender hated thinking about the giant's death. It would mean that Ender had failed, that whatever he learned later would have come too late. And something else, too. A deeper feeling than frustration at failing to reach a goal. Ender had read about human feelings, and the words he thought came closest were anguish and grief. He could not speak of this, however, because he knew what Sergeant would say. Why, Ender, I believe you're saying that you love the old monster. And love, they knew, was a thing that came from the human side, from Mother. And Mother had chosen to stay behind on Earth so her ordinary human children could lead ordinary human lives. If love meant anything, the children had long ago concluded, it would have kept Mother with them and their ordinary siblings, all of them on this ship, all of them looking together for a cure, for a new world, for a life together as a family. When they were not yet two years of age, they said this to father. He was so angry he forbade them to criticize their mother again. It was the right choice, he said. You have no understanding of love. That was when they stopped calling him father. As sergeant said, it was their decision to break the family— if we have no mother, then we have no father either. He was the giant from then on. And they did not speak of mother at all. But Ender thought of her. Did she feel, when we left, what I feel now, thinking of the giants dying? Anguish? Grief? They decided what they thought was best for their children. What would the life of the normal siblings be on this ship if they had kept the family together? They would be larger than Sergeant, Carlotta, and Ender, but they would feel like great stupid oafs, never able to keep up with the Antonines, the Leguminotes, whatever they decided to call themselves. Mother and the giant were right to divide the family. They were right about everything. But Ender could never say that to Sergeant. You could never say anything to Sergeant that he didn't want to hear. It was a recapitulation of human history, right here on the Herodotus, that the most angry, aggressive, and violent of the three children was the one who always got his way. If we're a new species, we're only somewhat improved. All the alpha male nonsense of the chimps and gorillas is still preserved in us. Carlotta turned her back on him and started out of the room. Wait, said Ender. Can't you tell me what this is really about? Why are you always in on it, and I get things sprung on me with the two of you already in agreement, and no time for me to research anything or even come up with a decent argument? To her credit, Carlotta looked a little embarrassed. Sergeant does what he wants, but he always has you for an ally, said Ender. He could have you, too, if you didn't always resist him. He doesn't give me a chance to resist. He doesn't listen. I'm the other male, don't you see? He has you under his control and me off balance because he intends to be the Alpha. Carlotta frowned. Mating is still a long way off. It's already being determined by our choices now. Do you think Sergeant will take no for an answer? We won't let him have his way on that. We, said Ender. What's this we? There's you and him, and then there's me. Do you think you and I will suddenly become we just because you don't want to have his incestuous babies? 
If we're not we now, not ever, then why do you think I'll risk my own survival to save you then? Carlotta blushed. I will not talk about this. But you'll think about it, Ender said silently. I made you think about it, and you won't let go of it. The alliances we make now will be the alliances then. He'll be the alpha male, you'll be the devoted mate, and I'll be the non-mating, subjugated male, powerless to do anything but what the alpha commands. If he hasn't killed me first, that's the choice you're making now. Let's go hear what Sergeant has to say, said Ender. Not that you don't already know. I really don't, said Carlotta. He doesn't let me in on what he's thinking any more than he does you. Ender didn't bother arguing with her, but it simply wasn't true. Or if she really didn't know, then she was always quick to come up with arguments to justify whatever nonsense Sergeant was trying to put forward. She always sounded as if she had agreed with Sergeant's program even before he presented it. We're still primates, only a few genes away from the hairless chimps that began to cook their food so that women stayed by the fire to do the cooking while their monogamous mates ranged and hunted to bring home meat. And only a few genes farther from the hairy chimps that mated whenever they could, usually by force, and lived in terror of displeasing the alpha male. The main difference is we come up with justifications and explanations, and we manipulate each other with words instead of violent displays or affectionate grooming. Or rather, our violent displays and affectionate grooming are words, so they take less energy but do the same job. I'll pretend to believe you, said Ender aloud, in order to pretend that I think my presence at Sergeant's meeting will do anything but prove his dominance over our pathetic little tribe. We're a family, said Carlotta. Our species hasn't existed long enough to evolve the family yet, said Ender. But it was mere grumbling. He followed her into the bridge, where she pushed the manual lever to open the trap down to the maintenance shafts surrounding the plasma conductors, the ram scoop collector, and the gravity lens. Yes, let's spend hours here, and the whole question of founding a species becomes moot, said Ender. The shielding works. We're not scooping much anyway. And shut up, said Carlotta. They went on down to engineering, which was Carlotta's bailiwick. While Ender persisted with the genetic research that was the whole reason for this voyage, Carlotta had become the onboard expert on mechanics, plasmatics, gravity lensing, and everything else to do with the workings of the ship. It's our world, she often said. We might as well know how it works. And more recently she had bragged, If I had to, I could build the whole thing from scratch. From parts, you mean, Sergeant had said. From ore in the mountains of some undiscovered planet, said Carlotta. From the metals in two asteroids and a comet. From the wreckage of this ship after a collision with a meteor. Sergeant had laughed, but Ender believed her. Carlotta led the way back to the lower lab. We could have walked down the corridor to the upper lab and skipped the whole trap-door business, Ender pointed out. The giant can hear our footsteps from the upper lab. Do you think he can't hear everything everywhere? I know he can't, said Carlotta. There are dead spots all over the ship where he can't hear anything. That you know about. Carlotta didn't bother to answer. 
They both knew that Ender didn't actually care whether the giant heard them or not. It was Sargent who had to conceal everything, or at least believe that he was concealing himself. Aft of the lower lab was the elevator shaft that led back to life support. During strong acceleration phases, the back of the ship became the bottom of a deep well, and the elevator made it possible to go down to life support at the base and back up again. But in flight, gravity was polarized the other direction, so that the elevator became a simple walkway, at ten percent of Earth normal, leading aft to life support. The payload area of the ship where the giant lived because he couldn't fit anywhere else was directly above them. So they walked slowly and lightly, being careful to make no noise. If Sargent heard them, he'd be furious because it meant the giant could hear them too. Sargent wasn't in life support, though he had the fans running full blast to pump freshly oxygenated air through the ducts and muffle sound. Ender could never decide whether it smelled like fresh air or decay. The lichens and algae that lived in hundreds of large trays under fake sunlight were constantly dying, their protoplasm then getting incorporated into the next generation in a continuous cycle. "'You know what this place needs?' said Carlotta. "'A dead fish. To improve the smell.' "'You don't know what a dead fish smells like,' said Ender. "'We've never seen a fish.' I've seen pictures, and all the books say fish smell bad when they rot. Worse than rotting algae, said Ender. You don't know that, said Carlotta. If rotting algae smelled worse, then the saying would be, algae and visitors begin to stink after three days. None of us knows what we're talking about, said Carlotta. And yet we keep talking, said Ender. Ender expected to find Sergeant in the puppy, the maintenance craft that was programmed by the giant to remain within five meters of the surface of Herodotus, no matter what contrary instructions it might be given. Ender knew Carlotta had tried for months to untether the puppy, but she couldn't defeat the programming. Things like that made it clear to Ender, if to neither of the others, that the giant was every bit as smart as they were, and he had years of experience behind him. All of Sargent's precautions were pointless, because at his oversized console in the payload area, the giant could do whatever he wanted, hear and see and probably smell whatever he wanted, and his children could do nothing about it, nor even detect his spying. The others refused to believe it, but Ender understood that they were children. Anton's key meant their brains were still growing, and so was the giant's brain. His capacity was so far beyond theirs by now that it was a joke to think of outsmarting him. But such was Sargent's competitive nature that he not only believed he could outsmart the giant, he believed he already had. Delusional. One of your children is insane, O oh giant, and it isn't me and it isn't the girl. What are you going to do about it? All right, not insane, just warlike. While Carlotta studied the engineering of the ship and Ender studied the human genome and methods of altering it, Sargent studied weapons, wars, and means of death. He came by it naturally. The giant had been a great military commander on Earth, perhaps the best that ever lived, though if he was, Mother had not been far behind him. Bean and Petra, 
the most powerful weapons in the hegemon's arsenal as he united the world under a single government. It was only to be expected that some of their children would be warriors at heart, and that was Sargent. Even Carlotta was more warlike than Ender. Ender hated violence, hated confrontation. He just wanted to do his work and be left alone. He could see one of his sibs do something remarkable, and he had no urge to match or surpass them. On the contrary, he was proud of them, or frightened for them, depending on whether he approved of whatever stunt they were attempting. Carlotta removed a narrow panel from near the ceiling of the access shaft. "'Oh, not really,' said Ender. "'We fit just fine,' said Carlotta. "'You're not claustrophobic, are you?' "'It's the gravity lensing field,' said Ender. "'And it's active. It's just gravity. Ten percent of Earth. And we're sandwiched between two plates. It's not like we can fall.' I hate the way it feels. They had played in that space when they were two-year-olds. It was like spinning around until you were dizzy, only worse. Get over it, said Carlotta. We've tested it, and sound really does get nullified in here. Right, said Ender. How are we going to hear each other speak? Tin can telephones, said Carlotta. Of course they weren't the toy sound transmitters that they had made when they were really little. Carlotta had long since re-engineered them so that, without any power source, they transmitted sound cleanly along ten meters of fine wire, even around corners or pinched indoors. Sure enough, there was Sargent, his eyes closed, meditating, which Ender interpreted to mean that Sargent was plotting how he would take over all the human worlds before he died of giantism at age twenty. "'Nice of you to come,' said Sargent." Ender couldn't hear him, but he could read his lips, and besides, he already knew it was exactly what Sargent was likely to say. Soon they were hooked up in a three-way connection with Carlotta's tin cans. They all had to lie in a line with their heads turned, Ender between Carlotta and Sargent, so he couldn't decide to end the conversation and slither out. As soon as Ender crept into the gravity field, he had felt that sense of plunging over the top of a waterfall or leaping off a bridge. Down, 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 said his sense of balance. Falling, warned his limbic node, all in a panic. For the first few minutes in the gravity field, Ender couldn't stop himself from flailing about in the startle reflex every ten seconds or so but that's why Carlotta taped his tin can to his face so he couldn't knock it away in one of his paroxysms. "'Get on with it,' said Ender grimly. "'I've got work to do, and this place feels like continuous death.' "'It's thrilling,' said Sergeant. "'Humans spend money to get inside a gravity field for the adrenaline rush, and here we get this one for free.' Ender said nothing. The more he demanded that they hurry, the more Sergeant would digress and delay. For once I agree with Ender, said Carlotta. I programmed turbulence into the lens and it's getting to me. So Ender was right that it felt worse than usual. For only the ten-thousandth time in his life, Ender wished he had beaten the Kuzo out of Sergeant when they first met. It would have established a different pecking order. Instead, Ender had paid attention when Mother kept telling him about how the other kids were just as much our genuine children as you— even though Ender had actually been born from mother's body and the other kids had been implanted in the wombs of surrogates. 
For the normal kids, that was no big deal. They would have no memories of living anywhere else. But the Antonines, Sergeant and Carlotta, were aware of everything at six months instead of three years. They remembered their surrogate families and felt like strangers with mother and father. Ender could have bullied and bossed them, but he didn't. He tried not to imply that he thought of himself as the real child, though at the age of twelve months, of course, he felt that way. Sergeant's reaction to the strange situation was to assert himself and try to take control. He must have been hell for his surrogate parents in the first year of his life. They would have had no idea what to do with a child who talked in full sentences by six months, who climbed everywhere and got into everything by nine months, who was teaching himself to read at age one. Carlotta, on the other hand, was reticent. Her surrogate parents might not have known just how much she could do at such an early age. When father and mother brought her home, she responded to the new situation with shyness, and she and Ender quickly became friends. Sergeant, feeling threatened, had to turn everything into a contest, or a fight. Ender mostly evaded Sergeant's belligerency. Unfortunately, Sergeant took that to mean submission, except when he took it as arrogance. You don't compete because you think you've already won everything. Ender didn't think he'd won. He just thought of competition with Sergeant as a distraction, a waste of time. It's not fun playing with somebody who absolutely has to win every single time. The giant is taking a long time to die, said Sergeant. In that instant, Ender understood the entire meeting. Sergeant was getting impatient. He was the son of the king and ready to inherit. How many times had this script been acted out in human history? So what do you propose? asked Ender neutrally. Evacuate the air from the payload area? Poison his water or his food? Or will you insist we all hold knives and stab him to death in the Senate? Don't be melodramatic, said Sergeant. The bigger he gets, the harder it will be to deal with the carcass. Open the cargo bay and jettison it into space, said Carlotta. How clever, said Sergeant. More than half our nutrients are tied up in his body and it's beginning to affect life support. We have to be able to reclaim those nutrients so we have something to eat and breathe as we get larger. So we cut him up into steaks, asked Ender. I knew you'd react that way, said Sergeant. We won't eat him, not directly. We'll slice him and put him in the trays. The bacteria will dissolve him, and the lichen will have a growth spurt. And then, huzzah, double rations for everybody, said Ender. All I propose is that we stop feeding him his full daily calories. By the time he notices, he'll have become so feeble that he can't do anything about it. He won't want to anyway, said Ender. As soon as he realizes we're trying to kill him, he'll want to die. "'Melodrama,' said Sergeant. "'Nobody wants to die unless they're insane. "'The giant wants to live, and he isn't sentimental like you, Ender. "'He'll kill us before he'll let us kill him.' "'Don't assume that the giant is as evil as you,' said Ender. "'Carlotta tugged on his foot. "'Play nice, Ender,' she said. "'Ender knew how this would play out. "'Carlotta would express her regret, but she'd agree with Sergeant.' If Ender tried to give the giant extra calories, Sergeant would beat him and Carlotta would stand by, 
or even help hold him. Not that the beatings ever lasted long. Ender just had no interest in fighting, so he didn't defend himself. After a few blows, he always gave in. But this was different. The giant was dying anyway. That caused Ender enough anguish that the idea of hastening the process was unbearable. Nothing unbearable had ever been proposed before. So Ender's reaction surprised even him. No, especially him. Sergeant's head was right there, just above Ender's own. Ender reached up, and with all the power of his arms, he rammed Sergeant's head into the wall. Sergeant's hands immediately snaked out to begin the battle, but Ender had taken him by surprise. No one had ever actively hurt Sergeant before, and he wasn't used to dealing with pain. By the time Sergeant's hands were groping for Ender's arms, Ender's legs were braced on both sides of the field containment shaft, and he was ramming the heel of his hand full strength into Sergeant's nose. Blood sprayed out and floated in globules that fell in every direction in the turbulent gravity field. Sergeant's grip faltered. This was serious pain. Ender could hear him shouting in fury into the tin can. Ender shaped his hand into a fist and drove a knuck into Sergeant's eye. Sergeant screamed. Carlotta twisted on Ender's foot, shouting, What are you doing? What's going on? Ender braced himself against her grip and drove the edge of his hand into Sergeant's throat. Sergeant choked and gasped. Ender did it again. Sergeant stopped breathing, his eyes bugging out in terror. Ender pulled himself along until his mouth was over Sergeant's. He locked their lips together and blew into Sergeant's mouth hard. He got blood and snot from Sergeant's nose inside his mouth when he did, but he couldn't avoid that. He hadn't yet decided whether to kill Sergeant. The rational part of Ender's mind, which had always been in control till now, was beginning to reassert itself. Here's how it's going to be, said Ender. Your reign of terror is over. You proposed murder, and you meant it. He didn't mean it, said Carlotta. Ender lashed back with his foot and caught her in the mouth. She cried out, and then just cried. He meant it, and you would have helped him with it, said Ender. I've put up with this goff note till now, but now you cross the line. Sergeant, you're not in charge of anything. If you try to give orders to anybody again, I'll kill you. Do you understand me? Ender, he'll kill you now, cried Carlotta through her tears. What's happened to you? Sergeant will not kill me, said Ender, because Sergeant knows that I just became his commanding officer. He's been dying to have one, and the giant wouldn't do it, so I will. Since you don't have a conscience of your own, Sergeant, you will have mine from now on. You don't do anything violent or dangerous without my permission. If you catch yourself thinking about harming me or anyone else, I'll know it, because I can read your body like a big print book. No, you can't, said Carlotta. I can read the human body the way you read the machinery on the ship, Carlotta, said Ender. I always know what Sergeant's planning. I just never cared enough to stop him until now. When the giant dies of his own accord, in his own good time, 
Then we will probably do something like what you proposed, Sergeant, because we can't lose the nutrients. But we don't need those nutrients now, and we won't need them for years. Meanwhile, I'll do all I can to keep the giant alive. You would never kill me, croaked Sergeant. Patricide is a thousand times worse than fratricide, said Ender, and I won't even hesitate. You didn't have to cross this line, but you did, and I think you knew what I'd do. I think you wanted me to do it. I think you're terrified by the fact that nobody ever stopped you from doing anything. Oh, this is your lucky day. I'm stopping you from now on. You and your weapons and your war games. I learned how to damage the human body, and I can promise you, Sergeant, I have permanently changed your voice and your nose. Every time you look in the mirror, every time you hear yourself talk, you'll remember Ender is in charge, and Sergeant will do as Ender tells him. Got it? As punctuation, Ender wrung Sergeant's nose, which was definitely broken. Sergeant cried out, but that hurt his throat terribly, and he gurgled and choked and spat. The giant's going to ask what happened to Sergeant, Carlotta said. He won't have to ask, said Ender. I'm going to repeat our conversation to him verbatim, and the two of you will be there to listen. Now, Carlotta, back down this shaft so I can drag Sergeant's miserable body out to where we can get the bleeding stopped. The following material is a postscript to Ender's Game. A postscript. Orson Scott Card. So, it's been 20 years since Ender's Game was first published as a hardcover novel. Of course, for me, it's been a lot longer than that. Um, it was a short story, originally, a novelette, according to the technical definition, that came out in the August 1977 issue of Analog. But let's go back even further than that. It was 1967 when I first came up with the idea of writing Ender's Game, of the story of Ender's Game. My older brother, Bill, uh, was dating a girl named uh, Laura Dean Lowe, who uh, later, of course, became Mrs. Bill Card. And at the time, uh, she was an avid science fiction reader. Bill was interested in science fiction also. And she introduced him to the Foundation Trilogy. And knowing that I also was somewhat interested in, in uh, uh, science fiction, they gave me the uh, first and third volumes, uh, first and, and first Foundation and oh, – what is it called? It's just Foundation. That's what it is. And then Second Foundation by Isaac Asimov. Uh, they weren't able to pick up the, the middle book. But uh, Isaac Asimov's magnum opus uh, was wonderful for me. It was illuminating. I hadn't read science fiction in several years at that point and uh, you know, not as a, on a regular basis. And I plunged into that book and it, it came to life for me. Uh, I've always admired Asimov. I still admire him as, as probably the finest writer of, of English prose in the American uh, tradition, uh, the plain tradition where you don't have highly decorated and highly figured speech but instead uh, the, the narration is as clean and clear and the author is as invisible as possible. And as I read the Foundation Trilogy, I came to realize that this is something that I really would like to do myself. Uh, I often tell young writers that there are two reasons for uh, – for becoming a writer. Uh, one of them is you read something wonderful and you say, oh, wow, I want to be able to write like that. The other reason is you, uh, you read something absolutely awful and you say, man, if that got published, I can write. 
Well, I always tell people that my motive for、uh, starting out as a writer was the latter, and it's it's really true. When I actually practically started writing,、uh, when I actually started setting words down on paper in a serious way, it was because I had seen some plays that I thought were pretty awful, and and I thought <laughs> if that can be if that can be put on, I can write plays, and so I started doing it, and they were put on, and that was the beginning of my writing career. But、uh, my interest in becoming a writer actually was prompted by the first motive, and it was reading Isaac Asimov that made me think I'd like to be able to do that. I'd like to be able to to tell stories that can make people feel the way I feel when I'm reading、uh, Asimov's Foundation trilogy. So I set myself the task. Then in 1967, I was 16 years old. Set myself the task of figuring out what a good science fiction story would be. Now at the time, the Vietnam War was on. And、uh, my brother Bill was in the military.、Uh, in fact, he was stationed at Fort Douglas while he was dating Laura Dean, and and、uh, he was recovering from a、uh, broken leg that happened while he was riding bikes with、uh, me and my younger brother Russell,、uh, while Bill was on leave from the military. So he had already served、uh, in Korea for a while, and、uh, now he was stationed in Salt Lake City,、uh, and you know, close at hand. But I had been aware of all of his training.、Uh, he had gone through basic training and had been an outstanding uh, uh, private in that setting. In fact, so outstanding that they moved him on to officers' candidate school. But he washed himself out. He chose not to continue there because, to him, it just made no sense that they would try to train somebody to be an officer by breaking his will and、uh, treating him really badly. He felt like they should be treating them well and and helping them to rely on their own sense of initiative. So he felt like it was a counterproductive training program, and from what he said, I believed it absolutely. So the issue of training, what good training would be, what bad training would be, was was、uh, strongly in my mind. And I must confess, also, of course, I at the age of sixteen, I was only a year and a half, couple of years maybe away from being draft age at eighteen, and、uh, that that had to you know play a role in my thinking. And I remember at the time what I feared most was basic training. I I honestly didn't fear death. For one thing, anybody with a brain would know that somebody who types eighty to a hundred words per minute was never going to be on the front lines anywhere.、Uh, I was going to be in some office somewhere typing up some general's orders or something like that.、Uh, my my chances of of actually being a a grunt soldier in danger of losing life and limb in Vietnam were nil. But what I dreaded was basic training. I was not an athletic person. Uh, all of basic training, no matter what branch of the service you were going into, was going to be about、uh, climbing, you know, ropes and going over obstacles and ducking under bullets. And I didn't mind the ducking under bullets; wasn't afraid of of getting dirty. But the second I would have to climb up a rope hand over hand or chin myself, I had never been able to do a chin up in my life. I was not strong. And、uh, I wasn't fat, but I was soft-bodied and, and had some extra weight.、Uh, it was just not, you know, the military was not something that I looked forward to. So training itself was a, was an object of dread for me personally. So with all of those those、uh, thoughts in mind, my brother's experience with it, my dread of training, then I thought, okay, how do you turn this subject into a science fiction story? And I thought, okay, if if you're, what if you're training for a future war, a war that will take place in space, a war where individual humans will go outside of ships and go from ship to ship in zero gravity? How do you train for that without losing soldiers? I mean, that's one of the, you know, when they do live ammunition training in the military, there's a danger that if somebody sticks his head up, he'll get machine gun bullets in it,、uh, and that sort of puts an end to the investment that they've、uh, placed in your your training. 
And so I thought, what do you do about the danger of somebody drifting off into space and being lost in the, in the thick of, of mock combat during training? So I thought, okay, what they need to do is train them in zero gravity, but in an enclosed space. And that's when I came up with the idea of battle school of having a, uh, a cubed space, about a football field on, on a side, um, in which you could engage in combat, uh, mock combat, of course, and train to start thinking the way you would need to train, uh, the way you need to think, rather, in order to succeed in zero-gravity combat. Well, from there, it was a short step, and this was all still, of course, when I was 16, to realizing that that uh, it's not enough to to protect them. You, you have to help them to think uh, differently. And I had read Nordhoff and Hall's uh, Bounty Trilogy as a uh, junior high student and really loved it. It's a wonderful piece of, of history converted into uh, you know, a fictionalized account that, that really comes to life, especially for the young. Um, I went on to read another book by Nordhoff and Hall, uh, which was about World War I flying aces. And uh, they talked about the training that these World War I pilots went through. There would never been combat uh, flying before. And they found out very quickly that, that one of the main ways that they lost pilots and planes, of course, was that the pilots thought only in the horizontal plane. They would look to the left. They'd look to the right. They'd even turn around and look behind them. And they'd find no enemies in view. And they'd think they were safe. The enemy that killed them would come from above, would come from out of the sun, would come from below them. Uh, and all of a sudden, there'd be bullets flying, and they'd have no idea where the, the bullets were coming from until, of course, they went down in flames. Uh, in space, the problem would be even more difficult because, of course, when you're, when you're flying an airplane, up and down still exist. They matter. Uh, but in space, there's not even an up and down. Every direction is up. Every direction is down. Every direction is, can be left or right depending on which way your body is twisted. So if you are thinking in any kind of terrestrial framework, any gravity-based framework, you'll be vulnerable to an enemy. You'll be thinking improperly. And so I thought one of the main things they have to do in zero-g is train them not to think like planet-bound people. Well, I thought that was a great idea. Battle school was going to be my science fiction story. But then I realized that I still had no story. All I had was a setting. And I had no idea who the story should be about. So the, the idea sat in the back of my mind for several years. I, I actually worked on another science fiction series that I had thought of. Uh, it became the Worthing Saga. I wrote several of those stories and, and uh, did that in my teens before I went on my mission for the LDS Church to Brazil. And while I was in Brazil, I, I brought out this uh, battle school idea again and tried to come up with a story. And I still didn't have one. It wasn't until years later, uh, 1975, I was working as an editor at Brigham Young University Press. And I was uh, running a theater company, which uh, I, I discovered that you can have a hit play, in fact, a season of hit plays, and lose money hand over fist. And I was funding it all out of season ticket sales. I mean, literally, I went out and sold season tickets at $20 each, um, and I was almost the only person selling, and, and most of the ticket sales were mine. And that was our budget. That was our funding, was however much money we brought in. So the incredible thing is that we were really only a few hundred dollars in debt. But for me, you know, on a copy editor's salary, how in the world was I going to repay the uh, few hundred dollars that, that we owed? So I realized I needed a supplemental income. And since I had utterly no skills whatsoever, um, I, I had no choice but either to, to take a job typing in the evenings uh, or make some money as a writer. I, I felt like as a playwright, uh, I had talent, but but uh, they didn't pay you for that. I was losing money at that. So 
I tried my hand at fiction. And the first thing I did was dust off one of those uh, Worthing stories that I had written before my mission. And I revised it, of course. I'd learned a little bit since then and sent it off to Ben Bova at Analog. And he wrote back and said, I really like the way you write, but unfortunately the story is not science fiction. It's fantasy. And But, but if, you, if you actually write a science fiction story, please send it to me. Well, at first I was, I was outraged. How could he say that? The Worthing saga is absolutely, definitely science fiction. But then I looked very closely and realized, of course, the story I sent him didn't include any of the surrounding information that let you know that it was on another planet, etc., etc. It just felt like a story about magic. And that was when I learned my rule. that The difference between science fiction and fantasy in this world is not any of the elaborate rules that, that you hear. The difference is simply this. Science fiction has rivets. Fantasy has trees. If you look at the covers of science fiction and fantasy books, you'll find that I'm right. There's some kind of sheet metal or plastic smooth surface, usually with rivets in it, and that makes it science fiction. And if instead you see a bunch of trees and, and people going in a woodsy, elvesy setting, then you know you're dealing with fantasy. And so by that definition, the Worthing story that I had sent to Ben Bova was absolutely fantasy. But I did have this idea for battle school in the back of my mind, and now – I was serious. I needed money. And even though science fiction short stories didn't pay much, they paid more than I had. And that was enough for me. I knew I wasn't going to be able to break into the New Yorker for bigger bucks or Playboy magazine or any of the other magazines at the time that, that paid in the thousands of dollars. Uh, my, my best hope was to sell at five cents a word a science fiction short story. So I dusted off the battle school idea. And now was when I had the insight that made it a story. I thought, if you're going to try to train people to not think in a planet-bound way, then what you need to do is get them when they're really young. And as soon as I realized that the people inside the battle school, inside the battle room, were, were kids, it changed everything. And I knew who my character was. My character was going to be the kid that had the most promise for saving the world from an alien invasion. Now, that was in 75. Uh, and, of course, I, I wrote it then, sent it off to Ben Bova. He rejected it, told me that it was twice as long as it needed to be. I needed to cut it in half. I just saw no way to cut it in half and still have anything left that was worth uh, worth publishing. The story was only 70 pages long, but at 35 pages, I just didn't see it, it working. So instead, I sent the story off to uh, Jim Bain, who was then the editor at, at Galaxy Magazine. Well, Jim, uh, let's let's put this kindly. Jim was going through stories about at the rate that Heinz ketchup flows out of the bottle. And uh, and so it was months and months and months before he finally got around to reading the story. And when he did, he rejected it. And unlike Ben, he didn't say, uh, I'd like a revision, send it back. He just said, no, it doesn't work. So I went back to Ben's letter and now his letter was looking a lot better to me. And so I thought, okay, he doesn't really want me to cut it in half. What he wants me to do is make it feel shorter. Uh, so what I realized was I had too many battles. I had too many scenes that were battles because I was showing off the battle room. Uh, and it was distracting from the story of the character. So I cut out one entire battle and I cut another one down so that I just gave a brief summary of it. And that's it. I cut it down from 70 pages to 65 pages. I sent it back to Ben and uh, said, I, I've dealt with the suggestions you made. Uh, see if this works now. I didn't actually lie and say I've cut it in half, but I figured, you know, he's not going to remember. It's been a year since he saw the first version. In that original letter, he also suggested that instead of Ender's Game, which was clearly a, a silly title, I mean, it was designed, the kid was named Ender solely so that uh, um, I could have a name that sounded like Endgame from chess. Uh, and so he suggested the title Professional Soldier. 
which had irony in it, and there, there was a lot to recommend it. But viscerally, it's not like I'm a genius at titles. Believe me, I have some really crummy ones in my past. But uh, I knew that Professional Soldier was too generic, that the irony worked, but that there was nothing to make it stand out. And I, to me, the kid was named Ender now. And as long as he was named Ender, it might as well be Ender's Game. So I stuck with my title. I told him that in the letter, that, that while his title had much to recommend it, I preferred mine. And that's the title. That's the, the, the story I was offering. It was the story entitled Ender's Game at this length. Um, and what I got back from Ben was much nicer than a letter. It was a check. Now, in those days, uh, Analog was, was uh, published by Condé Nast Publications. And their contract consisted of a uh, statement printed on the back of the check that said, if you endorse this check, you have agreed to the following. And uh, I didn't agree to the following, but that looked like the only way I was going to get the money, and I needed it. So I signed it, you know, swallowed hard, and uh, fortunately, I was dealing with honorable people, and when the time came, uh, the rights were reassigned to me as they needed to be and so forth. So I ended up not selling my soul the way I did with other publishers and other circumstances and other projects. Uh, It appeared in Analog Magazine in the August 1977 issue. Uh, in the you know of course, I was buying every issue of analog then to to watch when it would come out and I remember that uh, uh, the in the July issue of analog, Ben had said in the little editor 's uh, note, next month will mark the debut of an exciting new writer. Well, I knew he meant me, so I was so excited so then the the august nineteen seventy seven issue appears, and guess what on the cover. With all of the splashy picture and the big name is the, is the story Cold Cash War by Robert Lynn Asprin. His first appearance in print, he was the author that Ben was talking about. And yes, Ender's Game was in there on page 100, but no special touting of the story, no special attention called to me, my name wasn't on the cover, it just appeared. Now, I was, of course, disappointed, a little bit hurt, What I didn't realize was that Ben was, in fact, setting me up exactly the way he should, which is he let the readers discover the story. He did nothing to tout it. Uh, It appeared in the magazine, and the result was that uh, without any hype from him, just the appearance of the story, uh, Ender's Game was adopted by readers. Uh, It came in second for the Hugo Award. It was on the strength of that story that I was given the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer. Uh, there are, of course, people who still feel that that was a gross miscarriage of justice, but uh, my mother and I agree that, that I deserved to win it. Um, and the foundation of my career. Uh, it wasn't until years later that I decided to write a novel of Ender's Game. So in a way, while this is, of course, the uh, 20th anniversary of the publication of the book, it's the 30th anniversary of the publication of the story in uh, 2005. And uh, for me, it's uh, even longer since I first thought of it, but uh, since I first thought of the battle room. But since I first came up with the story, that was that was 1975, and and for me, that's that's where it began. Was realizing that it was a kid named Ender who was the uh, the hero of the story. And I remember sitting there when I started writing it. I, I had gone up with a girlfriend at the time to uh, a circus that was playing in the Salt Palace in Salt Lake City. But I wasn't invited to the circus. She was taking her boss's children. She worked at Chakarama in uh, Orem, a smorgasbord restaurant. And and f- as a favor to her boss, uh, she was taking his kids to the circus. There were three tickets. Uh, none of them was for me. 
So I sat on the lawn outside the Salt Palace with a notebook. Now, I've been writing my plays this way forever. Uh, I used to sit in the Harris Fine Arts Center waiting for my dad to pick me up because, of course, I didn't get a driver's license until I was 22. That's another story. Um, so I'd be waiting to be picked up to be taken home from BYU after a, a day at school. And since it took him 20 minutes to get there, I'd have time to write. And there were other times when I was waiting for this, waiting for that. So I'd pull out my notebook and, and write my plays in longhand. So I started Ender's Game in longhand as well. And I remember the very first thing I wrote was, remember, the enemy's gate is down. And that's the only sentence from the short story that I left in the novel uh, when, I, when I did that adaptation. Now, the adaptation into a novel, the thing we're remembering here on the 20th anniversary, began almost as an accident. Uh, for me, Ender's Game was done. I'd finished the story. It was complete. Uh, I had no desire to write a novel. But I did have another novel that I was working on called Speaker for the Dead. And Speaker for the Dead, um, which ended up also winning the, the Hugo and Nebula Award, though it's not as popular a book mainly because it's much more for grown-ups. Uh, it doesn't have a kid protagonist. It's a much slower beginning book. Uh, but many people think a better one. Uh, I won't argue with them. My, my idea of, of a happy future is a world in which uh, every household in America is riven by dissent over whether Ender's Game or Speaker for the Dead is the better of the two books. Uh, but but for now, I'll I'll settle for uh, you know we'll we'll talk about Ender's Game. Um, but I was working on Speaker for the Dead, and what brought that book to life was the realization this really works if the hero is Ender Wiggin after the fact. Only instead of being hailed as a hero, uh, he is not. He's, he's rejected because he wiped out all of, the, the alien, all of this alien race. And so it was with that turnabout that I opened up the book Speaker for the Dead. The trouble was if I included that turnabout as the opening of Speaker for the Dead, it took me 20, 30, 40, in one draft, 50 pages before I even got to the beginning of the story of Speaker for the Dead. It was a deadly, tedious opening. It wasn't working. But Speaker for the Dead was under contract to Tom Doherty at Tor. So at the time, I was working for Compute Magazine as their book publisher. And on their behalf, uh, I was attending uh, – well, now it's BEA, the Book Expo America. But at the time, it was the ABA, American Booksellers Association Convention, in uh, Dallas, Texas. And I ran into Tom Doherty there. And took him aside. We walked through the the uh, noisy convention floor, and I explained to him that in order to write Speaker for the Dead successfully as a novel, I needed to adapt Ender's Game first, solely in order to change the ending of Ender's Game in order to set up Speaker for the Dead. Well, on a handshake, in fact, not even literally a handshake, uh, Tom had already said, "Same terms as as uh, Speaker for the Dead." I said, "Yes," uh, and he said, "Great, it's done." And a few days later, my agent got a contract, we signed it, and instead of writing the next version of Speaker for the Dead, I sat down and started writing Ender's Game. Uh, then I worked on, on fleshing out the story. I had already learned from uh, my work on the novel Songmaster that the way to take a short story and adapt it into a novel is not to start with the short story as written and then tack a bunch of stuff onto the end. The way you do it is you go before the beginning of the short story and you create a much wider world. And you, you develop the character much more thoroughly. Now, Ender's Game started with Ender, what, 10, 9 years old, the, the short story version. So I went back to when he was born, when he was so little that, that, uh, that, that it was ridiculous to try to do a war novel about him. But it wasn't, not with Ender uh, and not with the situation in battle school and not with the emergency that the world was facing. 
So I started with Ender back on Earth before he ever got to battle school, whereas the short story started when he first got his got command of his own army and took it from there. I gave him a brother and a sister. Uh, they sort of grew like Topsy. They became much more important in the book than I ever planned. Uh, Peter and Valentine weren't even in the outline that I had, but they became uh, vital to not only that story but to the later books in the, the Ender series. And uh, I, I really had fun writing this book. I was playing because I knew the real book was Speaker for the Dead. So I followed whims. I, the whole fantasy game, that just came out of nowhere. I was free associating. Uh, it's not Ender's brain you're, you're seeing uh, at work there. It's mine. So if you detect schizophrenia or some other vile uh, mental disorder in the uh, fantasy game, uh, that's mine, not his. Uh, but by the time I was done, I knew I had something. In fact, about halfway through, I thought this book, this story is really working. This book is going to go somewhere. And I was modeling uh, Ender, not the character, not the, the character attributes, but the way he talked, the level of language he used on my then five-year-old son, Jeffrey. And I thought, Jeffrey's going to read this book and he's going to read it young. I don't want him to learn bad words from my book. And I, boy, the book was thick with them. Uh, I had these kids talking the way little kids would talk, especially if they were in a military school setting. Uh, lots of bad language, lots of uh, blasphemy. And I was just uncomfortable with it. I thought, I don't want Jeffrey to learn these words from me or any other kid. So I went through, cleaned up the language. I left in all of the, the bathroom humor because, you know, you can't write about kids honestly without having that there. Um, but I made it so that the, no kid was going to learn bad language from me. And that was solely because I knew this book was going to be read by kids. Then I finished and uh, sent the book off to my to my editor, who at the time was Harriet McDougall, who, by sheer coincidence, is the wife of uh, Robert Jordan, the uh, author of the Wheel of Time series, though at that time he was uh, still writing Conan stories for uh, Tom Doherty. The Wheel of Time had not uh, started appearing. And so, uh, you know, it's a very incestuous, uh, small world in science fiction. Harriet was thrilled with the book. She thought it was wonderful, and she was as excited as I was. They were so excited that uh, Tom decided that as they started a new hardcover line, because at that time Tor was only a paperback publisher. They, they published nothing in hardcover. They were going to have their first novel uh, in hardcover, B. Ender's Game, in December of 1984. Well, this is what my ambition for this novel was at the time. I, I called up my editor and I said, Harriet, we can't, we can't release it. You know, I, I'm flattered to be the first hardcover, but we can't do that. If you put it out in December of 84, that's right at the end of the Hugo, uh, Hugo eligibility time period, the, the year. Uh, and if the year ends and they start nominating in, as they do in January, no one will have read Ender's Game. Nobody buys a hardcover that comes out in December. Certainly not science fiction readers. They're all poor. They wait till it comes out in, in paperback. So if you just wait and bring out the hardcover in January of 85, then it'll have the whole year in hardcover and the paperback can come out before the nominations and this book will have a chance at, at making the ballot. If you bring it out in hardcover in December, no chance. It'll just disappear uh, as far as the awards are concerned. Well, she saw the reasoning of that. They brought out a book by another author, I believe Gordon Dixon, as their first book in, in uh, December of, of – uh, their first hardcover in December of 84. And Ender's Game came out in January of 1985. And the eligibility worked as I had hoped. Uh, it, it had time for readers to discover it. And the result was that it was on the ballot uh, and ended up winning the, the Hugo Award, which is what I was aiming for. I was stunned when it also won the Nebula Award uh, 
it seemed to me too popular a kind of novel, a novel too much aimed at the common denominator of readers to to win the Nebula. So I was naturally thrilled uh, when it when it won that award as well. And then Speaker for the Dead, the sequel, uh, went on uh, to win both awards also the following year. But I didn't set out to write a Hugo-winning book, but uh, I, I was able to tell when I was finished with writing Ender's Game that it was the kind of, of story that would be in contention. That was uh, 20 years ago. Since then, uh, of course, uh, immediately attention came from Hollywood. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was the short story that, that uh, prompted the, the first uh, uh, option that a movie producer took on Ender's Game. Uh, the novel was out, but he hadn't read it. He didn't know about it. He, he had read the short story only. And it was the same uh, producer who had produced uh, or who was at that point working on Enemy Mine, a story by Barry Longyear, which was based in turn on Hell in the Pacific, which was a movie. So adapting a story that was based on a movie into a movie again uh, you you would have thought it would be foolproof, but instead, Enemy Mine tanked, and that original option on Ender's Game expired along with the uh, the uh, pu- the producer's sources of funding. But that first option taught me a valuable lesson, because as soon as the option was signed, what the producer said to me was, "Of course, we have to change Ender to be 16 years old and give him a love interest." And I was horrified. I said, first of all, these kids are supposed to be geniuses. If Ender is 16, there is no 16-year-old with even half a brain who is going to believe everything that adults tell him. Ender has to be so young and have lived in such a sheltered environment that he still believes everything that adults tell him. And 16-year-olds aren't like that, especially not really smart 16-year-olds, especially not the kind of 16-year-olds with the initiative and the brain power to save the world as a, as a military commander. Um, but they wouldn't listen to me. And Why? And and it wasn't just this producer. It was producer after producer over the next few years. After that option expired, everybody that came to me said, well, of course, we can't leave Ender as a little kid. And they would all explain to me why. First of all, they had to get that date audience. How in the world will we make the money back on this movie unless we have people on dates? And people on dates need 16-, 17-, 18-year-old heroes. Uh, they need to see themselves. You know, nobody that age, you know, nobody in their teens is going to care about what happens to a six or nine or ten year old kid? I said, "Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about E.T.? You know, where's the teen hero in E.T.? It, it was a huge hit. Well, that was a special movie." They would tell me. I said, "Great, let's make Ender's Game a special movie too." Well, apparently they didn't have the vision to see how that would work. The real problem, and this one, this one was not just Hollywood silliness, is that when you have a movie that absolutely depends on a child actor. You're shooting yourself in the foot because how many good child actors have there been? I'm not talking about child actors who were in hit movies. I'm talking about children who can really, really act. There have, there have been a few. Elijah Wood was a child actor like that. Obviously, Haley Joel Osment. A couple of others further back, uh, Roddy McDowell, marvelous child actor, uh, and, and others whose names are, are slipping my mind right now. Um, but there's never been more than one at a time in any given year. I mean, in order to make The Good Son, they had to cast Elijah Wood with Macaulay Culkin, which means you had a face and a, and a talented actor. Um, and, you know, that was what was going to happen to Ender's Game. Well, Ender's Game, to be filmed, needed not just Ender, but a half dozen other kids to be excellent, excellent actors. It It's almost an impossible thing to do. Uh, in fact, it still was a worry, even after uh, Ender's Game was subsequently optioned very seriously in the, in the project that's going on right now. 
still a concern until I saw the movie Peter Pan, uh, the live-action Peter Pan directed by uh, Hogan. In that film, it absolutely depends on the, the performance of children. And yes, the character of Peter Pan was cast um, with a the, – the kid has a marvelous look, a magical look, but the director got a good performance out of him. And all the other kids gave excellent performances, all the Lost Boys, uh, the Indian Princess, the the brothers and Wendy. They gave wonderful performances. It can be done. And that encouraged me no end. Um, but by then, Ender's Game was under the option that finally worked. But here's how that came about. Probably more than you're, you're going to want to know, but uh, they told me I could talk as long as I wanted to, and, and then they'd still manage to fit it onto nine CDs. Um, either that or they'll edit out these comments too, so you won't even hear them. So if you do hear them, you know that they, that they kept their promise and everything that I wanted to say is in here. Uh, but I was um, – obviously still shopping this around and, and saying no to everybody because everybody would, would say, we got to make Ender 16. And I would say, no, it's got to be in the contract that you don't have any right to make this movie if Ender is played any older than 12. He has to, in fact, I, I specified he has to be played as being under 12 years of age. I wanted it so that there was no chance of puberty rearing its ugly head. I didn't want to have any chance that they would give Ender a date uh, during the movie. I didn't want him to fall in love with anybody. I wanted him to be a boy a kid. Um, to me, that was essential. So I would insist that they include that clause. And I had a couple who, who agreed, okay, we'll do it that way. We'll, we'll put in that clause. But then I would read the contract and these were, you know, Hollywood contracts. So they were thicker than most novels. And sure enough, you know, 40 pages later into the contract, there'd be a little clause buried in the middle of a paragraph that had nothing to do with the subject that said, contrary to any statement anywhere else in this contract, Ender may be played at any age or, you know, casting will be solely at the discretion, et cetera, et cetera. Something that erased that clause so that I would see the visible clause and they hoped that I wouldn't notice the uh, clause later in the contract that said that they didn't have to do it after all. Well, you know, that told me that not only couldn't I sign that contract, I didn't want to work with these people. Uh, contrary to, to uh, public opinion, you don't have to be dishonest to work in Hollywood. In fact, um, most people who are really dishonest in Hollywood fail. Because a collaborative project like any good movie absolutely depends on trust. There are lots and lots of crooks in Hollywood, but very few of them are making movies. The people who are making good movies are honest people. Uh, They're able to maintain the level of trust with uh, their fellow workers that enables everybody to do their best work. Um, So I wasn't going to do any business with those guys. Then there were the other guys who, who would say they would use their best efforts to play Ender as being under 12 years. Well, best efforts means at some point, long before shooting starts, two guys are sitting in a conference room in the studio and they say, well, what do you think? Should Ender be under 12? And the other guy would go, uh, nah. And that's it. That was best efforts right there because they'd say, well, we couldn't do it. The studio executives wouldn't do it and they're the ones with the money. So we did our best efforts, but uh, Ender's going to be 16 now. So uh, that clause didn't work. Uh, and then there were the people who said, uh, whose contract said, we'll make um, Ender under 12, give or take four years. Well, I can add, you know, I didn't think they were going to make him under eight. Uh, that was solely designed to make it so that he could be played as a 16-year-old. So once again, not doing business with these guys. Finally, I found the producer who got it. And... That's the producer that, that I ended up uh, originally signing with long before the, the current option with the studio. That producer was Robert Chartoff. 
Uh, Ted Ravenette, a friend of his who was a, a play producer and, and a film producer, uh, had found Ender's Game, brought it to, to Chartoff, and Chartoff read it, loved it, and they got it. They knew that Ender had to be played under 12, and they understood why, and they were going to fight for that. And uh, Robert Chartoff's uh, producing partner, uh, Lynn Hendy, uh, who is a marvelous producer and a joy to work with, uh, and became the active uh, producer on this, the one that I worked most closely with. Uh, she got it, uh, and they agreed that I would write the screenplay. And in order to sell the the, uh, the project, I wrote screenplays for which I was not paid. Uh, officially, I'm not supposed to do that, but I wasn't union labor, and I was adapting my own uh, books. So, uh, you know, I'm, I sort of fit in through the cracks. I wrote one draft, uh, and it was it was a good draft. But the heart wasn't there and we didn't understand why. No, none of us were understanding what wasn't working. It wasn't what I left out. It wasn't that I was too faithful to the, to the original book. In fact, I sometimes appalled them by how unfaithful I was. But I knew what the essence of the story was and, and so I was able to strip away a lot of things that really weren't necessary. But somehow the emotions just weren't coming through. People would read the book and be thrilled and then they'd read the screenplay and, and they'd go, oh, it's just not there. And, and they couldn't say why. I tried again. Uh, my second full draft from Ground Zero with a completely different approach. And once again, it was better, it was closer, but it wasn't there. It wasn't until on a completely related project, and I'll probably talk about it more on the the, uh, audiobook uh, version of of that book, a book called Ender's Shadow, which uh, was something, believe me, I never planned to write. But for various reasons, I found myself writing a novel that was exactly parallel to Ender's Game, only it focused on the character of Bean. It saw all of the same events through Bean's eyes. And as soon as that book existed, though I didn't see it at first, the key to Ender's Game, the movie, had now been found. It took the interest of Richard Legravenez in in working on Ender's Game. He uh, thought the book was terrific. He wanted to to be involved. He's a great screenwriter. Uh, But it was his wife, Anne, who first said, no, no, you don't adapt Ender's Game. You adapt Ender's Game and Ender's Shadow. And she was dead on. As soon as, as uh, I heard that from her, I realized that she had, she had found that key. Uh, my novel, Ender's Shadow, was the way to make Ender's Game. Not by filming Ender's Shadow, because that's not Ender's story. That's Bean's story. But by focusing on the relationship between Ender and Bean, we solved the fundamental movie-making problem with Ender's Game. And here's what the problem was. Ender's Game takes place inside Ender's head. The only way you understand the horrible moral dilemmas that he's facing, the only reason you care deeply about him, the only reason that you're so emotionally involved is that you're inside his head throughout the entire novel. And movies can't do that. Movies can't tell you what the character is thinking. I mean, they can. They, they, they can give you voiceovers, for example. So Ender's walking along a corridor in battle school and and suddenly you hear his voice. Uh, he's not speaking, but you know you're getting his thoughts. And he says, I wonder what Peter's doing right now. I mean, what a dreadful way to, way to handle uh, Ender's thoughts. It, it wouldn't work. Um, or you have the character talk about his thoughts and feelings, which is the standard thing you do in movies. But with Ender's game, Ender is a quiet guy. He doesn't reveal his feelings. If he does, he's not Ender. So there's no way to tell you what he's feeling. But as soon as you bring uh, Bean into the story as an equal or nearly equal character, now you have what Hollywood is good at, a buddy movie. You have two characters who are at first antagonistic, then later become allies in a struggle against adults. The adults are trying to decide which of them is going to be the, the 
commander that they need in order to save the world. So that even when they're cooperating, uh, the adults are still seeing a competition between them. And right up to the last minute, it's there in Ender's Game, it's explicit in in, uh, Ender's Shadow, we don't know which of them is going to be in command at the final battle. Now that's the story Hollywood could tell. And not only that, we could tell it more briefly. My first script that included both Ender's Game and Ender's Shadow was 20 pages shorter than any script I had ever written from Ender's Game alone. Uh, It was doable. And my script proved that it could be done because that script had the emotional impact. Now, you know, no studio can ever justify spending $120 million to make a movie based on a script written by the author who has never had a movie made before. So they have other writers coming in, and I'm sure that the draft I wrote is not even going to be close to what the final draft is. Nevertheless, I proved that the emotional impact could be there and that the problems could be solved. And I was happy. I'm perfectly willing to let them go ahead. Well, we, based on that uh, that take on the on the adaptation, Warner Brothers uh, got involved with Wolfgang Peterson attached to direct, and we'll see if that if this this packaging uh, ends up being the one that, that that goes onto the screen. If it does, that'll be great. The irony, though, is that everybody who read Ender's Game immediately started saying, oh, that book is so good, it ought to be a movie. Think about it for a minute. It's already a book. You know, Shakespeare stuff uh, was great before it was a movie. Uh, Dickens' novels were great before they were, were made into a movie. But in America today, film is the premier art form. Anything that we think is wonderful, we want to turn into a movie so that it can be made perfect because that's what we view as the epitome, the, the acme of, uh, of art of the storytelling art. And I accept that. I'm an American. You know, I want to see these things filmed. I wanted to see the Harry Potter movie um, and, and was, was delighted when finally with the third Harry Potter movie, they got it right. Uh, you know, we, we want to see movies made from books. But the fact of the matter is, film is not the ideal setting for a book by Orson Scott Card. And that's because my background is in theater. And when I'm writing books, I'm not really writing prose. What I'm doing is I'm improvising a performance, an oral performance. My narration is meant to be read aloud. Uh, I'm never happier than when people tell me, oh, when I was reading the Alvin Maker books or when I read Ender's Game, my wife and I read it aloud to each other or my dad read this book to us at bedtime uh, as when I was a kid uh, or my teacher read Ender's Game to us uh, in, in our, our classes. Uh, That's what I want to hear because my stuff needs to be read aloud. And that's why for me, I hope the film is wonderful. I'll make a lot of money if it it is. Uh, But for me, the ideal presentation of any book of mine is to have excellent actors perform it in an audio-only format. And that's what you have right here. That's what you just listened to. I've had a lot of productions over the years, uh, audio productions of my my books. Uh, back in the days of abridgment, it didn't work as well uh, because uh, my stories don't abridge well. I, I brought a lot of habits from my playwriting days to uh, to my fiction writing. And when I was a playwright, I was a bare stage playwright. I didn't believe in realistic sets. I didn't want them. I wanted all my plays performed on Shakespeare's stage. Uh, I wanted it so that you knew what setting you were in because of the words that were said and the dialogue between the actors. If I wanted you to think you were in the Forest of Arden, then like Shakespeare, I would say, well, here we are in the Forest of Arden. Uh, but, But unless it was essential to the story, you would never see anything. 
So I don't describe. You know, I've had people say, I hated the graphic descriptions of violence in your book. Well, I will challenge them. Where? What graphic description? And they can't find it. And I say, well, then guess where the graphic description of the violence came from? came from your head. You imagined it. Well, of course, I wanted them to imagine it, and I really am still responsible uh, to a degree for what they see in their minds when they, when they read my books. But um, there's no description. There are no incidents that are there as, as filler. There's no fluff. There's no empty dialogue. I try to write with the discipline of a playwright so that if there's dialogue, it's because the words that are said are essential to understand the forward movement of the story or to understand the characters. So my books do not abridge well. Even, even so, I, I was still delighted to have my books coming out in audio, even in abridged format. There was, there was one in particular, one abridged uh, production of my novel, Lost Boys, read by Robbie Benson. He did a splendid job. And, and uh, even though enormous swaths of the book, whole characters uh, were, were cut out in order to make the abridgment, um, I felt like the story worked. But I have to say I'm, I'm delighted that finally uh, my books are coming out regularly in unabridged format with excellent productions. And uh, I have to give credit to the the man who was the main reader of of this book, Stefan Rudnitsky, who um, is not just the reader. He's also the producer, the director. Uh, When he looks at these books, he doesn't look at them as uh, just having some guy come in and read them. He looks at the theatrical potential. He's somebody who understands oral storytelling. He casts the voices splendidly. Uh, with the one exception that he allowed me to make my vanity cameo. Just see if you can guess which voice uh, in this production that you just heard was mine because um, I'm in it. Um, anyway, he, he does a great job on this and, and many other productions, whether he's the reader or, or merely the director and producer, of putting out the kind of production that I want my books to have. So uh, when the movie comes out, uh, when it's finally made, I hope you'll go see it. I hope it makes billions of dollars all around the world and, and uh, allows me to have the power in Hollywood to get more of my uh, projects made. But in the meantime, you already have what I think of as the ideal presentation of my novel Ender's Game, which is the audiobook that you have just heard. We hope you've enjoyed Ender's Game, an audio renaissance audiobook from Tor Forge. This program was produced by Stefan Rudnicki and remastered by Tim Franklin. Text copyright 1977, 1985, and 1981 by Orson Scott Card. Production copyright 2002 and 2004 by Audio Renaissance, a division of Holtzbrink Publishers, LLC. All rights reserved. This is Orson Scott Card for the Young Listener's Edition of Ender's Game. I appreciate the time you've spent with my story about Ender Wigan and his life. Uh, the kind of story that I've written here is is called a Bildungsroman. It's a fancy German word for saying a, a story that is about a young person finding out who they are, making themselves into adults. And it's a story that uh, was not written for kids. Bildungsromans are not for children to read. Um, I did not have in mind that this would be a particular favorite of, of young readers. I wrote it for adults, which means there are no compromises in this book. I don't dumb down the vocabulary. I don't simplify anything. I wasn't thinking, oh, wow, will this bother children? You know, I was just writing the story the way I thought it would and should happen. 
in the real world if this circumstance ever existed. I'm not forecasting that we'll have an alien invasion, but if we did, if we had to fight a war, we would turn, we do turn in our wars to children, to young people whose lives are not yet fully formed, to go out and do our fighting for us. And even though I exaggerate this in Ender's Game, I was writing it as a true story, a truthful story about war, about the way war is fought, about leadership, about a lot of different things. But to my surprise, after I wrote it, I started getting letters from younger and younger readers. I I wasn't shocked that 15 and 14-year-olds read it. People that age read adult science fiction all the time. But then I started getting letters from 10-year-olds and 9-year-olds. And it wasn't just letters from kids in gifted programs, though I heard from them, of course. You know, they would say, this is my story. Ender is, is the life I'm leading. I would get letters from students or from teachers or parents of students who were in um, programs for slow learners, for, for people who had problems, who had learning dis- disabilities, uh, people who were behavior problems in school. And I was getting letters from them, and they said the same thing, which is, this book speaks to me. This this story of Ender, that's my story. I felt like I am Ender. What was going on there? Well, it's not about genius kids only. It happens to be that it's about these kids who were chosen because they're so smart to fight a war. But the same kind of story could be told with heroes of many different kinds. The story is mostly about, well, it's about all kids. You could have a sports hero. You could have a young wizard. You could have young detective stories that would still move into the same situation because Ender lives in a world shaped by adults. It's exaggerated. That's what science fiction does. I mean, he lives in this isolated space station where adults shape the entire experience that these kids have. They're cut off from parents. They're cut off from any support group that they might have outside their army. And so they form their social groups. They form their gangs within the the, uh, armies, within the uh, battle school structure. They compete with each other. Uh, everything becomes their life with each other. But adults are ultimately tweaking everything, shaping everything. But here is the thing that is different with Ender. Ender knows that he will never be bailed out by an adult. No one's going to come in and rescue him. He is completely on his own. Now think about that. I hope that that all of you reading this have good families, have parents. You know, may, maybe listening to this book was really like it used to be when you were young and you'd curl up with your mom or dad reading a story to you. And I hope you've had that experience. I hope you live in a warm, wonderful home. Nevertheless, the older you get, the more you realize mom and dad are not going to be able to bail you out of anything at some point in your life. There are decisions you make. Now, you know, there are the obvious ones, like if you step off the curb in front of a speeding truck, mom and dad can't save you then. It's too late. But we're talking about much more subtle ones than, you know, not the ones that are no-brainer decisions. I'm not going to step in front of a truck. You know, that that's, a, that's easy. But we make a lot of other choices, the way we learn to make friends with each other, the way we deal with our schooling, the way we, uh, the way we handle ourselves with our siblings. When we're young, we're making all kinds of decisions that shape the future for ourselves and for other people. And even though we might have wonderful, loving, caring parents, and sadly, there are plenty of people who don't have those wonderful, loving, caring parents, nevertheless, either way, you are making choices whose consequences you will live with for the rest of your life. One of the obvious consequences being simply that from then on, you are the kind of person who does the kind of thing you just did. You now know that about yourself. This is what I can do. This is what I'm capable of. This wonderful good thing is what I'm capable of. 
this not-so-good, not-so-wonderful, sad thing that I did, this bad thing, that is also something I'm capable of. I have to watch myself in the future. I can't do that again. We learn who we are by seeing what we do, and that's what Ender is facing. Ender keeps finding out more and more about himself, and the, about himself, and, the, and so do the other kids, find out more and more about themselves. The adults will shape the game. They make the rules. They give the, make the assignments. They tell them what world they're living in, what army they're going to be in. But once that's done, the adults cannot shape what you'll do with it. They can't change who you ultimately are. And what the kids find out is, once you've made a choice, there are no do-overs. You can be sorry, you can try to make it right, but the thing you did remains in memory. It has its effects. It never goes away. In the end, in the end, everything you do ends up meaning way more than you thought it would mean at the time you did it. All your decisions count. So that here's another way that Ender's Game is telling you the truth. In one way or another, the game is always real. Think about that. When you're playing a sport, say you're in basketball. When you play a basketball game, that game isn't real. I mean, it's not like the old ball game that they used to play in in Mexico with with the Aztecs, where if you lost, the losing team would be sacrificed to the god. You know, that's a real game. I'm telling you, if you lose and and then they sacrifice you and tear your heart out and give it to to the god they worship, then losing is really a bad thing. You try to avoid that. But the game is real in another way, because while you're playing, even though... You know, who cares? How many basketball games have you been in where you have no idea what the finished score was or or even whether you won or lost? Uh, believe me, by the time you're my age, you don't remember, though you do remember winning a little bit more than you actually probably did. Nevertheless, the game itself is, does not become real the way that it does for Ender. But you playing it, that's real. The way you treat the other players on your team, the way you treat the opposing players— those are real things. You can find out, am I a guy who cheats or do I keep to the rules? Do I stick the elbow in the other guy's face? Do I retaliate when somebody elbows me? Am I a mean player? Am I a selfish player? Do I share the ball with other people? Do I see the shape of the whole game or do I just focus on what I'm doing? Who you are is in that game, just as who you are is in the way you act in the classroom and the way you treat other people, assuming that you're in school. Um, but it's also in the way you, you treat your family. What Peter did to Ender at the beginning of Ender's game is all real. He didn't, he didn't kill him. He didn't inflict any permanent damage. Nevertheless, it became part of the shape of Ender's life from then on, and it became part of the shape of Peter's life. He would have to live with the fact that that's how he treated his brother Ender. And so what we get from Ender's game, I think, The reason why this story, which is obviously made up, there are no aliens attacking us. They aren't sending kids off into space to fight a war. The reason it feels true to so many people is it reflects what your life really is. It is a novel about youth. It's a novel about learning how to face the consequences of your own decisions, about learning that it is up to you. Nobody is going to be able to step in and fix your life for you. You are who you are. You do what you do. The game is real. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.